This Saturday night, December 5th, we're holding a fundraising event to benefit great apes with our favorite animal behaviorist, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. Join me, David Feldman, and Dr. Jen for an evening of ape stories and ape education, all to benefit the Center for Great Apes. When Dr. Jennifer Verdelin isn't busy teaching me about animal behavior, she's a passionate advocate for the Center for Great Apes and the work they do to provide a permanent sanctuary for orangutans and chimpanzees who have been rescued or retired from the entertainment industry, from research, or from the exotic pet trade. Your ticket gets you access to the Zoom taping at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, where you can join the live Q&A, as well as a limited edition postcard with a personal thank you from me. That postcard will be a limited edition printing. I'm not making this up. It is a portrait of an ape painted by an ape, and it will have a thumbprint from the artist. We're only making 100 of these. It's limited edition. It's a collector's item. 100% of your donation will go to the Center for Great Apes, and we encourage you to support them in any way you can. You can make additional donations anytime via their website, centerforgreatapes.org. That's centerforgreatapes.org. To purchase tickets, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, click the pay-per-view button, and buy tickets. Now, we're doing something a little different for this event. The tickets to the show are going to be on a pay-what-you-want donation basis. So once again, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, click the pay-per-view button, and join us this Saturday night. We're only selling 100 tickets. Everybody who shows up will get a limited edition postcard with a personal thank you from me. That postcard is a limited edition printing of a painting done by an ape of an ape, and it's autographed by that ape. We'll see you Saturday night at our benefit for the Center for Great Apes. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view button. I'll see you then.
times in the city Hot times in the city You're listening to the David Feldman Show. How do you know when you're getting old? How? Well, you start making the same noises as your coffee maker. Your memory's not as sharp as it used to be. And your memory's not as sharp as it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) You happy, self-actualized hump. I want you to be in a manja car, in a manja Las Vegas, and a manja Miami. Oh, are you back? Is it your show? Yeah, Yeah. I'm back. I got my show back. Hey, David Feldman, everybody! (laughs) This is... I just... Hi. It's the Feldman Show. Yay. Okay. Pete Dominic joins us. He's the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic, and you can download that wherever you get your fine podcasts. Boy, we do this live, and anything that can go wrong sometimes goes wrong. I'm trying to learn yeah, my sound. My audience is so interested in my technical difficulties. Pete Dominic, how are you? You dropped out two weeks ago. You were supposed to show up for our show, and you, you had to cancel. Are you okay? That's right, everybody. Uh, we thought my daughter had the COVID. Oh. What does that mean? There's well, Jeff Ross. Uh, There's Jeff Ross. He, You're he, early. More importantly. Yeah. His name is Mike on either. I Mike have to, is I, not on. I have you on at like at 10 o'clock. Are you going to be sitting in throughout the day? Well, you sent me a, a link saying it starts in an hour. So I've been furiously <laughs> calling you to find out what the fuck's going oh, on. I'm sorry. No, we, 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 uh, the show starts in an hour, but you come on at the end. At, at 10. Jeff always shows up at the beginning of every show, regardless of his set time. Yeah. Can I just come on now? I'll wait for Pete. And then Just Gal's on hold, too. And Where's Just Gal? I can come back later. We had He's a. Super- Where's Just I don't see oh, Just Gal. Why don't you talk to Jeff now? No, I'm, I'm going to talk to you. I don't see Just Gal. We, we had something planned for you, but right. I don't see Just Gal. Okay. Oh. Uh, he's, on, he's on here at Dominic Dominic. Where is Dominic Dominic? Oh, yeah, he's there. He's there. That's that's Dave Duskow? No, no, it's, it's your grandfather. Dominic, it's your grandfather. Dominic Dominic, are you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I don't, I don't see you. Well, I'm... Grandpa? No, no, it's your grand. It's your maternal grandfather. I to check on you. I heard about your daughter, and uh, oh. of course, that's what happens when you do this for character transcendental meditation. And uh, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, to hear, but <laughs> David, I don't mind telling you this. I don't. I'm a very old man. I don't know about the internet, but <laughs> this is the worst produced show I've ever seen. I know. In all my years. <laughs> I know. Dad. 
This is your, so. This is your grandfather, Dominic. Dominic, for, for your maternal. Here's the thing I want to understand, Grandpa Dominic, Pete yeah. Dominic, your Pete Dominic's maternal grandfather. So that's, that's, that's right. explain that. Why? Why wouldn't you have I, a different? Possibly. Why wouldn't you have a different name than Dominic? Well, we all marry into each other's families. <laughs> and, so very good. Well, the Italians are very much like living in Kentucky. Not that big a deal. You can read all about it in the funny papers. I don't know if you guys have seen the funky Winker Bean from Thanksgiving, but it's it's still good. It's a good quality comic. No, seriously, Grandpa Pete is reading the funny papers now. Yeah, he's reading the funny papers. I have an uh, interesting family history. It's not it, it's not untrue. It's a secret, uh, but since Bob Bob is here explaining it, I guess the cat is out of the bag. So, well, what do you think of yeah, Pete well, Dominic? What do you think of your grandson doing talk well, radio? I've always been a anybody that's brought up in Syracuse is not that great. We had a lot of trouble uh, dealing with that. For a long time, I mean, uh, then they find out he's playing this for cocktail lacrosse, uh, things like this. These these aren't things that uh, we appreciate as, as men, as men, as men. You know, what are you, what are you saying about you? your what are you saying about your grandson? I'm just he's a, a transcendental meditation. It's a little fruity. It's a little fruity. It's all. It's, it's not. It's not it's, it doesn't matter what another man does. I'm just, I'm just saying it's, uh, it's not for me. It's not for. We still love him uh, like we would, uh, you know, any gay person. Uh, hey, come on, come on. So my, I'm just, I just, I know he's, uh, you know, he, had, he was posting about Joseph Chazer, uh, who is very anti-gay, and it turns out he loves uh, orgies with 25 or so men. It's uh, These uh, are the, the, the two-facedness we're dealing with every day, and uh, I just don't know about him, that's all. You're talking about the Hungarian... You talking about the guy? That's yeah. right. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm very uh, hip on what's happening in the news. Grandpa, Grandpa reads both my Twitter timeline and my Wikipedia. Uh, well, I told you, that's why I know this show is horribly produced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. <laughs> it is horribly produced. But now Pete got went off to Hollywood and became a comedian and... Yeah. Oh, he's done. He's done wonderful films. I'm very. We're all very, very proud of him. Is there anything you can proud. tell him? Sometimes he, you know, he feels down and out. Is there anything you can tell? Because he was complaining to me before the show started that you know Christmas is a difficult time of the year for him. He misses you. You're no longer with us. You've been dead for 20 years. Yeah. Any any advice that you can give him? Uh, well, I, you know, things are going to look up. I'm sure Artie Lang will recover, and you'll be able to open for him again. <laughs> But you can look forward to that. Uh, the kind of stuff, you know. There's probably a deal maybe with Solazzo to put together. Uh, Grandpa Dominic Dominic sounds so much Jewier than I remember. Yeah, he does sound a little uh, a Jewy. Well, thank you. Uh, Pete has frozen up now. Oh, so it's true. You're totally right. Oh. You froze. No, he a looks little. good. He looks good, though. He good. I bet. He's freezing. It's, it must be the Botox. For the proper internet, the problem. He's got. He's got internet. Jewish is too cheap to pay for the internet service. I should be okay. It says I'm okay over here. Well, oh, no. 
Am I frozen? It says you're no, frozen. I see him perfectly. The chat says I haven't frozen. The chat okay. says I haven't frozen at all. All right, then. I thought it's you're a, frozen. I, I trust the chat. I, I always think, trust Pete, the don't, don't worry. I believe it's that Jew Feldman, he doesn't pay for the proper internet service, and that's why uh, he keeps freezing. But uh, Dial-up dial dial was good enough for my father. It should be good enough for me. Anything, any advice? Pete, always, yes, I used to say to young Pete, in 1975, I said, I said, make sure this is going to happen someday. Have the best internet service you can have. <laughs> because I, I see it, the future. He predicted that Very important. year of my birth. Tell him yeah. how to tell him how he uh, should act, and then we'll wrap it up, Grandpa Dominic. You're going to act like a man. Act like a what? A man. <laughs> Instead of what? What's wow. he doing? And a little girl. <laughs> I have COVID. <laughs> Thank you, Grandpa Dominic. Everything will fall in place. Dominic, Dominic. Okay. Yeah, that's Thank you, Grandpa Dominic. You'll come back next week? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, whenever you need me, David. Okay. I, I love it. I, I love, love, you I love all the Jews. Thank you, Grandpa Dominic. Dominic, Dominic. <laughs> That was great. What about me? That was your dead. Was the only visit's your show. I haven't heard. You're, well, maybe if you weren't frozen Not next week. What about me? So tell me what's been going on with your life. Mm -hmm. why, why? So you thought your daughter had COVID? Jeff Ross is right here. I can't say anything. Jeff Ross is right there beneath me. I'm not saying anything until he either talks or leaves. He's he's early. He's a he's a professional. I know, but it is like, like Kevin Pete. I'm enjoying the show. I was great to see your grandfather again. You don't have to. I'm I'm just a bystander. He's wow. monitoring. He's just monitoring. It's distracting. I feel like I'm looking at a more successful me with safety goggles. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a shed and he's in Malibu. That's all you need to know. Well, look at that view. We're doing this for a podcast so our listeners can't see how beautiful <laughs> Je Jeff's home is. And you have a dog, Jeff, in the he background. He has a shepherd mix of, and, and I have a, a, a cat mix. It's a cat dog. Yeah, I don't, uh, everything. Get up there. He's got a studio. It's yeah. a it's a it's a garden shed that I turned into my studio with tongue and groove cedar that everybody says makes it look like I'm broadcasting from a sauna, which hurts me. It was supposed to be a cabin esque feel, and now everybody says I look like I'm in a sauna. I'm going for cabin esque. Good, you two talk. I have to fix my internet cable. It's one of those days. So you oh, interview Jeff Ross. You talk to Jeff Ross for three minutes while I go. Uh, you interview Jeff. You take over the show. I gotta right, fix my cable. I love, I love the show whenever possible, especially when it's not just me having to improvise my way out of a bag. But when I have a superstar, talented uh, comedian and writer to join me, it's so much easier. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Jeff Ross, everybody. Jeff Ross, thank you very much for joining us. I'm so sorry the host can't be here, but. <laughs> The appropriate thing to do would be to talk about him and, and, and how you first met David Feldman first. David Feldman is a legend in my life, Pete. I'm glad you asked. 
Yeah. He is the funniest guy. We've written on many shows together. I'm a big fan of his. Um, we talk life issues all the time. And I keep telling him to stop dressing like a fucking Santa's helper's accountant. Right. <laughs> I'm back. Uh Santa's helper's accountant, by the way, what's his ethnicity? Actually, I think it might be non-binary. It might be a they. The fact that Santa has an accountant and it's Jewish is the best. <laughs> no, what, no, what is, does that hat even say? Is that from the Make-A-Wish Foundation? Or where do you get a hat? I am their spokesman, sir. <laughs> when I was opening for Artie Lang, which got mentioned earlier, uh, it was me and Nick DiPaolo. And, and I went out first, some theater in D.C. And, uh, and then I finished. I introduced Nick. Nick comes out and says, give it up for Pete Dominic, everybody. He's a Make-A-Wish kid. His <laughs> wish was to open for Artie Lang. Give it up for him. <laughs> As I look like everywhere we went, it was another Pete looks like he has cancer joke. <laughs> why I'll never get cancer just to ruin DePaulo's bit. <laughs> That's right. Ross was talking about you. What were you saying about me? It's good, good to perfect. see you, Jeff. You show I you are you are the height of professionalism, Jeff. For us, you show up five hours early for a show, kind of like. When I was working for you on your one of your television shows, I would show up, I believe five hours late. No, well, I was actually 19 hours early for the next day. <laughs> we had a lot of good times together. Yes, we did. And uh, I'm going to be here for the whole thing. Well, how, first of all, what kind of fucking show is six hours long? Is this a telethon for, for what? A better Better, better internet service. <laughs> By the way, let me just criticize Ross because he's a poster boy for the one thing you can do wrong. It doesn't matter what your shot looks like. It doesn't matter your background, your lighting, or really even your audio. The worst thing you can do is what Jeff is doing is fucking constantly moving the camera around. It just it keeps moving. He keeps right. moving everywhere. Now he's put in the fix, and then now my angst is gone. But he's Thank a star. Right. He's a star. So we, you know, we take him any way we can get him. That's no, all the more reason. All the more reason I need to get my 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 shit together on Zoom. How big of a celebrity do you have to be before the kind of the quality of your camera or audio? Seriously, it matters to some people. Like I can't believe talking to. Okay, so let me ask here. Now, are you, you know able? This is black and white. The cars. The Kardashian wedding photos. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. They love the next. So let's uh, talk to Mr. Dominic about your, your daughter's okay. I'll see you later. No, I no, stay. Guys. But you're, you're going to you, you be my co-host. You co-host. No, if me. this gets, I'll only stay if it gets me out of coming back five hours from now. Oh, well. You're going to need him in the original time slot. All right. I'll, well, yeah. you, you don't want to come back at 10. I thought we could really let loose. But whatever uh, you want, buddy. I just got I got the times wrong. So I'll just say hi to you and Pete and just and I'll come back at, at 10. We have a very strict. I don't know if you know this, Jeff. I have a very strict format on this show. You see how well produced. What is it? <laughs> we have it starts with major difficulties. Technically, that's right. The I've, seen, I've honestly seen hostage videos better produced than this. 
He'll be back. What do you do when things go? What do you do when things go wrong? I, I, that's a great question. Uh, I try not to, I get, I usually throw a fit and try to blame someone else. One time when I was at Sirius and I was broadcasting from home, somebody back in the, in headquarters, like knocked, knocked me right off the air, like pressed the wrong button. And I, I called him up and I gave him an earful. And then his boss called me up and gave me an earful. And I had to go apologize to the young boy. And he was, they were all right. And I was wrong. Right. Right. I, I re- yeah, I really like, it was a mistake. Like the way I talked to him, I talked down to him. I raised my voice at him and it's like, you can't do that in corporate media. Who, who do you, who did I think I was? Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> you know, like that kind of kind of like things happen and there are accidents. And so when you're doing most of it yourself, the way I am now, you only have yourself to blame. So often, you know, my podcast posts every night late and, and usually I'm, I get a little tired and sometimes I drink too much, although I stopped doing that. And, uh, but I'll get a text or, a million texts and, and, and emails and tweets like can't hear your guest and I'll run out here to the shed and I'll fix it. It sucks. It, you, you know, you, cause you only have yourself to blame. And I like to pretend I have a huge production team, but everybody knows it's all tongue in cheek. So I blame my assistant. I always need someone to blame. So I blame my assistant. And it's an ongoing bit about Schmeet Mominick. Yeah. I have a list of tasks to produce this show. Because I do it by myself, too. And I study my system. What does it take? What is the path of least resistance to get this show produced with as few headaches as possible? And I do a rundown of each task. So there are no choke points. And the more I practice this, the more mistakes I make. I should just that's why you can't even flip a switch and start the show, though. I wish there was just a way to flip a switch and do the show. And I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. The awesome thing is that now that almost everybody's in a similar situation, like people are producing the show, even if they work in HR at a, you know, a publishing company because they're meeting on Zoom. And so everybody's constantly dealing with technical difficulties. So when it happens, I think people are just doing like, I'm used to this. Let me let me be entertained by watching this person struggle. At least that's how I usually feel. Right. I was entertained by it. I yeah. really was. I was like, oh, because it's not me. Not my fault. <laughs> like I said, as long as I have someone to blame, I feel okay. If it's me and I feel like, oh my gosh, I'll just, I'll still blame someone because I'm a POS at times. Yeah. The younger folks who do this show, Henry Hakamaki, uh, he suggested that I should just do a show a boomer with technical difficulties where I just go live on YouTube yep. and completely screw up and ask for help. He said young people would love watching that. Yeah, my dad's doing that show. Every call. <laughs> he doesn't know I'm recording it and posting it. No, I, I'm not. But every, yeah, every single call. And my dad is where I get that, that blame. Like mm-hmm. my dad is technically he gets so frustrated that he can't do things. So he'll go to the Apple store and then blame them there. And they'll always say, sir, you didn't have, you didn't have the power on. Right. Like, oh, I turned that, he won't accept the blame. I turned it on. I absolutely did, sir. I don't know what to tell you. Well, it wasn't working for me. <laughs> oh, he uses the most. That didn't work when I did it. You didn't do that, sir. He never even, 
turn the power. And then yesterday I talked to him and he's uh, complaining about it. He goes, you know, nobody at the Apple store knows what they're talking about. That's what he said to me. Now nobody that, at the Apple store knows what they're talking about. Now that Jeff Ross, he's not here, but he's probably lurking. Yeah. Let's talk about these. Maybe. Let's talk about these pussies who get their own television shows and they just have to show up and be funny. When, when, when everything is turning to, to crap as you're producing your show, Pete Dominic, do you sometimes think of your peers who've gone on to much greener passages, passages with more green, more money, and they just show up and they just have to be funny? They don't have to worry about printing out the script. They don't have to worry about hitting the record button or the lighting or if the guest is going to. You're a one man band. And when things are going wrong, do you sometimes think of these prima donnas like Jeff Ross who just show up and they're ready? Does that piss you off? It, yes and no. Up until last year, I was that person. Really? Was, yeah, well, at Sirius, I had four producers. I, you had I, four producers? Yeah. Three. And an intern. And all I did was show up and talk in the microphone. So I, I was that guy for 14 years, really. Now I'm, as you described, and to be honest, I don't actually miss it that much because I always felt like nobody was keeping up with me. Now I only have myself to blame and I work at my own pace. I do wish I had people to, to help me and that they were well paid. That's the other thing. But at the same time, nobody would ever keep up with me. Nobody was ever as dedicated to the gig as I felt like I was always running faster and running harder. So if you're going to keep up with me, you're that type of producer, then awesome. I want to work with you. And I don't know where Ross or anybody else is, but in my experience, you know, working on lots and lots of TV shows, uh, they are often really talented people. Kind of like Artie Lang, perfect example. Never did a, a lick of work. Just showed up to Howard, usually late, mm-hmm. and just got paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and then would still complain uh, about right. you know the gigs. I don't want to have to get on an airplane. You're flying first class. You're staying in a five star hotel. I don't want you know. It's always the grass is always greener in those pastures, Feldman. Right. And so I try to stay. Uh, content. If I wanted that corporate media thing, I'd go back to it. But I don't. I'm in my shed. It's 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 pretty cool. I've been doing this show for 11 years, and it reminds me of stand up because with stand up, the easiest thing is the actual performing. Everything else, like right now, this is the easy part. My right. listeners might not agree with me, but this is this is the easy part. Because there's nothing I can do other than what I'm doing right now in this moment. And with stand-up, you would prepare. Well, you could have made that moment right there better. Though. I know. I know. Right. And this one. Right. But it reminds me of stand-up because you would over-prepare for stand-up. And then once you were introduced, you go with what's in front of you. You have no choice. You can't. It's up to you. That's why I find this thrilling. Well, it's, actually good for anxi- it's actually good for anxiety and depression. Uh, I don't know if I would go as far. It certainly helps you manage. Going live, you don't, there's no safety net. Right. Being on tape, there's a safety net. And that's, I think, the difference in choices in our lives and in our careers, whether it be TV or stand-up. Uh, I don't know who says stand-up like that. but Stand-up stand up with stand Pete up. Dominic. That's the name of your no, show. No. 
Yeah, so I think I love being live, and I that's what I did at Sirius uh, and at CNN and MSNBC. There's nothing, and obviously doing stand-up. It's the best feeling in the world to, to just know that you're nailing it in the moment. Uh, and it makes it harder almost to go to go back, to be on tape, to be able to make mistakes. But I also do love being on tape now because you can edit all the bad parts, the boring parts, the ums and ands. So I, I kind of don't mind doing that every night Yeah, because I make myself sound better. Hey, will you start coming back on Thursdays again and we'll have Yeah. And we'll have David Juskow at the top play members of your family. Because I, I loved Are you there? I would do anything that you ever asked me to do. But the 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 thing that's weird is I love Dave Juskow. I haven't seen or heard or talked to him in like ten years. And so to talk to him that way was almost <laughs> like that guy is so great and I love, he's such a great guy. And I, I just want to talk to Dave and not well have him on your friend. show. You should have him on your I show. Should. I should. I will reach out. The, 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 the real, tra- one of the many tragedies of COVID, which we're going to talk briefly to uh, Henry Huckamacki in a second, who you should have on your show, by the way, he's a immunobiologist and writes a great mm-hmm newsletter that everybody should subscribe to. We'll talk about that in a second. You should have Henry Huckamacki on your show. Let's let's say goodbye to you. You'll come back starting next week again because I've missed you. I missed you a lot, too. I thought you were mad at me. I what it's I, I love having you on the show. I love being on. You're like a, I was saying we have to wrap it up. I was telling a friend. No, somebody said to me that when you come on the the show, my show, feels like a sitcom because you're a recurring character. You have a look in your eye and it's like, I wonder what he's up to. And you live in the moment with me. You you know how to do this. I learn a lot from you by having it's you been a highlight show. of my quarantine is to be on your show and get closer to you. Thank you for having Thank me. you. And if anything can go wrong on my show, I want it to go wrong with you. Thank you very much. And I, I, I make that happen anytime. And as I always sign off now, fuck Trump, long live Dick Cabot. See you later, bud. Thank you. Let us now go to Michigan, where Henry Huckamacki is standing by. <sighs> One of those days, Henry. So we, we have a COVID test. Let me introduce you. Henry Huckamacki is an immunobiologist stuck in Michigan. He should be in Germany right now, slaying Ebola. But... Germany's loss is our gain. And Henry Huckamacki has a newsletter that everybody should subscribe to by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995. I understand you have a guest. I also understand that Grace Jackson will be joining us briefly to talk about our, but the Uyghurs in China. She wanted to respond to that. But let's get right to it. You have a guest that you're going to introduce us to. I did. I did. And he's coming in. He's here. Uh, I, I see, see him here. OK, they are here. So <clears throat> great. My guest is Kayvan Shafi. Uh, Kayvan is a philosophy doctoral student who researches the cultural underpinnings of mass incarceration. So a topic that's well near and dear to many of our hearts. And they also write about uh, and are interested in the impact of economic sanctions and also i'm going to have them briefly talk about the intersection of philosophy and hip-hop because i think that'll be interesting for a lot of your listeners david okay. and uh, Kayvon's here 
Hello, Hello. Kayvon. Hey. Hi, how's it going? It's great. How are you doing? Good. We're having one of those days. Okay. Are you able to hear? Henry, are you no, able? I just, it just froze for me. Okay, so it's not my imagination. So why don't we do this? Grace Jackson is here, and Kayvon is frozen. While we're waiting for Kayvon to unfreeze, why don't we bring in our friend Grace Jackson? Uh, Kayvon has unfrozen now. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, yes, we, yes, yes we, we can. can. Thank ah, you. Great. So, David, how do you want to run this? You want us to, to go first? Or? Yeah, you go first, and then we'll go okay. to Grace. At, there's Grace. <laughs> it's... I, hi, Grace. Let's do hi. this. Let's do this because I'm going to stick to the schedule. All right? It, it, we're 33 minutes into the show, and I am... <laughs> this is going to be the greatest show we've ever done, I promise you. So everybody, Kayvon and Henry, please stay. We're going to do 10 minutes with Grace. And that's what this segment is called, 10 minutes with Grace. Grace Jackson <laughs> is our senior international global Euro Sino relations analyst. And she comes to us from England. How are you, Grace? Hi, David. I'm, I'm pretty well, thanks. Okay. Um, it's very, very cold here all of a sudden feels like the first day of winter and we're going to talk about the Uyghurs because I want you to keep coming on yeah. the show all the time Henry introduced us to you and you are absolutely it's a it, it's just fantastic having you on the show tell me the last today is Thursday we're taping Friday show on Thursday on Monday show Professor Adnan Hussein and I were talking about a bill that passed almost unanimously in, in our Congress. And it looks like it could pass in the Senate and would ban imports, slave labor imports from China, specifically anything that was made by the Uyghurs, who are Muslims being held in detention camps in China. And now we're discovering that Calvin Klein, Apple and Coca-Cola are now lobbying the Senate not to pass an anti-slave labor bill because Apple is using slave labor in China, specifically the Uyghurs. Coca-Cola gets its sugar, apparently, from slaves in China, and they are actively lobbying the Senate not to pass the slave labor. I thought we settled this in 1865, and the 13th mm. Amendment, but I guess, no, I guess we did. So, Grace, tell us what's happening uh, with China and cotton. Well, before we get to that, I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed uh, Professor Hussein's explanation of the Uyghur situation <clears throat> on the last show. And I especially like the fact that he really drew attention to this, not just as a kind of cultural or ideological project of the Chinese government, which it is in some ways, but also that this this question of forced labor um, and the exploitation of Uyghurs in Xinjiang really 
kind of gives you a global capitalist context for this issue. And so you can see how, you know, it's not just a, a domestic issue for China, but it's something that kind of hints at the way all of our systems uh, are sort of set up to exploit whatever uh, vulnerable minority might be on the ground. In this case, it's the Uyghurs. Um, but I really appreciated that that introduction. So just moving on, today there has been a big update or a new story uh, from China or, or rather from the US. Today the US has banned the import of cotton from one of China's largest producers of cotton. Um, <clears throat> and this is a really interesting development because in some ways this is the most substantial kind of US response on this issue to date. Um, because this conglomerate that operates in Xinjiang, it's called the Xinjiang Production and Construction Core, XAPP. It's this huge, very kind of sprawling and secretive organization that's got very close connections to the Chinese government, as most kind of large scale operations in China tend to. Um, and it's just incredible the scale of their operation when it comes to cotton. Uh, I found a statistic that said in 2019, um, China accounted for 22% of total world cotton production. Hmm. Now, of that 22% for the whole world, 86% was produced in Xinjiang. Wow. wow. Which means that 20% of all cotton in the world probably this t-shirt came from Xinjiang. Wow. Um, so we have limited time. We have limited time with you today. Unfortunately, is there Islamophobia in China? Because oh. the Uyghurs are, as we've learned, they're sort of a Turkish Muslim variety of. Turkic. What did I yeah. say? Turkish. Oh, slightly different. Turkic. I, I mean, yeah, ethnically. Turkic um, and sort of trace their heritage back uh, through Persia. I but, see. Um, is there Islamophobia yeah, there is in, China. Islamophobia in China? Absolutely. Islamophobia is a global problem and has been, well, for a long time, but certainly since 9-11. And I think this is another way, this is another good lens on this issue that um, kind of draws attention to the fact that the U.S., is complicit in the in the creation of Islamophobia in China because ever since 9-11, uh, China has had a kind of excuse to clamp down on its restive Uyghur population in the name of the global war on terror. And really, there's something kind of, kind of cute. Um, at one point, China said, we're going to fight the people's war on terror. Because, you know, in China, everything is the people's something, mm -hmm. the people's republic. So they're fighting the people's war on terror. This, we, we should continue um, this. I apologize. Today is a, just turning okay. into. And very quickly, when did Xinjiang, am I, I'm not pronouncing that properly. Xinjiang. Xinjiang. When did it become a part of China? This is where the Uyghurs live. Yes, so Xinjiang is, uh, it was a province of China, now it's technically an autonomous region of China, but it was incorporated 
into China as a province in 1884. So quite late. Um, and this, I want to just tie this back for people who heard my segment on Taiwan to kind of think critically about claims, uh, territorial claims that are sort of sanctioned by history because they're not always quite as established as, as state power would like them to be. Um, that's a very short answer. That part of China, that part of Central Asia has been kind of at the mercy of big empires for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so um, during the Tang Dynasty, which was about a thousand years before that, it was also kind of partly incorporated into what back then was the Tang Dynasty. Great. But again, it gets back to this question of what do we mean by China and at what point in history? Great. Grace Jackson, how do people follow you on Twitter? Oh, I'm Grace Jackson, all one word on Twitter. You got the full name on Twitter. And, and, yeah, and, I got in early, 2009. Good. That's fantastic. Will you come back Monday for Monday's recording? And we can give you a, as can, least, yeah. a proper amount of time. Yes, and I might have an exciting guest for next week, either Monday or Thursday, if you've Fa got time. Fantastic. Thank you, Grace Jackson. And thank you for being patient with me today. We're having a lot of problems. Let's now go back to Michigan, where Henry Huckamacki, who we wouldn't know about Grace Jackson if it weren't for Henry Huckamacki, you're now going to introduce us to Kaven. Tell us about them. Yeah, so I, I already introduced Kayvon. Uh, I guess I'll lead off this introduction with uh, saying that when I when I contact Kayvon, seeing if they wanted to do the show, they mentioned that they were a fan of the show, David, which came as a shock to me because I was under the impression that nobody listened to the show. <laughs> me too. We have a listener? In any case, there's at least one other listener other than the people that are already uh, panelists on the show. Uh but yeah, Kayvon, like I said, is a, a doctoral student of philosophy who researches mass incarceration and the cultural impact of that, as well as does a lot of writing on the impact of economic sanctions. Uh, we're going to try to get all of these topics into the conversation, but I want to bring up one brief thing first. So when you said we thought we were rid of slave labor, there's another case in front of the Supreme Court right now that I think that people should be uh, aware of, which is regarding Nestle and Cargill. We, we just uh, recorded today an episode of Guerrilla History this morning, and I mentioned it on there, but I'll mention it now too since that episode won't come out for a couple of months. Uh, Nestle and Cargill are, are arguing... Cargill. Cargill, yes. The agri-giant. Yes, are arguing that they shouldn't be able to be held liable for slave labor and child trafficking. Hmm. And uh, who is defending Nestle and Cargill? Is None it other a, than Obama's solicitor general. Uh, Torcha, not Torcha, uh, what's his name? Katyal. Katyal. Really? Yes, is arguing on behalf of Nestle and Cargill, that they should not be able to be held liable for slave labor and child trafficking in West African cocoa plantations. This was the guy who uh, was so big on impeachment. Yes. He was this a guy. hero to us during the impeachment. <laughs> this guy. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that the listeners were aware of that and also get a plug in for guerrilla history at the same time. But since I've got a guest, I so think you'll be talking about that on guerrilla history. 
it, it was briefly mentioned. We were talking about what we did an episode on uh, a survey of African decolonial struggles today. And so that came up briefly towards the wow. end. But wow. in any case, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Kayvon, I, I guess let's get right into it. So sure. this question, you'll know exactly where I'm going with the question and you'll know how I, how I want to see how you answer this. Okay. What would you call it when a top scientist from a sovereign state is, uh, you know, assassinated by, by someone else? What, what would you call that? Uh, well, I have to pick my words carefully here uh, because this, this particular- nobody else does on this show. Go ahead. <laughs> this particular conversation has uh, has gotten me into a lot of trouble, I guess, uh, in recent days on Twitter. Uh, but what's obvious, I think, to anyone who has been following this story, I, I is guess that- we should mention what 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 am I referring to here? I, I'll let so, you kind of give us yeah. background on it. So what you're referring to is uh, the assassination uh, in Iran, outside of the capital of Iran, Tehran, of a top nuclear scientist, top Iranian nuclear scientist on Friday afternoon. And uh, the details of, of, of what exactly took place haven't yet been fully uh, disclosed because they're being investigated. But what we do know from reports on the ground is that uh, this guy was driving uh, from uh, his his parents, I think, uh, back toward Tehran, and he had a bodyguard or a couple of bodyguards in his car and there was an explosion on the other side of the road in an SUV that was just parked on the other side of the road and uh, it was kind of a distraction during which uh, gunmen jumped out of a car and 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 basically uh, you know um, showered these folks with uh, with bullets and and he wasn't killed on he didn't die on the scene and he later died uh, evidently at the hospital. But there has been a lot of speculation about who might have been behind the attack. Uh, and uh, what we do know is that he was on Israel's radar for a long time as a high value uh, um, target. Um, Netanyahu talked about him in his famous uh presentation in 2018 where he's standing in front of this giant screen and he's you know he's got these like million slides of documents that allegedly Mossad agents stole from uh, a facility in Iran he mentions Mohsen Fakhri Zadeh and uh, there's a lot of suspicion that that Israel was behind this attack uh, and and it seems it's not even suspicion really it seems pretty obvious that they were behind the attack just given the strained relations between the two countries and how nervous the, the Israelis are potentially getting about the Biden administration rejoining the the nuclear agreement. And they are just taking this opportunity between Trump leaves and when the next administration uh, is sworn in to kind of try to poison the diplomatic well as much as possible, right? So that's the attack that you're referring to. And, and I think I would call 
this instance of violence uh, state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, it's an extrajudicial killing of uh, of a scientist. Uh, you know, whether he's an official of the government, I, I can't confidently comment on that, but he's an ordinary citizen uh, in, in the eyes of most people. Uh, and uh, killing him on sovereign soil on Iranian soil uh, constitutes an extrajudicial assassination. And if a state um, had orchestrated this attack, which, you know, we have a lot of reason to believe that state was behind this attack, then it would be terrorism. And, you know, it would be kind of consonant also with what the Americans have done since the beginning of this year uh, with either the involvement of Israelis or the other way around, Israelis have done with the involvement of Americans uh, in, in that particular region. I mean, you know, this year started very, very... Um, Suleimani. Anxiously, yeah, for... for it was going to be World War Three. We were convinced it was going to be World War Three. Yeah, and that was, uh, of course, you know, major news uh, because Soleimani, uh, I mean, interesting enough, I'm from the same part of the country as Soleimani, and uh, this was a person that a lot of people would interact with uh, in daily life. I mean, my, my mother had, had seen him uh, when she worked at a research institute in, in southeast Iran. This was not someone who was unknown to the public. He was uh, the top-ranking military official in Iran and leading the fight uh, against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. So given that that attack was uh, was was authorized by the Trump administration, I mean, you know, they've been pretty <laughs> explicit about that. Um, it doesn't seem out of the ordinary that the Americans have given their sanction to this attack as well. Um, so Israel carried out this this assassination with the approval from their American counterparts. But it is terrorism. I mean, that's what we should call it. And if the Iranians had done something similar to an American scientist, uh, you know, we should have called that terrorism as well. We should be willing to call these sorts of extrajudicial assassinations of citizens, officials, what they are. They're acts of state-sponsored terrorism. Can I, I just want to add a oh, bit of ahead. context there, David. I, I believe it was one or maybe two days before this assassination took place. It was leaked that uh, Bolton and, uh, or not Bolton, uh, Pompeo rather, Pompeo, and Netanyahu yes. had a secret meeting. It, it was basically a leak. It wasn't intended to be a public meeting uh, or publicly known that there was a meeting, but there was a leak that uh, Mike Pompeo and Netanyahu had basically a behind closed doors meeting. And then the next day, this assassination took place. Right. As Kayvon said, there's other indicators that this was uh, at the very least sanctioned by uh, Israel and the United States. May, may I ask a question? Not, yes, yes. I, I, first of all, you'll come back when we have more time. This is. Yes, okay. absolutely. Thank you. My understanding of of this is they're creating stability in the Middle East by killing Soleimani. This is this is the argument 
the 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 center the centrist argument henry this I'm, i can't do a show that's an echo chamber i i have to give the other side otherwise we don't arrive at any truths i'm so, not saying anything but I, i'm looking at your face and if if, if, if if i don't speak what is received wisdom from foggy bottom then we're not going to arrive at any any truth so the the justification for this is they are isolating Iran right now. The American, yeah. the Americans are because Iran is perceived as a threat to stability in the Middle East. And Pompeo's plan is to have Saudi Arabia and Israel join hands. And they, there was a meeting between Netanyahu and the prince. Yes. The Iranians supposedly were behind an attack on a Saudi Arabian refinery, I yes. think earlier this year, in to because of the bombing of the Houthis in, in yeah. Yemen. Yeah. That there are w little proxy wars going on throughout the Middle East. The feeling at Foggy, at the State Department, is we have to turn the heat down and make sure that Israel and Saudi Arabia, Egypt and uh, and Jordan, UAE yeah. and Bahrain are all on the same page to combat Iranian intervention in Syria, Lebanon and Hezbollah, which this is what we're told. Hezbollah yeah. is an existential threat to Israel because they have thousands of missiles pointing towards Israel and they're getting their right. marching orders. Hezbollah is getting their marching orders from, from Iran. Yeah. So and, and Iran so, and you do have you, you do have uh, politicians who say death to Israel in Iran. Right, right. That, 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 so is there any validity to that centrist position that killing Soleimani, killing somebody who is responsible for, as we're told, Iran enriching uranium, creating a nuclear bomb? Do we want Iran to be a nuclear power in uh, in the Middle East, do we want a nuclear power in the Middle East? I know Israel has. Uh, do, right. do we want Iran to have a nuclear bomb? Uh, so I'm an Iranian citizen, uh, in addition to being an American citizen. And you're uh, going to Georgetown right now. And I go to Georgetown. Yes. So do uh, we want Iran to have nuclear weapons? I don't. I I obviously can't speak on behalf of 80 million people. There's political heterogeneity. So what what is Iran. wrong with killing? In this is what this is an American. I'm not saying this, but this is what right. Americans, what a good number of Americans think. What is wrong with killing somebody who is supposed allegedly 
helping Iran. Involved with the, yeah. So what we do know uh, is that Iran is not uh, building a nuclear weapon. Uh, and they disbanded their program a long time ago. That's um, what Saddam Iran. Hussein said. And then we went in there. <laughs> and, oh, right. Okay. And right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe the Iranians are hiding those uh, those WMDs. Who knows? Uh, but, you know, from what we know, uh, the International Atomic Agency, IAEA, I always forget what, you know, what they exactly stand for. But uh, they inspect new, uh, Iran's facilities pretty regularly. Um, and their reporting suggests that Iran is not trying to build a nuclear weapon. Um, they disbanded the program. Uh, I mean, it seems very plausible that they were trying to at some point, uh, you know, enrich uranium to a degree where they could build a, a nuclear bomb. But it seems like they disbanded that program a long time ago. And international inspectors have have confirmed what the Iranian officials uh, are, are saying. Um, so... If Iran is not trying to enrich uranium uh, to a degree where they could build a bomb, why would we kill nuclear scientists that, you know, we suspect might be affiliated with with this program? Uh, you know, there isn't really a great explanation. OK, beyond, and in terms uh, of and in terms of Hezbollah, who is Hezbollah? They're they're pretty big in Lebanon and they're pretty big yeah. in in Syria as i understand it and i've been told otherwise that i've been brainwashed or educated depending on your point of view to believe that Hezbollah takes its marching orders from Iran yes. to comp- to to create instability in Syria to prop up Assad yeah yeah to prop up yeah, Assad and keep things uh, uneasy in Lebanon right. and Israel. Is that true? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's partially true. Uh, look, Iran is uh, is a regional actor and uh, they are surrounded with American allies, uh, right? And they are well aware of the fact that if presented with the opportunity, the Americans would want uh, to overthrow the regime in Tehran. Uh, but what is know, Hezbollah have- doing? Explain to us what Hezbollah is doing on the southern Lebanon border and what they're doing in Syria and what they're doing in Lebanon and, and Nasrallah. What, what, what are his goals? So I think, you know, I mean, I don't have great insights into what what sorts of conversations, of course, are taking place between Iran's proxies and the Revolutionary Guard. But Iran is moving these pieces about uh, to ensure uh, that in case of an attack, um, they could give these folks uh, a green light to carry out, um, you know, airstrikes on neighboring countries. Uh, And I think they are just sort of trying to ensure that they have these folks in places where a lot is currently going on. But we've seen, we have seen, we we have seen uh, wars between Israel and specifically Hezbollah. Uh, Yes. I, I believe there was one in 2005 or 2006 
that some say Israel kind of lost to Hezbollah. They didn't realize how many missiles yes. Hezbollah. I mean, the, the, the understanding are, is that Israel felt violated by Hezbollah, that there were missiles landing yeah. perilously close to urban centers. Fifteen years later, one would think that Hezbollah has smarter missiles now and can do some serious damage. Is Iran yes. is Iran yes. giving Hezbollah smarter missiles? My suspicion is that they are. Yes. And uh, so why would why again, I'm just trying to arrive yeah. at, at what the truth is. So whether or not you believe Israel has a right to exist and whether or not there should be a two state solution, a one state yeah. solution. If you're both a Palestinian and an Iranian, uh, not an, if you're a Palestinian and an Israeli, if you're an Israeli yeah. citizen and you have missiles pointed at you, smarter missiles than we saw in 2005 or 2006. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you be terrified of We've seen them use. We've already seen Hezbollah using missiles. Yeah. Why would yeah. you want Hezbollah to be armed by Iran? Well, we don't. I, I, so here's here's the thing. We don't want that. Uh, I mean, you know, there the progressives in Iran don't want that necessarily. Um, and and you know, I think uh, unpacking all of this will require a little bit of time, which uh, we right. might not necessarily have. Um, but one of the things that the progressives uh, are, are, are not particularly happy with in Iran, inside of Iran, progressives and reformers inside of Iran, is how much investing uh, the, the Sepah and the Revolutionary Guard have been doing in these proxy wars when unemployment is incredibly right. uh, 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 high, when inflation is very high. Um, you know, they're... I mean, there, there, during the protests, for instance, in 2009, when, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know whether your uh, your views recall or not, but when there was this contested election, there were a lot of protests on the streets of, of Tehran. And one of the chants uh, um, that we heard during those protests was that, look, we don't want to give money to Hezbollah or right. or, uh, or these other groups. You're talking about like 2009, 2010. 2009, yeah. In the, green, the, the, the Twitter the revolution. Movement. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and I think, uh, and I think these these are internal debates uh, that that we should monitor. We should track. Um, the progressives in Iran uh, um, are are not uh, particularly keen on giving money uh, to proxy organizations that that could be engaged in various forms of warfare outside the borders of Iran. But one of the things that we have to remember is that instability begets instability, right? And uh, and and U.S.'s withdrawal from the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, um, was a pretty unprecedented rebuke to diplomacy uh, right. because that was an agreement where, for the first time, Iran uh, 
the U.S. and the European partners uh, uh, um, had agreed to come to the same negotiating table and set down a set of criteria on the basis of which Iran would uh, open its uh, uh, facilities, make you know its facilities um, available to to inspection, and also uh, in response to that, the Americans would lift some sanctions on the country, um, and that would serve as sort of a springboard for future dialogue and diplomacy, right? Uh, Including a potential conversation about Iran's ballistic missile program, which is what you're kind of referring to. They're building these high precision missiles that they're partially using in proxy conflicts, right? And of course, uh, it's understandable that Israel would feel anxious. But what you have to bear in mind is that that deal was an opportunity for the Americans to create for the first time, perhaps in, in, in more than a decade, some stability in the region to bring the Iranians to the negotiating table offer them a way out of the economic quagmire that had been uh, afflicting the country and in response also convince them to maybe contain uh, whatever they are doing outside the borders of the country and also inside in you know in their at their secret nuclear facilities right now when we, that we, deal- we, we have to I, I'm trying to keep on schedule and so okay. I'm begging you to come back. So yes, I have to bring him back. That way I can ask some of the questions I had planned, David. I know. I'm sorry. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we could. I'm, I apologize. The show. No, no, no. I, I was eyeing the, the clock myself and I was like, oh, I got to, you know, squeeze well, as much as I can. into. Yeah. I, and I apologize, Henry. And uh, let me let me just posit this and then we'll bring in Zach. And I, I want to that this is the problem with discourse in America. It's been so politicized that we forget that it is conceivable that Donald Trump may have actually had a foreign policy that succeeded for his wing of the Republican Party, that Mike Pompeo, who is a disgraceful human being, who should be frog-marched before The Hague. But we have to understand what they're thinking. and. And you you guys respond and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, The Republicans are going to say when Biden becomes president that Mike Pompeo succeeded, whether you like it or not, in isolating Iran. They pulled America out of this deal and they played hardball and they said, we're going to isolate Iran economically, militarily, and diplomatically. And whether you like it or not, Pompeo has succeeded in solving a major problem for Netanyahu, and that yeah. is the, Pal- the Palestinian problem. Saudi Arabia, yeah. Saudi Arabia did not like the way Israel was dealing with the Palestinians, whether you like it or not, what Pompeo has succeeded in doing, and we need to understand this, is he has taken Saudi Arabia's eye off the the open sewer that is Gaza. I don't want to I don't want to label it what it is, 
It is a disgrace what Israel is doing yeah. in Gaza. And what Pompeo and Trump and Jared Kushner succeeded in doing is getting the Sunnis' eyes off the Palestinians, who are primarily yeah. Sunni, and yeah. used Iran, the threat from Iran. They've created the, the bogeyman of Iran to convince Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Egypt and Jordan to stop caring about the Palestinians to be to hate the Iranians more Absolutely. than they yeah. care about the Palestinians. Whether or not you like that, Pompeo, in a very Kissingerian way, and this was a Henry Kissinger move, he succeeded. Yeah. He has succeeded. And these assassinations, whether you like it or not. The Trump, there is a Trump doctrine almost in the Middle East. They've succeeded. There's stability there temporarily, right? Temporarily. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, you know, but I think you are right on, you know, I, I wrote about this uh, a couple of days ago in the American Prospect. Um, I think the challenges that the Biden administration faces in resuming diplomacy with Iran are very, very involved. And I personally am not uh, hopeful that that will happen. And, you know, we can talk about that another time. But I think Partially, you are right. Uh, the Trump administration was very effective um, in bringing uh, some very, very uh, unfriendly interlocutors into the same conversation. And that doctrine will now kind of determine the future of what happens in, in, uh, in the next four years. We have, Henry, you David, get the last word, one, and I'm sorry word. for hogging the conversation. That's okay. We'll bring we'll bring Kayvon back because uh, the the reason I brought Kayvon on was to talk about economic sanctions. So that'll have to be for next time. Uh, what I want to just briefly mention is that when you're saying that, yeah, their strategy was successful from their perspective. Of course, they're going to say that, but we can't just extol su success in strategy for success's sake. Here's an example. The Obama administration was very successful in getting rid of Gaddafi. Mm. What happened since then? They're still embroiled in a civil war and there's open air slave markets in Libya. Those were not present before our successful mission. So mm -hmm. to hold up success for success's sake, well, yeah, you don't agree with it, but it was a successful operation. That is a very poor strategy. And well, that's it, a it, very is, easy the, thing to argue against is right. that you just pull up historical examples. Hey, this was a success. Look at what's happened since then. Well, All it's you have been to do successful is have a little for, bit of historical context. Right. It's successful for Netanyahu and it's successful yeah. for Saudi Arabia. It's not successful for the Palestinians. It's not successful. Right. And for that's Iran. the point. Right. That's the point to argue, not whether it was a success from their perspective or not. It was a success from the perspective of those that are in power. Right. But it's right. not a success in terms of the situation on the ground. Right. To be continued. Henry, I, I, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for introducing yeah. me to Grace Jackson. Thank Can you. Can I just uh, well, let me finish who thank my next few people are going to be? Yeah, let me thank you first. Okay, okay. Uh, let me thank you for introducing me to Kayvon. Uh, I want them back 
ASAP, and I and, and I was wondering if you wanted to. I know you how busy you are. I haven't even scratched the surface with you about COVID. There were some stories I want to talk to you about. I apologize for hogging the conversation. Well, you and I have to have a conversation privately to figure out uh, how how to move forward so you're, this doesn't happen again. I apologize. Go ahead. Let me plug yes. a couple of things. Henry has a Patreon account that everybody should subscribe to his newsletter. Go to patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995. He writes brilliantly about public health policy, science, and most importantly, COVID. And he is on top of COVID. You've been on top of this since we met, since February. Yeah, I'm going to be putting up something on there today. There's just a study out on uh, the success or failure of four potential COVID treatments. Hint, hint, failure, 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 failure. But I'll talk about that on my Patreon today. And do sign up. It's helping me pay for my health insurance, which right. is kind of important. And, and we're doing, uh, and Dan told me we're doing a COVID Town Squares a Saturday night this month with you and Irritable. Right. I can't keep Zach waiting any longer. May I just mention yes. my next guest, sir? Okay, yes. so next week, Alex Avenia is coming back. Fantastic. We're going to talk about uh, voter habits of Latinos in South Florida vis-a-vis the, the Cold War in Latin America. And then the week after that, the listeners were successful in pressuring Michelle Shepard to come on the show and talk about MK Ultra. You see, this is what happens, listeners, when you when you pressure guests to come on, they actually listen. So yeah, in two weeks, we'll be talking about I Michelle saw you about do MK that Ultra. with the invisible... Ne- you did that on Twitter. Wow. That's right. And it was very successful. So in two on the 17th, she'll be on to talk about MK Ultra. And Kayvon, we need to have you back sometime. David, you have both of our emails. Let's yes. work out something yes. to get him back on. Yes. Thank you. Okay. This is th- of course. I, Henry. Uh, we're, I'm going to we'll talk tomorrow. I apologize sure. for you should have. I I Hijacked it's okay. This. No, no, no. It was a great conversation. We just need to bring Kayvon back I know. to talk about Kayvon, other stuff thank as you. Well. Let us now go. Thank of you. Thank you, Kayvon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where Zach Ford is standing by, besides being an LGBTQ activist. And he used to be the White House correspondent for Think Progress. I have some questions about Neera Tandon. I don't know if he's going to answer them. He's also the press secretary for the Alliance for Justice. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Zach the poll Ford. book is completely off. I'd say that poll book is off by over 100,000. <laughs> I know what I saw, and I signed something saying that if I'm wrong, I can go to prison. Did you? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we're going to... We're running a little late today. There have been technical problems. What else is new? So you and I first met when you were covering LGBTQ issues for Think Progress, which is an arm of the uh, American. What, what is the lobbying group? Americans for Progress or Progressive? Uh, so there's the Center for American Progress, which is the C3 and the Center for American Progress Action Fund, which is the C4, the political arm that we were a part of. And Neera Tandon was running that when you were working over there in defense of Neera Tandon. Your shop was union, correct? Yep. We unionized. You unionized. So there have been, you know, Neera Tandon has rubbed the Bernie bros the wrong way. Would you like to respond to Joe Biden's decision to nominate her to head OMB, which is no. 
Okay, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Okay. I mean, I, I, I will say uh, two things that I believe are public knowledge. Uh, I was in the room when she outed a victim of sexual harassment, and I was laid off. So those are two things that I know happened. Oh, you were, la- you were laid off because Think Progress went under. Mm-hmm. But not because you were in the room when she outed a victim of sexual harassment. No, those are two separate, two, two separate, two separate things. things. When, when she brought Hillary around in 2008... Uh, but I, 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 it might have been Think Progress or the apparently she either punched or shoved somebody for asking Hillary a question. About, I don't remember what the question. Oh, her vote for war authorization. Nira didn't like somebody asking that question. She walked up and either poked at him or shoved him. Uh, how bad is that? She's a slight woman. I wasn't there for it, so I don't want to comment okay. on it. Let's let's talk about the previous conversation, and that is whether you like it or not, there will be a Trump legacy. Whether you like it or not, people are going to look back at these past four years and say. Well, he got this done. He got that done. Yes, there were kids in cages. Yes, he made life miserable for us and destroyed the planet. Can you gird your loins for a second and objectively tell us how people will look back fondly at the Trump administration when Biden is in the White House? What will we hear Conservatives saying, you know, he blew it when Trump was. What will be the halcyon days of the Trump administration for conservatives? I mean, I'm inclined to just ask, what is the value of this question? What are we up against? I mean, what are we up against? You you cannot constantly not you. I, I say to my friends. Go ahead, keep crapping on Trump, but he's built a legacy that you're going to have to fight once the Democrats are in charge. I mean, he did certain things that were either bad or really bad um, or neutral. Um, We still have to deal with the impact of those things, you know, as I am always talking about as a spokesperson for the Alliance for Justice. His judges are lifetime appointments, and there are now 229 of them that we'll have to deal with for the rest of their lives, and thus probably ours. Um, but I mean, there, there's there's a question of like what conservatives want, and we know what conservatives want, which is to do everything they can to help out their wealthy and powerful friends at the expense of everybody else, and they're still going to want that whether it's connected to Trump or not. But talking about the Trump legacy, you can't separate that from the cult of personality around Trump and the way that people have pledged allegiance to Trump and Trumpism as opposed to just wanting things that are that the conservatives have traditionally wanted. So I think that's sort of why I'm struggling with the question is, I mean, Trump's not going away unless he keels over at some point. So 
even if he's not in the White House, he's probably going to, you know, still be out there doing his rallies and and, and making MAGA a thing. That's not going to go away. And it's still going to, as we're seeing in Georgia, as we're seeing in these election challenges, still have an incredible hold over the Republican Party. It's going to be a super impediment for anybody else, like a, a Nikki Haley or whoever, who's thinking that they might run for president in 2024. Not if Trump's there, like he still has this stranglehold because of the cult of personality. So looking back on the legacy, you know, I think we're going to look at all of the policy decisions that were just terrible and, and hurt so many people, you know, things that you you know, you were talking about foreign policy. All Trump ever wanted to talk about is, hey, we moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Well, that had a lot of serious consequences and hurt a lot of people. And we'll still have to cope with that for a long time um, if we don't move it back or whatever. That's not an area of expertise for me, but just one example that comes to mind of, you know, they view it as a good thing because they support Netanyahu because he's also super conservative. But what does that tell us about Trump? I, I don't okay, know. I mean, so politically so, looking back in the history books, I think it's going to be far more about what Trump did to people than, you know, the, the hallmarks of his administration, because all he did was destroy. Right. I don't know if you and I, I think we go back. Yes, I, this podcast didn't exist during the Bush administration, but a lot of people said of Bush that. He accomplished everything he was supposed to accomplish for the people who really wanted him in the White House. I have to suspect that the the people who wanted Trump in the White House got everything they wanted, right? He was a I mean, suc- I, I, he was a I successful president for the people who wanted him in the White House. Right? I think that's totally true. I mean, like all of the Senate has done for the past two years is confirm judges and they are so happy to do it. And McConnell, even today is still advancing cloture on judges that Trump nominated, even though it's lame duck and he was, he lost, they're still trying to cram as many of them in as, as they can, because that's what they want. They want something um, that will continue to uphold their agenda. And they're willing to sell their souls to the head of the cult of personality to get it. So, of, of, of course, that's going to continue. I mean, they're they're going to just be so happy that they got what they wanted from Trump and they threw away any integrity that they presumed to have to get it. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing like it's going to be really interesting to see if Bill Barr is still attorney general through January 20th because he didn't toe the line. You know, just this afternoon, we saw this story that uh, the White House's liaison to the Department of Justice has been banned from the Department of Justice uh, because they were trying to eke out these uh, election fraud secrets to help the campaign's challenges. Like, that's that, that, that's not going along with the call of personality, and you quickly get rejected when that happens. And so that's why we still see... All these Republican lawmakers either totally silent or complicit in these totally made up election challenges because they still need Trump on his side. It's still about Trumpism. Yeah. You are the press secretary for Alliance for Justice. This is giving week, as I understand it, where people donate. So please tell us what the Alliance for Justice is and how people can support this important organization. I would be so happy to. So the Alliance for Justice has two really prominent programs. Our justice program is where we focus all of our work on judges. So the past four years, we've been very vocal in opposing 
uh, and, and resisting all of the Trump judges, uh, making it as difficult as possible for Republican lawmakers to take those votes. We did defeat a couple of them. We engaged all kinds of activists around judges who had never been engaged before uh, and really energized the progressive base around the importance of judges. So uh, we're really proud of all of that work. We also have an amazing program called Boulder Advocacy, and it gets a little wonky uh, as soon as you start describing it. But what Boulder Advocacy is designed to do is to help nonprofits who might just be Uh, as I was referring to earlier, a 501c3. They don't have a political advocacy arm, but they can still speak out and advocate for issues and lobby for causes without going awry, uh, without going afield of that that political limitation. So we we design resources and have a technical assistance hotline with a group of lawyers um, that, that provide guidance to help those nonprofits engage in advocacy and, and realize their missions to their full potential. So if you're supporting our work, you're supporting both of those really important causes, making sure that our justice system is fair and represents all people and making sure that all of those organizations out there that you also care about uh, are empowered and supported to do their best work. Let's talk about your statement of principles that came out after Biden became president-elect. In terms of nominating judges, it's my understanding that Biden can't nominate a judge without it going through McConnell, that McConnell has it's really up to McConnell who gets to be a judge. Is that a fair assessment of the situation? Uh, a little bit. I mean, it will partly depend on uh, who is chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, that has been Grassley and Graham uh, during the Trump administration. But it's going to switch, it, right? Well, uh, it, it, it will likely be somebody new um, in the new session, but it also depends on what happens in Georgia, because if Democrats win in Georgia and have the majority, then uh, it likely will be. So let's like, assume uh, let, let, let's assume and we we're going to be talking about Georgia later, but let's just assume McConnell is majority leader and the Republicans control the House and the Senate and McConnell continues to only want judges who are opposed to the rights of women, opposed to people of color, the LGBTQ immigrants, consumers. They're not pro environment. Uh That's who McConnell wants in the federal judiciary. What's to what's to you have to compromise with him. You have to you have to do horse trading, right? You have to make deals. I mean, hypothetically, there are a lot of different ways to go about it. Um, The Biden administration could appoint, you know, very moderate middle of the road folks that that might be more. appeasing or they could he could pick the progressive fair-minded qualified judges that our court system deserve and and bring the fight to the senate and make it as difficult as possible uh for mcconnell and whoever is the chair of the senate judiciary committee to say no to that um i i think there's a lot of merit to both processes you know one of the other great programs that our organization has been working on is called building the bench where we've got a coalition of some 35 uh, social justice and advocacy organizations who've been working behind the scenes to identify who are some of these really bright up and coming judges. Who are these judges that aren't white men? Who are these judges who aren't corporate lawyers uh, who will sort of look and, and, and understand the lives of the people who will be entering their courtroom? Um, there are a lot of different 
uh, options for how we can proceed. Well, let me get my arms around this for a second, because this is how pessimistic I am. I, I think McConnell will. I hope I hope I, I, I think that he hopes his legacy will be. I stopped. Every Democrat from changing the complexion of our judiciary. That, 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 that his legacy is he shaped the judiciary branch for for generations to come and that he will he will fight Biden tooth and nail on, on these judges that 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 but that, that Biden will not be able to get a single judge passed unless McConnell approves. Didn't that kind of happen with Obama? Weren't there a lot of vacancies? Didn't McConnell just leave a lot of seats open? Sure. I mean, that's why, you know, Trump has appointed almost as many judges in his first term as Obama appointed over his two terms. And that was because, particularly in the last year or two of the Obama administration, McConnell just didn't take votes on any of those judges. Uh, most prominently, obviously, we saw that with Merrick Garland uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. But there are a number of, of lower court um seats that were also left open. You know, a great example, uh, there was a seat in on the Seventh Circuit that uh, President Obama had nominated a woman of color, and the Senate kept that seat open, and instead Trump filled it with Amy Coney Barrett, uh, and then Amy Coney Barrett uh, left, and they've nominated another white guy to fill that seat. The Seventh Circuit doesn't have a single person of color uh, serving as a judge on it. So you're absolutely right. That's why there were so many vacancies to fill. And I mean, it's definitely within the Senate's power if the Republicans are in power to to do, continue doing that. But so what to, is the way around that you have at some point, right? We have to like if we just compromise and say we're not going to advocate for the kinds of judges that we need and deserve. We're, we're going to you know offer all these middle of the road, or we're going to do horse trading or things like that. That's not going to save our judiciary, and it's not going to uh, put any pressure on the Republicans that, to make it harder for them. I mean, there needs to be accountability. And here's where I can plug the Alliance for Justice Action campaign, which is our C4, where we do that sort of work. You know, we were pushing really hard against uh, Susan Collins and others to say, look, you voted for all of these Trump judges. You knew what they stood for when you took that confirmation vote. Don't pretend in your rhetoric to believe something else. Uh, and, and that's the kind of work we need to continue doing moving forward if we're faced with this situation where they're just blocking everything. Yeah. So you have a statement of principles. I would assume you helped write it, helped draft it from Alliance for Justice. What can the Biden administration do to get better judges on the benches short of saying, if you let us have this judge, you will make Pete Buddha judge the the VA secretary. I mean, that's that just seems to me we're that, that they're going to say uh, you get to have so and so on the cabinet if you take this judge. I mean, that's how I don't even think McConnell is willing to do that. So what 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 can Biden do? What are you recommending specifically that he do? I mean, I, I, I don't have the answer. That is not the role that I, I serve in the world uh, to, to know that answer. But we have we have to bring that fight to the Republicans. I think that's the most important thing right now is 
obviously bring the fight to Georgia so that hopefully everything that we're discussing right now is moot come January. Well, how do you prevent um, you? You write that we need to prevent procedural roadblocks from delaying expeditious confirmation of outstanding jurists. McConnell is the master of procedural roadblocks. I mean, he'll he'll say. No, nobody will sit on this bench. So how do you? I I don't know that there's an answer of there's some secret way to get judges through. I mean, what we're talking about is not unique to judges. We're facing a Republican Senate majority that will represent probably some 22 million fewer Americans than the Democrats in the minority who can just sit there and do nothing through the entire Biden administration if they want to. If we just sit around and and throw in the towel and say, we're not going to bring these fights to them, we're not going to force them to take these hard votes, we're not going to force them to respond to scrutiny, that they're they're holding the entire federal government hostage, then we're nowhere and and they're just going to keep doing that until they're back in power. If we bring this fight to them and say, y'all need to actually act like you're here to govern, you all need to actually take the constitution and your responsibility to provide advice and consent seriously, Mm -hmm. then we back them into the corner and it it, it has to be the long game, right? It's not just, well, they've, they defeated this judge or they blocked this particular piece of legislation or this nominee to a cabinet position. Like it's everything all at once. It's, it's all of the actual principles of leadership. Are you here to govern or are you here to obstruct and make that, make that the narrative and 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 really look at 2022 uh as the first opportunity to say hey these republicans are not here to improve america right even right now we're, we're not seeing any willingness to like provide new stimulus checks when a whole lot of people are going to be homeless because they can't pay their rent um no eviction no eviction protections right they're the ones that are responsible for that. We're the ones with ideas about how to actually help people, how to move the country forward. Uh, and if they're not willing to play ball whatsoever, they're the ones responsible for it. I mean, right. we've seen them all these other times try to, you know, hijack things like, oh, we're not going to keep the government from shutting down if we don't defund Planned Parenthood. They're the ones that constantly hold the government hostage just to you know, protect the wealthy and powerful and and maintain their agenda. We have to frame it around the entire fight um, and and not quibble over, well, they're blocking this judge or that that nominee. You write something really interesting over at the Alliance for Justice, and that is we need to support legislation to create new judgeships. We talk about expanding the Supreme Court. And talk to me about how the population increases here in the United States. It's kind of like the IRS. There are 40% fewer IRS agents when you factor in the, the growth of our population versus the, the number of people working for the IRS. If you, if you stop hiring at the IRS and the population increases, you have fewer people. You have 40% fewer people looking over our tax returns. I, th- I guess the same applies to judges, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you s- separate the political question for a second, there are just a lot of cases, both criminal and civil. And, you know, there are many parts of the country where we do not have enough judges to maintain that caseload and, and, and keep the system of justice moving forward. So 
from my understanding, there is support uh, on both sides of the aisle to expand the district and, and circuit courts to uh, address that load. But then is the question of who gets to appoint all those new judge seats that you're creating on the bench. And it becomes a very political question because we just saw uh, McConnell and Trump do this total conservative takeover of the courts. And so um, it'll be interesting to see if that support for it is still there, um, what kind of gambles the Republicans try to make to maybe expand the court, but then still not confirm those judges. Um, and, and again, thinking about that long game and how can we hold them accountable for that kind of deadlock in 2022. Right. Before you go, Zach Ford is also an LGBTQ activist. We're seeing bookends now on the Trump presidency. It's winding down. Four years ago, how were things for the LGBTQ community? How much damage has this president done? You know, and, what, and what does Biden need to do to repair it? There's an untold amount of damage that's been done, but a lot of it has been administrative. And so what's very encouraging is that this Biden administration can hop in and change a whole lot of things for the better very, very quickly. And with new Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence behind them from the, the Bostock decision this summer uh, to, to really substantiate that. So they can reverse um what the Trump administration did in education and they can reverse what the Trump administration did in prisons and what they did in employment and what they did in housing and homeless shelters. And of course the, the ban on trans people serving in the military. These are all things that the Trump administration used executive power to do, not legislation. And so the Biden administration can very, very quickly reverse a lot of that and extend some very robust protections that the queer community still needs. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been a very damaging time. There are still a lot of fights ahead. Um, there's still a lot of issues internationally that, and that pressure coming back into the United States, especially in the form of transphobia. But uh, there's a lot to look forward to right now. OK, Professor Ben Burgess is coming up. He's the host of Give Them an Argument. He's also a columnist for Jacobin. So I'll ask you this question, say goodbye to you, and then we'll segue into Professor Ben Burgess so he can give his take on this, because I don't think the two of you are going to give me the same answer. Does that mean I need to stay on so I can no, explain why I disagree no, with it? No, we'll move, <laughs> oh, we'll move on. A question with you. <laughs> uh, we talk a lot about identitarian politics and I'm seeing a lot of scorn for Biden right now because while it is being presented as the most diverse cabinet, the most diverse White House in history, a lot of people on the left are saying he's using people of color, people with identity uh, as cover for neoliberal policy. And that they, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't give a damn if you're black, Chinese, or gay, if you're a neoliberal hack, it, it's it's worthless to me. White men say that the most. I hear that from white men. White straight men say, who cares? I'm shocked. Yes. And I just want to go on record <laughs> that that uh, when I look at Joe Biden, I know that there's a five year old white male with bad hair plugs 
and Cap Teeth, who's looking at him saying, I, too, can be president one day. What is the value to the diversity in the in the Biden administration? And is it fair to say that even if you're a person of color, even a neoliberal person of color or a neoliberal LGBTQ uh, part of the LGBTQ community who's a Democrat is going to have some kind of sympathy for for leftist causes, if you're a Democrat. So here's here's what I think is interesting about that. I think it's totally reasonable to say your administration is too centrist and, and I'm opposed to that. The problem is when you conflate that with this sort of demographic concern. I, I think, you know, a really interesting example is Justice Clarence Thomas. His views are absolutely atrocious. Nobody is sitting there saying, oh, we're all better off because Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. But if you're a young black man, you can still say being on the Supreme Court is a reality for my future if I want to work towards that. And the power of that visibility and the way that that could engage so many other um, young women, young queer people, young people of color, young people with disabilities, and all of the intersections in between all of those things, uh, young religious minorities, all of those young people can see a path forward, can break through those glass ceilings, and can someday do really amazing, powerful work without all of these stupid, stupid, archaic barriers that will help you advance those more leftist causes, because those are the kinds of people that you're going to also be able to engage around those issues. So if you're sitting here complaining, oh, I I don't care if they're diverse because they're not progressive enough for me, you're missing the entire point and a really great opportunity to say, hey, I want to see all of these glass ceilings broken because in the long run, that's going to help what I believe in. Living the political to me that that when we look at Pete Buttigieg, who we do not like on this show because we're Bernie bros, but he was living the political being gay having a being in a same sex marriage is political. He is living the political every day of his life. Well, we saw like hilarious moments during the caucuses where people wanted to try to take back their votes for Pete because it was the first time that they learned that he was gay. I mean, it, it speaks to maybe their ignorance more than anything, but like here are people that, are seeing and and appreciating people that they might have automatically blocked out because of their biases before. And we're about to have a woman of color as vice president. You know how many women have been vice president? Zero. You know how many women have been president? Zero. You know how many people of color have been vice president? I think there was a a Native American vice president a long time ago. I I forget the name, but I I remember seeing somebody. So what we have to. The impact of establishing that new realm of possibility energizes so many other young people to care and and engage. It's and it's important to understand that Pete Buttigieg, who I don't like, however, being gay and coming out of the closet is a political act. Of course it is. And they are being targeted. So the work that he did with McKinsey, notwithstanding, his running for president and introducing a potential first man, 
was political, was brave, was difficult. And, and you can't just dismiss that and say, well, he's a neoliberal hack. Uh, to be continued, I, I, I want to bring it. Uh, need to see you more often. I feel better when you're on. Zach Ford is the press secretary for the Alliance for Justice, and everybody should be donating to the Alliance for Justice. And you're also an LGBTQ activist. Follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Ford. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks, David. And thanks, everyone, for your support and and great comments that I've seen in the chat, too. Oh, great. Thank you. Let us now go to Michigan, I believe, or maybe Georgia, Michigan. Michigan. We're columnist for Jacobin and philosophy professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He is the host of Give Them an Argument. Well, you just heard my question that I asked Zach. I'm hearing, and I'll be honest with you, as a Bernie bro, as a white male Bernie bro, I look at the Biden cabinet and feel I'm being played. I'm seeing all these women near a Tandon, and I'm thinking, well, you got yourself a woman. She's a person of color. She's of Indian descent. And I'm thinking, but she was not nice to Bernie. Are we missing something here? Are we, as, as white male Bernie bros, are we missing something? Well, I'm not the person to ask that. The person to ask that would be somebody like Brianna Joy Gray, who's a black woman, who's Bernie's press secretary, who's far more savage in, uh, in her dismissal of all of these people than either of us are. Right. But how important is it to... <sighs> what, do you want to respond to any of that? Well, I mean, I think the response that I just gave, I I, kind of tend to think is sufficient because it's easy to set up this narrative about how, oh, it's just straight white men who don't think it matters, uh, you know, what the the demographics are of this rogues gallery of awful neoliberal hacks that Biden is filling his administration with. But the premise is just bullshit. There are plenty of people who aren't straight white men who've been saying the same thing. Uh, And uh, and so, I mean, I, I, I feel like just having the discussion about that um, really misses the point. You know, I I think that we have, um, and honestly, frankly, it erases from the picture people like, uh, people like, uh, you know, Brianna Joy Gray uh, or, uh, or people like, uh, you know, Cornell West, you know, uh, who, who, you know, who make these, you know, who make these critiques too. you know, you say, oh, they don't count. The only people, you know, the only people who count, the only people who we're going to talk about or focus the discussion on are straight white men who say these things. Everybody who says exactly the same things, who's not a straight white man is just somehow like, well, okay, yeah, sure. Maybe there are a few of those, but whatever, right? Let's talk. Yeah, most people who say these things are are straight. Then again, most people are straight. Most people who say these things are white. Then again, that's the majority uh, of the country. Most people who say that representation does matter are white because most of the country is white and most liberals are okay. white. Okay, so, so let me... Let- so I, so, so, so I, I guess I would just like vigorously object to the framing about how this is like a straight white male thing to not see that representation in which neoliberal hacks rule over us is, uh, is important. And I think that that's just not true. And really, I think the thing that's most telling is, is frankly, you know, all due respect. I mean, this is the first time I've ever heard somebody say that Clarence Thomas uh, was a representational victory. Usually liberals don't, you know, don't say that, right? Usually, uh, you know, they, they'll say, oh, but that's different because he's Republican. 
Uh, usually when you say, oh, if Colin Powell had ran as the Republican nominee and he'd become president, would that have been a great breakthrough? I say, well, no, because uh, he's Republican. Or Sarah Palin had become the first female vice president. Would that be important? And they said, no, no, no. But, you know, be, but, uh, that, but Sarah Palin is totally different because Kamala Harris is a pro-choice Democrat, to which I would say, okay, but now we're back to arguing about the right thing. Right. You acknowledge. Right. You're granting that it's very important that it doesn't matter if somebody if you have the representational victory, if it's attached to a bad political program. We're just arguing about what counts as a bad political program. And you think that the distinction uh, between, you know, supporting Medicare for all or opposing Medicare for all, supporting continuing the American empire versus supporting winding it down. You don't think these are important distinctions. I do. Fair enough. We can have an argument about that. But that's what the argument is about. It's not about whether representation matters. Of course, representation matters, all, all, be, all else being equal. But uh, the, uh, the question is, is all else equal enough here? And I would say no. Okay. And what about living the political? If you just and then we'll move on because I want to ask you other questions. Pete Buttigieg, who we despise, but yeah. he is living the political. Is there any argument to be made that your identity is political? And that- I mean, it's political in the sense that if you're being discriminated against on the basis of it, uh, that's a political issue. Uh, but uh, but of course you know uh, Pete, you know the same would be true of any log cabin Republican uh, that they uh, that they face you know discrimination. In fact, much more so because they face it much more openly you know within their preferred political party. Uh, so if the if the question is do we think of homophobia as a political issue? Yeah, of course. If the question if the question is does homophobia or homophobic discrimination being a political issue and a really important one, which it is on both, does that mean that just being gay, right, that by itself makes your candidacy somehow admirable or supportable? Uh, and and I would say, you know, I, and I am a straight white man, but I think many people who are not straight white men would also say uh, that... Um, that no, right? You know that that's that that's that's not enough to make somebody's candidacy admirable, uh, admirable or supportable. Uh, that uh, that if somebody you know if somebody you know look if we had uh, if we had a gay Republican uh, you know uh, presidential candidate, which honestly is not all out of the question, and I would not be shocked if it happens soon at this point uh, historically. Uh, you know Milo. Uh, was uh, you know was 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 one of the big spokesmen you know for for the far right recently uh, the in the Netherlands you know uh, back in uh, back in the early two thousands the leader of the far right party was openly gay you know that's something that hasn't historically been possible given how homophobic the right has been but I think we might be getting to a point where it could it could absolutely. Uh, you know, it could absolutely happen. Uh, and, and if it did happen, I think we'd say, yeah, look, if homophobia is being directed against that person, that is bad and that is a political issue. But I think we can walk and chew bubblegum and say that it's also the case that uh, that they're um, that they're winning, you know, would would still be a bad thing. You know, that that uh, well, let me let me push back their let politics. Me, let me push still bad. Let me push back here. <laughs> Uh, if I were Jewish in the 30s yeah. Yeah. and I was living in Berlin yeah. and there was a Jewish minister of propaganda, uh, wouldn't that be the one thing I was thinking about more than anything else? Presumably not. I'm sorry? 
Uh, presumably not. No, I think I'm, I think in that circumstance you couldn't care less because. Well, they, no, I'm saying no, I'm saying that alternative history that the Holocaust didn't happen. I'm saying Hitler comes well, to well, power. The, the Holocaust happening or not happening is a big deal. But if the uh, but if if the Holocaust happened, but like one Jewish person was declared an honorary Aryan or something and appointed minister of propaganda. Uh, I don't think as a Jewish person in Berlin at that time, uh, I don't think I would derive any comfort from that. Okay, so what I'm saying is we don't know how this is going to end. Hitler comes Uh to power and there is identity politics at play in the Reichstag. And is somebody pounding a table or something or are you typing? No, it's my 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 dog is uh, is scratching at the floor. Oh, okay. Just so I know what the sound is. if we had identity politics in the Reichstag yeah. and Hitler was being reined in by the Jews, the LGBTQ, the Catholics, the gypsies, and he was forced to, as a Jew, I'm scared. I yeah. wake up every morning in Germany and I see anti-Semitism on the rise. Suddenly, I mean, I'm not worried about uh, invading uh, the, I'm not worried about the Anschluss. I'm not worried about the Sudetenland. I'm worried about the rising anti-Semitism. I'm worried about my kid getting yeah. beaten up in school. I don't have time to worry about inflation. I'm a Jew in Nazi Germany. I'm a, a gay person in Nazi Germany. And suddenly I see a Jewish minister of propaganda uh, wouldn't yeah, that be the most that, important? Wouldn't that be the most important thing? That would be political. That because I think I, I think I think you're loading the dice. I think it's an inaccurate analogy, and here's why: uh, because in that case, I think this is the this is the switch, right? In the analogy, in that case, we care because we think it has policy implications. We think that. Uh, you know, we, we think that if there's a uh, if there's a Jewish minister of propaganda, either that they'll exercise their influence uh, to uh, to stop uh, anti-Jewish laws from being enacted, uh, or maybe even that the fact that he was appointed in the first place is an indication that Hitler is not going to pass those laws. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about Biden appointees. When we talk about Biden appointees, I don't think I've ever heard anybody claim. Uh, if if you want to, I mean, you'll be the first uh, that uh, the the policies that are pursued, they're going to be pursued by black Obama, by black Biden appointees are going to be any different than the policies that would be pursued by white liberal uh, Biden appointees, that the policies that are going to be pursued uh, by uh, by by gay liberal, um, you know, Biden appointees are going to be any different than the policies that are going to be pursued uh, by uh, by straight liberal Biden appointees. Now, if you thought that there was some issue of gay rights, anti-discrimination, you know, um, you know, racial justice, if you thought there was some policy that would be different because of one of these people, then sure, I would agree. You know, that's 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 something, you know, that's something that I care about. And then we can balance it against other areas in which they might be terrible. But, you know, that's something that maybe I could get excited about. But if uh, if you think that the but if you're thinking the policy is going to be the same, it's not not only is there not going to be anything life and death on the level of the Holocaust happening or not happening. But I don't think anybody's even claiming that there is going to be some sort of executive order having to do with anti-discrimination or something like that that will happen because of one of these appointees, but that won't happen without them. So I think that would be, you know, the big, 
you know, the big disanalogy, you know, between the cases. And I guess the last point I would make about this is that I think that you're only representing, um, you know, I'm feel like I really being much of a, you know, much more of a jerk than I usually am. No, I love this. This is great. I've always wanted, I want to argue with you. The host, you're the host of give them an argument. And, and, uh, I love this. I, I would love to. Uh, oh, okay. We could flip oh, okay. size if you want. <laughs> sure. Well, we can do that in a minute. But I was just going to say that the um, that that I think that um, I think that you're also only presenting half of the dynamic here, right? You're presenting, you know, the people you know because they're your friends because they agree with your politics. You know that that are they're my friends too. You know that not, maybe I'm one of them. Uh, that uh, who are are being dismissive, but I think the context for that uh, is all of the centrist liberals who are saying, "Guys, isn't this amazing and exciting?" And in fact, who win Biden appointees are criticized for policy reasons, right? Strictly because their policy preferences push back against that by saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe that you claim to be an ally." And yet here you are applying political purity tests to uh, to object to somebody who's a black appointee, a gay appointee, et cetera. Right. So I think that the people who are primarily, um, you know, raising these issues are the people who are using it as a shield against political criticism. And then people are reacting to that by saying, no, I don't care about that. I care about their policies. But I think the context for it, the, the original thing are people who are centrist Biden supporters saying anybody who's objecting to the first black woman being appointed to this position or that position with national security or the CIA or whatever, uh, you know, is, um, you know, is, is a racist is, you know, is, is not being a good ally to, you know, to black women. Uh, and then people saying, no, but that's not why we're objecting to them, right? We're objecting to them because of their records and their policy preferences. Neera Tandon. She's been accused of being a fiscal hawk. She's going to be the new, she's, she may not be the new head of the OMB. I don't think she can get past every Republican Senate. The, the criticism against Neera Tandon is that she's a Hillary appointee, basically, and that she's a fiscal hawk. And yet she disassociated herself from Obama when uh, he wanted to make the grand bargain that she's been on record saying that Medicaid, Medicare and Social Security are not should not be on the table, although then she said it should be on. Yeah, the she, table. She, she's, she is definitely on tape advocating Social Security cuts. It's not that hard to find those clips. Right. And so is Biden. Yeah. I mean, you'll, I mean, I, I might I might shock you here, but I don't like Biden either. Right. Uh, what about his Council of Economic uh, well, I mean, I, th- I think I think just sticking with Nira, right? Okay. Uh, so, so I think there I think there are two issues there. Uh, one is her, you know, her record uh, in um, in her in real life, you know, in her job, you know, at uh, the, the Center uh, for American Progress. Even though it is a yeah. it is a product of the the Clinton Foundation, they do believe they do espouse workers' mm-hmm. rights. They they take money from the oil people, but they're pro environment. They they talk about 
increasing food stamps. They support Obamacare. I mean, they it's not like they're the Heritage Foundation. No, they're not. They're not. The, they're not the Heritage Foundation. They've t- taken lots of progressive positions. They've also uh, taken some pretty bad positions. See above. <laughs> Uh, re social security cuts. See, uh, you know, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, they like Obamacare. You know, not so crazy about Medicare for All at the Center uh, Center for American Progress. Uh, you know, you should look at what Nero was saying. You know, when there was on uh, the uh, the platform uh, committee for uh, for the Democratic Party. You know, when she was leading the drive against. Uh, endorsing Medicare for all. You also mentioned they took money from oil people to put a slightly finer point on it. Uh, they've they've taken uh, tons of money from uh, from human rights uh, human rights abusing uh, oil states. You know places like the UAE and uh, then yeah, I, 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 I think there should for damn sure if she's going to be appointed to anything. I think there should be a congressional investigation on that. What did they think they were getting for that money, and did they get any of it? Uh, and uh, and I think that also, by the way, while we're on the subject of oil and money, one of the things that she's been most criticized for uh, is uh, is when uh, Obama was uh, was bombing Libya, which she was all in favor of. Uh, she's a hawk uh, that uh, she uh, she suggested uh, that uh, that we should steal Libya's uh, Libya's oil money to pay us back, you know, for uh, for the trouble of overthrowing the government. Uh, so that seems pretty uh, that seems pretty despicable to me. And it's also worth mentioning that after all of the years, you know, I mean, I think this is the least significant thing on that rap sheet. But after all the years of that, uh, we've constantly heard about Bernie bros. Will Bernie denounce, you know, the toxicity of, you know, of his, his worst online supporters? Neera Tandon was Hillary Clinton's worst online supporter. She tweeted she t- like her, you actually count up her number of tweets and even though she's been on Twitter for a shorter amount of time, she's tweeted more than Donald Trump has. That gives you an idea. She's somebody who does, you know, four in the morning, angry personal tweet storms all the time. Uh, she's uh, she's somebody who is one of the most savage, you know, critics of, of Bernie. There's there's every anybody who has any who's like a progressive who's got a significant online presence has probably got their, you know, uh, their, their near attendant run ins, which is also one of the things, you know, if you want to talk about what's reasonable or unreasonable about uh, progressive criticisms of Biden picks, uh, I think you also need to talk about the other half of the equation, which is that Biden appointing near attendant to anything, never mind the OMB, uh, is a giant and very calculated middle finger to the Bernie wing of the party. I mean, it's an end zone dance. We beat you. Now you guys have to bend the knee. You have to do whatever we want because given uh, Sanders is, uh, you know, position. Uh, what you know, has he done? Chair, to play, as, what as has he done chair, to play kind of? What, what is, has uh, Biden done to, to, to play? Well, I, was, I, I was just going to say, right, given uh, given Sanders position on the budget committee and the fact that Biden is appointing her to the OMB, what Bernie Sanders is being asked to do, and I'm sure he'll do it because he's done everything that Biden has asked him to do, you know, since uh, since he dropped out. Um, and, you know, we can talk about whether that's a good strategy or not, but that's what he's done uh, is, you know, he's he's gone out of his way to show what a team player he is. So I'm sure he'll do it. Uh, if if Biden sticks with the nomination, that Bernie Sanders would have to be the one to shepherd the nomination of this bitterly anti-Bernie Twitter troll uh, who uh, who uh, who Biden just appointed to this. So, oh, if because uh, so, yeah. he would be 
uh, if yeah. if banking uh, he's yeah, the and, ranking and the, banking yeah given yeah. given the yeah given his committee position you know he's the person who would, who would who would normally be in charge of that process and again unfortunately i don't see bernie you know not doing it i think he'd probably think it was beneath him you know to uh, to refuse to do that is she a sacrificial uh, lamb uh maybe yeah i mean that's uh, that's that's possible um you know, and she is course, a lightning rod for both Tom Cotton, called, the Republican called her despicable. She is a distraction. Yeah. Maybe Biden is using her. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he is. Although whoever he replaces her with is going to be worse. I think we can be sure of that because they'll be like, well, you know, uh, Nero was too far left, you know, for uh, for the Republicans. So we have but we to, are uh, hearing we are, we're hearing Biden. He said yesterday that his first hundred days, he's going to go full Keynesian. He's not going to worry that he's not going to be a deficit hawk, that he's going to spend us out of this pandemic. Is it a Nixon goes to China moment? Is he surrounding himself with a rogues gallery of budget hawks who you know, we need a strong military to go meet with Mao Zedong. Do you need to surround yourself with deficit hawks to rack uh, up budget deficits? No, uh, I think that, uh, you know, is that the reality on the ground, though? Is, no. is that what Biden might be thinking? I can't rack up deficits unless I have the, the full throated no because 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 i don't because one that's not going to help him how would that help him uh if you're going to uh, if you're going to if you're going to if you're planning to pursue a policy no you do not you know uh nixon uh you know nixon did not prepare for his opening to china uh by finding the most hardcore anti-china hawks that he could to fill up his his administration with well, is it I, wasn't, I, I don't i mean you were bombing I don't know. I mean, you, you. I don't know what. I would assume yeah, well, that Henry okay, Kissinger okay, he was, he was would, bombing, but that's but that's not a personnel thing. It's not like he was. It's not like Nixon was filling his team uh, with um, with super hawks and then doing super dovish things. He was doing super hawkish things in some areas, you know, bombing uh, Cambodia, uh, and uh, but you know, but he was also doing this uh, this opening to China. But again, I don't think he was he was finding people with a record of being really opposed to U.S. engagement with China. Because that's generally not what you do. I don't think that, you know, if you're going to uh, attribute some sort of 12-dimensional chess strategy to him, which, by the way, you shouldn't, uh, I think that the left spent way too much time wasting its time in the Obama years trying to come up with these stories like like the one you just presented me, right? Trying to come up with some sort of narrative that we could tell ourselves about how really Obama is playing the long game. And turns out that he's not. If you, you know, anybody had any residual sense that he was playing the long game, you can check out the first volume of his memoir that just came out. Okay. Uh, you know, what, what, what we saw is exactly what Obama is. He really is that deeply centrist uh, figure who, uh, who's, who's only, you know, had no particular, you know, radical ambitions. Who basically right, what, what about a Reagan his, goes to... His, what about a Reagan goes to Reykjavik moment where he sat with Gorbachev in Reykjavik? Now, Reagan certainly surrounded himself with yeah. anti-communists. He, he called Russia an evil empire. And a part of the lore, the legacy, the lie about Reagan is that Star Wars, he outspent Gorbachev on Star Wars. And because of Star Wars and because of 
saying things like, I'm going to outlaw Russia. He was able to go meet with Gorbachev and Reykjavik. And nobody said he was selling this country out. So is it conceivable that on that on that analogy, uh, you know, Reykjavik happened in 1986. So uh, so on that analogy that, you know, that that Reagan, uh, you know, spent um, spent 1981, 1982, 1983, 1984, and 1985, uh, doing aggressive military buildups, uh, you know, funding terrorists in Nicaragua, uh, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, doing the most demented, uh, you know, aggressive militaristic things imaginable, and then went to Reykjavik in 1986. So on that analogy, Joe Biden would spend his entire first term and then some uh, pursuing austerity, uh, and then in his mid-second term, uh, he uh, he would go to Reykjavik uh, with the budget, uh, and he would do uh, anti-austerity and stuff. You know, he would he would become very Keynesian. Well, what happens? What happens? Okay. Term. What happens and, if he? And, and I wouldn't count on Obama on, on Biden making it to a mid-second term. Okay, uh, usually Biden making it to a mid-second term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what are you going to do if Biden keeps his word? He just said the first 100 days. I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll be very happy. I mean, what, what do you mean? What am I going to do? I mean, I think if somebody if somebody says they're going to do something and everything about their record and everything about the last time and everything about the last time a similar political figure was in office tells you that it's not going to happen. But then it does happen. Then I'd say, yeah, hooray. Sometimes, you know, sometimes very unlikely things happen. Hold a parade. But I wouldn't recommend uh, you know, spending the next however many months holding your fire on the off chance that something incredibly unlikely is going to happen. What do you say to those who maintain that on foreign policy, Biden is going to be a hawk, but that he's been an incrementalist domestically, that he's picking a cabinet that is far more left of center on domestic issues than Obama brought in in 2009. So we're seeing an exercise in incrementalism here, right? Uh, We are seeing, you know, Yellen, uh, who, you know, a lot of people are on the fence. Her as Treasury Secretary is probably a little more progressive than his bringing in Geithner as Treasury Secretary who was part of the Bob Rubin cabal the, that that we're seeing slightly more progressive nominees on domestic issues. Is that a fair statement? Uh, it, it probably is. But let's also uh, take a step back here and think about the context uh, that uh, the Obama economic team uh, was a uh, was a disaster. But, you know, yeah, I know there was a recovery, you know, very, very slowly. Uh, and very, very, very unevenly spread. Uh, uh, at, you know, the gap between the rich and the poor steadily rose for the eight years uh, that he was in power, uh, and that's why we have Trump now. Um, that they uh, that uh, that Trump would not be president uh, if uh, if that wasn't the case. If he actually had delivered in some significant way, and now uh, we are in the middle of a hydra head of unprecedented crises. You know that there there is this. Uh, that there is this uh, catastrophic global pandemic that by the time, you know, by the end of February, some projections are saying, so after Biden's only been president for a few weeks, you know, uh, he, uh, it could reach uh, half a million uh, deaths uh, in, the, uh, in the United States. Uh, and, 
and the and we've had you know a horrible economic fallout from that on top of a situation that was already dismal which again uh, is a big part of why Trump is president. Trump is president for a lot of reasons, but if you subtract that, I don't think it would be the case. Uh, and so, you know, the house is on fire and you're saying that, oh, we're, um, you know, our plans, you know, for, for rearranging the furniture are slightly more ambitious, you know, than they were 12 years ago, you know, when, uh, when, when the fire hadn't started, but there was a lot of flammable material uh, trucking around. It's like, yeah, sure, incrementally it might be slightly better, but you're talking about a slightly better team being brought in in the middle of a situation that's about 10,000 times worse. We have to wrap it up. I cannot keep Dr. Hershenfeld waiting. Okay. So uh, is uh, so so. But before Dr. Hershenfeld, like I've got a bunch of things to say about my phone and how why I was having such a bad you know connection last time. Can I say that for about <laughs> a half an hour? We, I was trying to get you for our Thanksgiving show to just call in. Uh, Professor Ben Burgess is host of Give Them an Argument. Everybody should uh, listen to Give Them an Argument. Pick up, uh, give uh, them. Prof- can, I, can I ask the professor something? Sorry. Yes. To, hey, professor. It's good to see you. I just, I'm sorry to bug you. On That's Ethan Hershenfeld. He is, the, he is the son of a psychiatrist and an yeah. academic oh, comedian. Huh? Professor, I just wanted to know, is the stuff you were just talking about, is, is any of that stuff on the final? because <laughs> i was i was kind of tuned i was kind of paying attention but yeah. if it was on the final i'll get the notes from somebody else okay okay yeah, you should do that follow okay. uh, ben burgess professor ben burgess on twitter at ben burgess correct that's that's your twitter <laughs> handle listen to give them an argument and read him over at jacobin we only scratched the surface let's next week we'll argue something else. And I'll end this. I know how to end every argument. Uh, (laughs) Professor, you hate America. Tough, but fair. All right. (laughs) Thanks, David. Thank you, Professor. (laughs) All right. Well, let's continue this. Uh, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a psychiatrist. I'm I'm really sorry to keep you waiting. And we'll just go a little longer. uh, My previous patient was having a uh, crisis. I never do that, by the way. The hour is the hour. Really? Sacred. It's sacred. It's punctuality is is holy. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. And I and I don't look that sorry. But can I ask you a question? I I mean, I can tell when somebody's sorry. I'm I'm sorry. No, your time is very valuable. Can I ask you a question? Yes, Ethan, the, but Ethan is obviously a, your son masturbated as a child because right now he's literally shaving his palms. So doesn't everybody do that? I wasn't a you chronic masturbator like you. you. Go out with your hairy palms in public. What's the matter with you? <laughs> go ahead, doctor. On this program, yes. When, you know, we all march to the same drummer. Do we believe? in the idea that politics is the art of the possible? That's a great question. Uh, I'll I'll answer that honestly, because we are in the deep, dark time of the year, and everybody I know is depressed and worried and not happy. And they're worried about their health. They're worried about their money. They're worried about their loneliness. That 
I hate to say this, but in December, I need hope. And I have to believe that Biden, I have to believe that Biden is going to pull us out of this. Yeah, me too. But my point is that you might have preferred somebody much, much, much more progressive, but maybe only somebody centrist could have gotten the monster out of the White House. I am afraid to admit that I right now agree with you 110 percent. I agree with you 100 and I hate not that I don't hate agreeing with you. I hate being a a centrist coward who looks back at November 3rd and says, look what we're up against as a nation. Look at the idiots that we're up against. And Bernie, I just don't see how Bernie could have. I, I think that that if Bernie won. Trump would have gotten more support from. The industrialists in claiming voter fraud, don't you? But I don't think Bernie would have won, even even if he was. With, with all his, his good deeds and good intentions, what if only Biden could have won? Do you think Ralph Nader did the right thing? Well, Ralph, I, I would assume Ralph supported uh, uh, Biden. I mean, 20 or 30 years ago. Yes, I do. Won. Yes, I do. Really? OK. I it was don't. different. Uh, it, it was a different country. It was unimaginable. Uh, that, that I don't think anybody knew how craven the the Bush the Bush family was, and how how deep their roots went into the Supreme Court and the political machine of Florida. But that's a whole, Ethan. You want to answer that? Yeah, I um I I I was in a real funk then in 2000 leading up to that. So that entire situation is a blur to me. I just remember I ran, I was driving across country in a tiny Honda and I ran into Al Gore in St. Louis. He was just finishing up his rally there. And then a few hours later I was in San Jose, California. And then a few hours after that, I was back in Brooklyn and I, what do you mean you ran into Al Gore? (laughs) I was driving across country to a gig and I pulled into St. Louis for a pit stop and there was like a whole Democratic rally. It was an Al Gore. It was that that summer. They were, you know, it was August and they were. Uh, so but I, I my point is, I, I, I I'm just trying to give some color commentary to my ignorance. I, I, I was so out of it. I woke up in December and they were still counting votes. And uh, so I'm going to get a lot of pushback, Dr. Hershenfeld, from myself for saying this. But it's okay. December. I think there are are forces that are aligned that had Bernie gotten the nomination somehow, although those forces were aligned within the Democratic Party to make sure that he didn't get the nomination. Uh, If the country is lurching in one direction, I don't know how. I don't know if Bernie, uh, I think he would have been destroyed right now. If he, if he were the president-elect, I think they'd be destroyed. I think he could have 
One, uh, because he was speaking to the same people Trump speaks to. Possible. I don't know for sure. But as far as the pushback from yourself, I would say one of the fundamentals of being fully human is being able to recognize your own internal conflict. I think people are difficult to work with. And that that includes organizations and political parties. There's no such thing as a, a utopia. And that facts on the ground uh, prevent us from pursuing our platonic ideals that we have to keep Speaking those plat- utopia. Did you ever dine at the utopia diner on Amsterdam and 73rd? No. Back in the day, it was a dump. It was just ironic. What a dump. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have a question. So Sam Cedar, the host of the majority report sent me these pencils right and they say the majority report left is best i'm losing it bro hit pause these are great but i have never seen pencils oh those are carpenters pencils they're they're called carpenters pencils yes and you sharpen them with your knife and you keep them in your in your belt along with your drill and your knives and all that other stuff that's what those are yeah Oh. They give them away at like certified lumber, like the Hasidic lumber dealer in Brooklyn. Lumber places give those out. That's what those are. I don't. I don't know what a carpenter. I sent him an angry note. Yeah, they're great. I can't yeah. regift these. I thought. Go ahead, Doctor Hershenfeld. They're also called bribes. Bribes? Yes. Why should anybody send you anything? He's, They're bribing you for some reason or other. He's sending me a gift that I was hoping to re-gift. And I sent him an angry note saying, I, I didn't know that these were carpenters. Now I feel like a fool because I said well, to him. Send them up here. I love those things. Yeah. I said to him, I'm going to re-gift these, but I have to buy like some weird pencil sharpener. I'm losing money on this gift. But uh, now it's I, for I, whittling. It's just for whittling. If you like to whittle, that's the pencil for you. Okay. By the way, you know the thing about Sanders, you know how he got so interested in single payer, single payer, single payer. Back in college, I was a single player. <laughs> Thank you. How are most people dealing with this time of year? There's something innately depressing about December, isn't it? Let me tell you this. I love this time of year. The second the calendar hits December 1st, I am all about the Christmas calendar. The weather outside is cloudy. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. I love these songs. I could listen to these songs all day. I guess I'm alone. Okay. Dr. Hershenfeld. (laughs) I have a serious question about the holiday season. Sure. Seasonal affect disorder. Yeah. The the days are getting shorter. The nights are getting longer. December 21st is upon us. Mm -hmm. And because humans are resilient, they they invented, even the pagans knew, to make this a a special time of the year. Home and hearth and gifts and presents to deal with the, the terror of the sun disappearing. Exactly, yes. So how do you explain Australians? 
I, I, and they're all criminals. I don't think there's anything to explain. Exactly. And we have Australian listeners, but they're celebrating Christmas as, yeah. as the days are getting longer. Seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. It's not nearly as prevalent as people imagine, but there are people who are extremely sensitive to uh, the disappearing of the sun. There are people who can be cured by one of those um, lamps that replaces the sun and just sitting in front of it for 20 minutes every day. And there are even some people who are so sensitive to it that they become manic from sitting in front of those lamps. So it, it clearly is a real thing. I have got one lamps. I have one of those lamps on my desk in the '90s. I was, I was, yeah. um, you know, I thought that the, I thought I had that seasonal affective disorder. Right. So I sat in front of the lamp. It turned out I was just miserable. The sun, <laughs> the lamp. But but that, exactly. So most people have all sorts of psychological associations with this time of year, and it, it, they don't have what this term seasonal you know what time of year really used to get to me at the time of year to this day it's like it haunts me it's like an echo of misery back to school like early mm -hmm. september those words back to school that was the most depressing and then when it would line up with the high holidays yom kippur and synagogue and back to school just find me a cliff <laughs> i mean that time of year sucks so hard by the way a song that people don't know is actually middle eastern in in, in origin speaking of 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 the yule the yule tide uh fa la 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 it's a song about falafel <laughs> people, you know what people are not aware of that i They're saw not aware that, of that tweet of yours yeah. it said fa la 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 up right no, it said fa la 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 full. Well, whatever it said, I pushed translate, and it said in the Hungarian it means fa la 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 up or or something. Oh, like that. oh. So well, thank you for ruining my joke. <laughs> so if oh, no, no. you were talking Hungarian, you didn't even know it. Yeah, our our bodies chemically though because of our circadian cycles. And so there, there are hormones that work against us this time of year too, unless you're in Australia, right? But sometimes right. it's not a memory of Yom Kippur and, and school. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an actual hormonal problem, perhaps. Yes, sometimes. You, you know, by the way, you know how you make a hormone? I know, yes, I do. <laughs> We're not going to do that. No, no. <laughs> that was a joke in my high school. Yeah. Yeah. I, as I get older, yeah. I'm going to ask this question to Ethan. Yeah. Because I'm older, I see time moving very quickly. When December approaches, it used to really upset me. It feels like it's forever. But I know that March is half a blink away. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed this with people talking about, you know, I'm not, I don't think I have the virus and I'm, I have, I still have a roof. Uh, my father used to say this too shall pass. 
He was talking about a kidney stone, but he was this too. This too shall pass. This too, as you get older, your your sense of time is more acute, so you're less prone to the the immediate uh, the things that are scary in the news each day. But when you're younger, you you think it's permanent, right? Right. Oh, that was Ethan's question. Okay, take. No, um, I was distracted because I switched. Uh, I, I switched uh, to speaker view, and I was seeing a close-up of David. Usually, I watch us in, in that. Oh, I apologize for that. No, 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 no. But the older very, you get, I, what yeah. I don't understand is the older you get, the less frightened you become, and supposedly the happier you become, even though you have more to be frightened of and less to be happy about. Why are people happier when they're older? I know because they, I know I know why. For me, it's it's it's, it's be, it, it, you you get to know the world a little more and you get to know yourself a little more. And so you might have things in real life that are potentially scarier that are closer at hand like death and illness, but that yawning cavernous terrifying future of the unknown is gone that to me was the the horror of being in my 20s just i don't be- understand that i see my mother my mother's never been happier and i'm yeah, thinking my, what do you have to what do you what do you have to be also, i'm sorry my parents are also happier the older they get yeah Explain that. Why? Before I ask your father. They've seen they've seen it. It's I feel like it's just a sense of knowing priorities, knowing what the important things are um, and being able to focus your attention on those and forget the stuff that really just took up 85 percent of your attention when you were in your 20s and 30s, specifically like that, that business of trying to compare yourself to other people. I think that's the real pain and suffering of youth comparing yourself to other people that's interesting dr hershenfeld that makes sense doesn't it completely makes sense but i would add to that hopefully there's some achieving of wisdom with age where you can think about what really matters at least i think most people gain a little of that and then there's also the issue of your passions which drive you nuts, you know, like in, in, in Greek drama, what, what gets everybody in trouble? Their passions. But as you get older, you have ways of, of controlling them, not being driven by them. They probably biologically uh, diminish somewhat over time. So, that makes a person much more comfortable in his skin and he can make better decisions. Ethan. Yes, sir. I never read the trades. Just, you know, never read Variety, never read. Uh, now I, I, it's part of my Apple subscription, so I'll just read the headlines. Everybody in show business is younger than my kids i've never seen anything like this they're all it's like all of show business it's 20 somethings i pick up people magazine it's 20 somethings 
Yeah. Now, is that a form of control? Is is that pushed upon us so that all of us feel we can be replaced? I think, it's ca- I think it's capitalism. I think the, the, the studios and the networks look at the marketing and they decide that that demographic is the most valuable for advertising dollars, 18 to whatever. And so they just they want to promote people into positions that are the most visible who are in that age group. I think that's what it's about. But they've done studies. In fact, CBS 20 years ago found out that older people have the money that you should be advertising to older people. But somehow the networks decided, no, 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 you you want to get people when they're young because once you get them hooked on a chewing gum, they never stop chewing that gum. Dr. Hershenfeld, why do we see 20-somethings on TV most of the time? A couple of people slip through the cracks, but it's mostly people in their 20s. Um, this reminds me of a question I've thought of a lot, and nobody ever gave me the answer to it. It's sort of related. When I watch MSNBC, you see ads for medications and for insurance and for cars with lots and lots of people of color. Yes. In advertisements. When you watch Fox, which I've never done, do you see these are they or are they lily white? Do they make a whole new set of advertisements for Fox? Do you have any idea what the answer is? Uh, I don't know, but I, I have noticed that, that and you're touching a third rail here. If you watch MSNBC, you tr- you see all white anchors except for Joy Reid. And then right. you cut to the commercials, and the only people who seem to have their act together are, are women and people of color. Uh, and and it present if you were to look at America through the prism of advertising, you would think there are no white people in America. But you see, the, the, um, the these people who put young people all over the place and on TV and, and wherever they do a lot of market research. They're not flying blind. So they must be on to something. Maybe I think of George Burns, George Burns was so cute and so funny and so everything. And everybody loved George Burns. But how many, you don't see many people like him around anymore. Everybody. Well, I'm actually, that's exactly the career path that I have planned out for myself. That's, for that's what I'm doing. So I'm just starting okay. to hit my stride. I'm planning my 70s and my 80s are going to be, that's going to be. Uh, but is it, is it a form of control? Because uh, I guess we're all afraid of getting older. So that if we see a young person enjoying a product we associate youth with the product so why do you call that control why not just call it advertising well well isn't because i think advertising lets madison avenue off the hook i think madison avenue tries to control us they try to make us think a certain way and women end up killing themselves 
through starvation, you know? I think they try to get us to buy shit. That's what they're really into. And they're really good at it. And it's, it's terrible. It's terrible for society. It's terrible for individuals. But I don't know that they want to control us other than how we spend our money. Right. Well, Ethan, isn't it a form of control to, to convince people to, to think a certain way about themselves? To, to think, if, if you turn on the television, everybody's happier than I am. Nobody's miserable. Nobody is... Uh, I actually find that it, find it a turnoff. I, I, I feel like I'm one of those people who's pretty immune to advertising. I know a lot of people think they are, but I think I really think I am. Oh, what happened? You're getting a, a call from Marriott. You've been put on a list for a, a two-week vacation paid for. I keep For some reason, every phone call I get is from Marriott asking me. My number came up, and I've won a two weeks in the Bahamas to sample one of their... Because, a time because people want you to go away. <laughs> Oh, that's all right. I, I, what I was going to say is I would love to see ads that, that portray people moping. Yeah, they used to. And they regretting, used to. Regretting, moping, uh, in co- consternation. I feel like that's much more interesting to me. I'm ne- I don't buy any of the, the ads. How can people be so excited about, about any product? It's just I don't, I'm not buying it. I'm never buying it. Right. And they yeah. did use... I mean, I watched Mad Men and they used to bring in psychiatrists and psychologists who studied the mind and uh, to manipulate us. Well, I'm sorry to have kept everybody waiting. Let's bleed into any holiday message, Ethan. What would you advise people? I want to say a peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. It's a little thing I wrote, and uh, I wanted to share it with you. Now um, I have some bad news for Doctor Hershenfeld. Uh-oh. Uh oh. We're doing. We tape this show on Thursday nights. Now Christmas Eve falls on a Thursday, and New Year's Eve falls on a Thursday. I require uh, notice uh, three years in advance if somebody wants the night off. They have to write to me three years in advance. So am I to assume that you will be with us for Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve? Do I look like the kind of guy who's going to be trimming his Christmas tree? By the way, we we actually might have a tree. I mean, I think we're having a Christmas tree for the first time in my life. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Right in that corner. It's going I'm right there. We, yeah. And as far as New Year's Eve... Yeah, I consider that the worst holiday. I agree. Right next to Atlanta. You rather do Yom Kippur. You rather do the Kol Nidre service again. Yeah. Then, uh, all right. Thank you, Doctor Hershenfeld. Let's thank thank Doctor Hershenfeld. Thank you. I I apologize. I seriously, I feel terrible that I kept you. I Reverend, you should you should feel terrible. You have no idea how hard this is. Yes, I do. but may I segue? I mean, may I? Uh, yeah, you introduce. You, I understand you brought with. Let's do it like yes. Joan Embry. I brought the Reverend you, Barry W. Lynn. 
Uh, no, no, I didn't bring him, but he and I are hosting a thing. You gotta, you gotta put this on your calendar. 7 p.m. Sunday, December 13th. We're co-hosting an event for MVP Movement Voter Project. Go to www.movement.vote. That's movement.vote. And they're doing critical work with grassroots political organizations around the country. But right now they're focusing their efforts and their dollars on Georgia for the two runoff races, January 5th and uh, support movement.vote and um, come to our event because there's a fantastic special guest apart from the Reverend and myself, there's Reverend, do you want to tell us who the special guest is? Absolutely. Guy Davis, a blues musician extraordinaire, is going to do a few songs with us. Uh, she, He is the son of Ossie Davis and Ruby D, the great actor-activist from the African-American community, stars of lots of programs and lots of social activism in the 50s and 60s and on into the early 70s. So I'm very happy he's going to join us. And uh, I'll tell you what's not going to join. This is not going to join us. This is an audio podcast, Reverend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Easter Bunny? (laughs) It's a a rabbit that voted. He said, I voted. I see. Let's talk about the races in Georgia. The white people versus the African-Americans. Those are the two races. (laughs) We have Purdue and mm-hmm. Loeffler, they are the worst of the worst. They, they refuse to stand up to Trump when Trump calls voter fraud. We have somebody from the Secretary of State's office, a Republican in Georgia, saying to the President of the United States, somebody's going to get killed. It's enough already. The Secretary of State, a Republican who certified the election in Georgia, says that there are nooses showing up at election workers' homes. They, they need police protection. You have this lawyer named Lynn who is saying boycott the January elections if you're a Republican, don't vote. We keep hearing of this Republican crack up. Will, will it manifest itself in Georgia? Will we see Republicans staying home? What is it? I do not believe. No, I don't believe that that's true. I think this is an illusion. And I think that uh, we better be prepared for assuming that uh, all of these little family squabbles will uh, dissipate and that they they will come out full force against change. And and certainly uh, the two Democrats represent change over these few people who are not just they're not just bad politically. These are two of the most corrupt people to represent any state. I mean, these are the worst two people in the United States Senate representing one state. And I'm talking about worse than Wyoming. Right. Right. Yeah. Let's start with Purdue. Tell us why Purdue is so bad and who's he running against? Well, Purdue is is running against uh, Raphael Warnock, who is the principal minister at the church that Martin Luther King uh, and Martin Luther King's uh, grandfather were pastors for down in Atlanta. And uh, Purdue is a man who simply cannot ever 
explain why it was that he is so good at trading stocks at just the right times. And, and just yesterday, it was determined that he has traded more stocks than any other member of the United States Senate in the past year. He buys, he sells, and he always seems to be involved in some kind of conflict of interest. That is that he's on a committee that represents some product or some industry that he is, happens to uh, have stock in. And, and, and Kelly Loeffler is, um, she's worth $800 million. She's the wealthiest United States senator. She ran started running an ad this week in which an African-American woman, I, I literally have to say that I am not making this up, is talking about how we need someone with the business expertise of Kelly Loeffler in the United States Senate. And then she says something like this. She says, uh, Kelly Loeffler knows how to make payroll and knows what it feels like to need a paycheck. That is bullshit. Right. She doesn't need, she doesn't know how it feels to need a paycheck. That's what most of the people in Georgia need, but she doesn't. And right. it's just outrageous. These ads are so bad. They're going after uh, Raphael Warnock because he knew uh, of Barack Obama's old uh, minister out in Chicago, Jeremy uh, Jeremiah Wright. And Jeremiah Wright was became controversial for reasons I, I know him. I don't know why it was so controversial. He was just very far to the left. Well, and he always God bless America. God damn America. God damn America. That's what the man said. But no, I mean, I think that the, the other thing that's important, these seats are so important because if this gets to be a 50-50 split, not only does... Kamala Harris get to break ties on bills, but she also gets to break the tie on who is the head of the United States Senate, who has become the majority leader. So we will. Right. <laughs> and he I, is better. I have a humor. Yeah. I, I, I got a fact sheet on Purdue knowing that we were going to be doing this. He is the worst of the worst. Uh, these are some facts about him. 19th wealthiest member of Congress, worth up to $42 million. His stocks and bonds and mutual funds are trading actively right now. He claims to have put his money in a blind trust. This is not true. He is trading actively. He attended a coronavirus briefing on January 24th, 2020. As we know, they knew on January 24th what we were up against. After the briefing, he called his broker and began making trades. He bought stock in drug makers. He bought stock in makers of personal protective equipment. He sold stock in um, Caesars, the, the, the company that uh, owns all the casinos. He knew people were going to be staying home. They weren't going to be gambling. He bought stock in DuPont, which makes personal protective equipment. He bought stock in Pfizer. He uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. He even bought stock in Netflix right after 
put $50,000 worth of stock in Netflix because he knew people would be staying home. Sure. Craven. And and there's no way he will ever admit that he's corrupt. No, in fact, he has ads up now where he says he was completely exonerated by, guess what, by the Justice Department, the most corrupt Justice Department since Richard Nixon, arguably more corrupt than what it was during the Nixon administration. And then also, he he was exonerated, he says, by the Senate Ethics Committee. The Senate Ethics Committee does, I think it only has six people, and by rule has to have three Democrats and three Republicans. But one of the Democrats is is Chris Coons from Delaware, who stands, I can never understand what he stands for at all. He's not going to rock the boat with a fellow member of the United States Senate. So he was cleared of both of these, uh, by both of these institutions, both of which, in my judgment, are completely corrupted. Both of them. Right. Well, people should go to your event. When is, when is it again? It is uh, Sunday on the 13th of December at 7 o'clock Eastern time. And I believe that Ethan is prepared to give out uh, his personal email so that people can contact him and get our fancy flyer. Here it is. Also, I will be giving out carpenter pencils. Wow. As a, <laughs> a gift, a gift with purchase. Yeah. So my email address is E-H-B-A-S-S at gmail.com. That's E as in Ethan, H as in Hershenfeld. And then the word base or bass, if you like to fish. So ehbass at gmail.com. Send me a message and I will send you the official complete invitation with the link and the password. Please attend. And it's really not about how much you give. It's about giving something. Um, The organization would probably tell me that that's not true. It is about how much you give. But I really believe that it's about... Um, more and more people getting involved. The beautiful thing about this organization is that they are nimble and they're persistent. They're not all about a single election or a single election cycle. The analogy that they like to give in their little spiel is the sandcastle analogy. We're used to these elections where everyone gets really excited and donates whatever they can to a single candidate. And that's a sandcastle because the morning after election day, that whole organization is gone. Mm -hmm. That campaign doesn't exist anymore unless you're Donald Trump and you fold that campaign organization into your greater criminal organization and keep raising money. But most people, that's a sandcastle that goes away. So what MVP does is they're supporting grassroots local organizations that are going to keep fighting for progressive causes in young and predominantly um, black and brown communities to keep pushing for progressive candidates. Um, And that doesn't go away. So no, no matter what happens January 5th, the dollars that you give to support MVP um, are going to pay off in the long run. Because, you know, if you listen to Stacey Abrams, which she talks about the way Georgia turned blue in, in the Electoral College for, for the presidential campaign. Now, that stage was set 10 years ago, 15 years ago, eight years ago. All of that grassroots work, grassroots work they, they do it pays off eventually. It seeds and it's fertilized and it's watered and then it comes to fruition. So it, you just you got you, you keep supporting it over the long, the long haul. So MVP. Sunday, December 13th, 7 p.m. on Zoom, ehbase at gmail.com. Please come join me and the Reverend and the Blues Man.
Guy Davis, thank you. Amazing. If you live in Georgia, this could be the most important election of your life. Right now, close to 9,000 Georgians have died from the virus. Something like uh, 390, 400,000 have been diagnosed with the virus. And you have two senators, two Republican senators representing you who don't care. They don't care. No, they don't. They, 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 they don't care. You know, something has developed just the end of yesterday that is of interest to me. There's a lawyer in Florida named Bill Price. Bill Price. And he was caught on a videotape a few days ago giving a speech to a bunch of Republicans in Florida telling them to move to Georgia. Not really to move to Georgia, but just to say that they're moving to Georgia and establish something like have a a post office change of address. And he gave the name and address of his brother who lives in Georgia in a place called Hiram, Georgia. He gave the guy's name and his address. And he said, that's where I'm saying I'm going to live. And then I believe that would be called, would that be voter fraud? That would be voter fraud. But then people called. So, but then uh, when this little videotape was released, he said, as so many people do, I was just kidding. Yeah. I was just joking. And then they call my brother and he calls, they call his brother, Hiram in Hiram, Georgia. And the brother says, oh, yes, my brother. He's just kidding. But the good people at Channel 2 in Atlanta, Georgia, decided to go to the registrar's office in Georgia. And guess what? They found that one day after he made that speech on video, he actually had registered to vote in Georgia. And in fact, also sent an affidavit certifying that he was a resident of Georgia. That's the kind of crumbs that support Kelly Loeffler. But there's proof. There's proof of voter fraud. Voter fraud. It's a. It's abs- it's, finally proof it's so that, much. that voter fraud. Let's, let's, let's sue. Can't <sighs> they? Isn't that? Aren't you supposed yes. to be prosecuted for that? Well, there, he, apparently, Mr. Price is being investigated uh, by Georgia authorities for this possible criminal behavior. And you're right, David, the, the much as Brian Kemp is a horrible governor and an idiot and he stole the, the gubernatorial election from Stacey Abrams, but even he and the secretary of state, who, who you also mentioned, uh, they do kind of take these things seriously at some level. They, and I think that if Mr. Price uh, is determined to have committed voter fraud, I suspect they will try to charge him with committing voter fraud. But they never really do. They never they never pursue these people, right? No, 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 they do. It's usually not this blatant, though. You know, it's usually somebody tries to get, they, they voted and then they go into the polling place and they say, oh, I don't have my, uh, I forget, I don't know. They make some argument and then they accidentally vote a second time. You're a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. You're a lawyer. Yes, he can. The The Wall Street Journal, for those of you who are listening, the Wall Street Journal has a story entitled, Can the President Pardon Himself and His Entire Family? Can he? 
Yes, I, you know, I, I, I know a little bit about pardon law and uh, because I was, um, I helped to draft the Jimmy Carter pardon of war resistors to the really? Vietnam War. Yeah. And, but the important thing about it, he can certainly pardon his entire family. This so-called preemptive pardon, most pardons are preemptive. Gerald Ford, when he pardoned Nixon, pardoned him, even though Nixon had not been charged with any federal offense for any criminal activity at the federal level that he may have committed during the time he was president of the United States. Very broad, very sweeping. Uh, but he could do that. And in the case of the Vietnam draft movement, um, there were about 15, 20,000 people who had actually been convicted of violating the Selective Service Act. They burned their draft card, they refused induction or whatever. But there were 100,000 or more people who just feared that they might be under indictment or they might be indicted, but they hadn't ever heard from the Justice Department. And those people were all pardoned also. That's a preemptive pardon. It means you can't go and uh, go prosecute someone at a later date uh, for something that they did. And it pardons, um, the question of whether you can pardon himself, uh, he says he unquestionably has the power to do that. And uh, in a moment, really the only uh, moment of agreement, I think he's right. I think he's right. But he- I don't think there's anything in the Constitution except by certain belabored explanations that say he can't pardon himself. Pardoning, there, there, there are two stories regarding pardons. One is that the Justice Department is looking into whether or not Trump is selling pardons. Like, we yeah. have to look into that. We know he is. Right. And the other one is that Giuliani wants a pardon. And now it's said in order to give Giuliani a pardon, you would have to enumerate the crimes he committed. But if you're getting a blanket pardon, you don't have to, right? You do not have to do it. You don't have to enumerate anything. You can give a blanket pardon for any offenses that uh, may have been violated, any statutes that might have been violated during the tenancy of... um, a period of time. Right. I should mention the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is a lawyer, an attorney, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. And besides being a lawyer, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of is it Christ. Is that how you pronounce it? It is Christ. Okay. Christ. So you're a lawyer um, and a minister. And looking at Bill Barr, did he surprise you at all? No. The past couple well, of weeks, mean, has he been a more honorable attorney no. general? By He said that there's no evidence of voter fraud. Yeah, but that doesn't make him an honorable man. That just means that occasionally he tells the truth, like those notorious clocks that are broken, but nevertheless correct twice a day. Now, Bill Barr is a really a, a, a quite horrible human being, and he has been for a long tenure that he's had in the United States government in various Republican administrations. But the fact that he looks, there is literally no evidence 
there is these lawsuits that have been filed are literally frivolous. They are they are without merit. They are without evidence. And uh, I was looking into you know you asked me about a couple of weeks ago about disbarment. And I think people like the aforementioned Mr. Price, that's a kind of thing that ought to get you disbarred. And then there are other things. Just uh, two days ago in the Washington Post, almost every former president of the District of Columbia bar, uh, as well as the CEO of the, of the bar, um, signed a letter in which they suggested that the canons of professional ethics needed to be applied. They didn't name names, but listen to what they said. I I wrote this down. This is what they said. Lawyers have an obligation to refrain from undertaking a matter for a client when the lawyer knows that the purpose of the lawsuit is purely political and lacks concrete factual support or plausible legal merit. And all of these lawsuits around the country that are being filed by uh, uh, by the what's left of the legal team for uh, for Trump are frivolous. I mean, they'll, they'll have these hearings. They just had one two days ago where people come and testify before some little group of legislators and, and talk about what they saw. They say, I, I was there and I, I, I could barely see because I was so far away from where they were counting. But what I did see was like, the boxes being moved in. I'm sure that they took some of the ballots out and, and I'll bet they looked and saw that they were ballots for Trump and then and they threw them away. This is, not, this is not evidence that you can take into a court. The first day I was in law school, somebody said the following. He was teaching criminal, Sam Dash, who was actually- He was, a con- the, he was the Watergate, yeah. uh, uh, Watergate. Democrat- uh, Council. Council and the impeachment. I think he defended Clinton in the impeachment, right? I think he was involved in it, but I don't right. think it was the principal guy. But the first thing he said in teaching criminal law, he said, when you're a lawyer and you go in to see your client for the first time, just don't even take any notes. Don't bring a notebook. Don't write anything down. Just ask yourself this question. If I heard this story, would I believe it? And if you don't believe it, <laughs> cheer up. The jury won't believe it either. Let's talk about pardons. Let's get back to pardons. Yeah. Bill Barr was attorney general for George Herbert Walker Bush around this time of year when Correct. he was a lame duck and started pardoning his cronies, his contragate cronies and people like uh, Weinberger, who was defense uh, secretary under Reagan. Uh, Bill Barr did all the pardons. Now, if he's on the outs with Trump for saying no evidence of voter fraud, if Bill Barr is shown the door, who does the pardons? Because can Trump just say you're pardoned and there's no? Well, or does he need the Justice Justice Department? They're in the Justice Department. There is specifically a pardon attorney. That's all she or he does. And uh, presumably they would kick it up to whoever becomes the acting attorney general in the event that Barr is asked to leave. 
But they've got plenty of people over there who can do that. And it's really not terribly difficult. All you need to do is uh, have the president tell you who to pardon, for what offenses, or a general pardon. And uh, there, there are forms for it. And you just fill out the form, and the person's pardoned. There are no, le- there are no legal repercussions. There are only political ones. For example, Mark Rich. I think Mark Rich was prosecuted by Giuliani when he was a a federal prosecutor for dealing with Iran. He was at, at, I think Mark Rich made illegal trades. He violated the boycott against Iran during the Clinton administration, during the Carter administration. And Mark Rich got a pardon from Clinton because he was married to a, a singer who was friendly with the Clintons. But there were investigations into that, congressional investigations into that pardon. There were congressional investigations into Gerald Ford's pardon of Nixon. I believe he even had to go before a a hearing. Yeah, on Capitol Hill. But those were just political repercussions. There's nothing anybody can do to reverse a presidential pardon, right? Can a president, can a new president reverse a pardon? No. The the pardon, if it's granted, it's granted in perpetuity. It's always there. Now, you don't don't stop being a felon. If you committed a felony and get pardoned for the felony, if you're asked on a job application, have you ever committed a felony, you still have to say yes, but then you can put a little footnote, uh, but I was pardoned for it. But you're not pardoned for future crimes. You cannot be pardoned for. And you also can't be pardoned for things that have purely an economic effect. In other words, uh, just two days ago, uh, Ivanka Trump was here in Washington. She's always here in Washington. But she's uh, she was called to testify to give evidence in a case involving a charity. And this was brought not by the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, but we in the city, we have no representation, but we do have our own attorney general, an elected position. So he calls her in and here are the facts. Uh, she, as you may remember, ran the it, uh, the, the inauguration, inauguration was, committee. Yeah. And uh, this is a, a nonprofit, by the way, nonprofit. And it has certain rules that it needs to uh, abide by. So our attorney general said he found it astonishing that so much money was being paid for the use of the Trump Hotel during the inauguration. How much? I mean, like they, at one point they were getting, uh, they even have this number right in front of me. I probably don't. Um, the, the average cost of renting the ballroom at the Trump Hotel is something like $10,000 for a day. They charge $75,000. Um, it's like $3. They charge $3 for a glass of water at Mar-a-Lago for the Secret Service. That's right. It's damn good water. <laughs> it's really, it, it, you, know, you don't have it. There's no soot in it. There's no rust in it. Uh-huh. Uh, that costs more. That's $4. Right. 
Right. But, but no, there's nothing you can do. That's the thing about the pardon power. The good and the bad is you cannot do anything about it once it has been granted. I can only find, I think, one one state case maybe where there was evidence that the that the uh, pardon was purchased, that there was bribery involved in giving the pardon. And I believe that that pardon was overturned. But that was a state pardon, not a federal one. Well, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, and most importantly, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of... I, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly. Christ. It's, been ten, it's only been 10 minutes. I hope you can remember. The United Church of Christ. Excellent. I got that right. Excellent. Can you plug? Have you done, yes, before go. you leave, I'm leaving. Before I leave, have you had one of those tests where you, you're given a certain number of words at the beginning? Yet the ones that Trump aced. Have you ever taken those? Uh, I'm, I'm ripe for one. I'm right. Well, they're very interesting tests. Have you I had one about? I had one about a year ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Plug yeah. the gig one more time, please. All right. Yes, this is something that uh, Ethan Hershenfeld and I are doing with special guest uh, Guy Davis from the blues community, the son of Ossie Davis and Ruby D. And we're going to do a benefit for the purposes of helping to fund the Movement Voter Project down in Georgia to support those two very fine Democratic candidates to replace, shall we say, the worst two senators currently serving in the Senate, uh, Mr. Perdue and Ms. Loeffler. It's going to be Sunday night at 7 o'clock, December the 13th. So it's not this Sunday, next Sunday, December the 13th, 7 o'clock. If you write to Ethan uh, at the... Uh, E-H base, E-H base at gmail.com. Oh, that's it. You came back. You came I, back. I wondered, I wondered who was. All right. The Reverend so Barry, it. follow the Reverend Barry W. Lynn on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn and go to barrywlynn.com. When is your next sermon? Well, I don't have a sermon. Uh, I don't have a sermon in the near future. Okay. That doesn't mean I don't want to be invited. Okay. When we come back, we will be joined by... Dr. Jennifer Verlin, and we have some exciting news to tell you. We're back in three minutes. Where's my Roy Where's my Roy Cole? 
Welcome back. Thank you. That was the music of Professor Mike Steinel, Merchant of Chaos. Where's my Roy Cohn? Joining us in, I believe, North Carolina is animal behaviorist, author of Raised by Animals, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Hello, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm really excited because we have a big announcement to make. We are doing one of our first benefits for the Center for Great Apes. We're doing this Saturday night, and this is going to be fun and important. And I want to be careful here, because once I start talking about the Center for Great Apes, I lose it. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, this is a hard one, because, and we're going to be hopefully doing uh, these benefits uh, for a long time coming. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Here's how we're. Here's oh, how we're. Ahead. Yeah. Here's how we're going to do it. Uh, this is going to be different. It's going to be pay what you want. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the pay per view button. We're only selling a hundred tickets. We know everybody is asking you for money. We know that it's December. You're being hit up by every charity plus your landlord plus your health insurance we know times are tough so for december this is a pay what you want and we're raising money for the center for great apes we're also going to be doing this live on youtube as kind of like a telethon we're going to try to zero out their amazon wish list the center for great apes has an as a, a Amazon wish list. The apes need 
many things. They, they need peanut butter. They need a sandbox. They need swings. We'll talk to Dr. Jennifer Vertolin in a second about what the Center for Great Apes need. So we're going to have fun Saturday night. We're only selling 100 tickets to come into the Zoom room to get up close and personal with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin to talk about the great apes. And then on YouTube, we'll be live streaming this, asking everybody to go to the Center for Great Apes and donate money or go to their Amazon wish list and let's try to zero out their Amazon wish list. I have to warn you, if we start showing pictures of these apes and start telling their stories, you're gonna give all your money to the Center for Great Apes. You gotta be careful here, because yeah. once we start telling you that there are other charities besides the Center for Great Apes, I'm warning you, if you continue to watch this, you will zero out your checking account and donate all your money to the Center for Great Apes. I'm, I'm cautioning you, if, if you're under the age of 18, get permission from your parents before you commit any money to this incredible organization. You've been fairly warned, duly warned. Hello, mm -hmm. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Hello, and I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, do this event on Saturday in support of of the Center for Great Apes, it's a charity very, very close to my heart. And I actually donate 10% of the proceeds of everything that I do or sell um, to them. So um, I would do more, uh, but I, I also have to buy groceries. Yes. So this is my way of helping buy a little extra for them. Get yes. a little bit extra for them. We're going to talk about the Center for Great Apes. You've been duly warmed. Go to centerforgreatapes.org to learn more about the Great Ape Sanctuary. As I understand it, there are a lot of apes, specifically chimpanzees and orangutans, who have been used in circuses, who have been used in movies and television shows, or have been adopted by idiots and used as pets and they have been rescued and there's a sanctuary. Tell us where the sanctuary is and what the mission statement is for the Center for Great Apes. So um, the Center for Great Apes takes care of chimpanzees and orangutans. As you said, many of them coming from the entertainment industry, ex-pets um, that were, were unfortunately purchased. It's not illegal in all states and uh, provides them a safe haven. And it's, it's located in central Florida. And I, when I was a, a young babe in the uh, undergraduate education world, uh, and I'll, I'll tell the full story on Saturday of how I came there, um, I started volunteering. And at that time, it was located in Miami, Florida, at the, behind uh, Parrot Jungle. And, um, and a lot of people came through Parrot Jungle in those days, including someone on your team. So it, it Frankie turned out C. I might have, yeah, I might have given the presentation about the apes to her 
um, third grade class. <laughs> so, so this has been around for a really long time. I won't say exactly how long, <laughs> um, but a very long time. And, um, and I, I was part of it at the beginning and I've seen it grow. And the, the person that, uh, started it, um, had, was my first female mentor in, in, in who to be and how to be and move in this world and create community and give service and um, find a way to make a, a real difference. If I can't stop everybody from owning exotic animals as pets, I contributed by, by helping to provide care to, to those um, and now trying to do my part to continue. Um, it's pretty expensive to... Uh, house and care for chimps and orangutans it it costs like about without individuals that have special needs which there are few at this sanctuary um it's about thirty thousand dollars per eight per year okay i i I have to let me interrupt you for one second please yeah the benefit is this saturday and it is at 9 30 p.m go to davidfeldmanshow.com hit the pay-per-view button it'll take you right to the event bright page and it's pay what you want if you want to pay a dollar pay a dollar if you want to pay a billion dollars pay a billion dollars i have to warn you and i'm being serious because we had a production meeting yesterday this stuff is going to get you and uh, we're going to try to zero out their amazon wish list i'm going to for our listeners, you're not going to see this. I'm going to spare the listeners to our podcast, the visuals, but I'm going to bring up one of the apes and you tell me, and I have to, if, if we have anybody under the age of 18, do not send any money or buy a ticket until you get your parents' permission because this is, who is Knuckles? We're looking at Knuckles. Is he an ape, an orangutan? Who is Knuckles? Well, so all of these are apes. So remember way back when, apes don't have tails, monkeys do. So that's how you can always tell the difference. So this is a chimpanzee. This is Knuckles. I've known Knuckles since he was two and a half, roughly. He has cerebral palsy. He is one of the special needs apes at the sanctuary. And... um, and uh, this sanctuary is exclusively chimpanzees and orangutans. And Knuckles, uh, when he came and, and he had cerebral palsy, uh, there was a lot of therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy um, by human physical therapists and occupational therapists. And um, a lot of work went into getting him uh, more mobile, and he is paralyzed on one um, side of, of his body, uh, one arm, I believe. And I, I, I'm going to say he's got to be 20, 25 maybe right now, That's maybe right. maybe 20, I, 20. So I met him, oh gosh, probably, and it, it had to be 1999. Um, so that was 21 years. Yeah, so he's got to be 23 or 24. And how long do they live in captivity? Well, in a captivity, they tend to live longer than in the wild. So uh, chimpanzees in the wild, the oldest, I believe, was Flo. That was one of the uh, uh, chimpanzees that Jane Goodall studied at Gumby. And she was the sort of K-1 
character of many of those documentaries and gave rise to a couple of dominant males. So she died at 46. I believe the oldest female chimpanzee in captivity was at uh, Lion Country Safari, actually, in Florida. Um, I forget her name, but I think she died in her mid-60s. Okay. Let's bring in, because I was just talking to Michael's sister today, Brooks. Mm -hmm. This is an ape named (laughs) Brooks. Yes. And uh, if you're just listening to this as a podcast, you're lucky. Because who is Brooks? Look at that face. <laughs> who is Brooks? So, so Brooks is also uh, uh, an, another orangutan. I mean, I'm sorry, another um, chimpanzee. And I don't know Brooks as well as some of the other ones. Um, and so all of them have their stories um, listed there. And um, Hollywood and- Entertainment Baby. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is an example, right? Of there's many, there's some of the uh, chimps and orangutans that you might've known from different uh, movies or, or shows are, um, are at the sanctuary now and, and they were either retired there or um, were brought there for, for other reasons. And so, um, what happens, and this is the case with Brooks, is in those cases, they don't have a lot of interaction with other chimpanzees. And so there is a learning process that needs to happen to teach them they are chimps, to learn chimp rules. And, uh, and this is really hard. And it's interesting. Who, now, I was reading over at the Center for Great Apes that... Some of them turn into the alpha chimp. They they they're born alphas, and then they have to be eased into that position. Well, so personality has a lot to do with who tries to be in charge, right? We we can see that from people, um, and I will say that Brooks was when he was first introduced. So Grub was um, the unequivocal leader. Grub was one of the original. Um, chimpanzees, uh, and he unfortunately died in, in 2011. Um, and, and so I knew Grub his, most of his whole life, and he was a really special uh, chimpanzee. And so if you were introduced to Grub's group, he, Grub was in charge. That was not up for discussion. <laughs> and in fact, many human males needed to learn to defer to grub as well. Um, it seems like human males have a really hard time accepting they need to defer to chimps. Um, and given that per, per square inch, they have 10 times more muscle fibers than us. Um, it's, it's really not up for debate. Um, and so, so, but Grub was kind of a gentle leader. He was not um, a, an, a, an aggressive or, or violent leader. He was a pretty special one. And so, so Brooks was kind of initially brought into that group. And now um, he's still with Kenya Noel, who is also, um, those two were some of the original uh chips that I knew when we first started. What, what about um, Knuckles? Now, Knuckles, you, you say, has cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Do we see compassion from the other apes? What? what? Yeah. So, so, you know, for a long time, Knuckles um, 
when he was younger, uh, there were periods where he was in with Grubb, Kenya, and Noel, um, and and this was great because he got to interact. And Grubb, like I said, you know, um, is, was very special. He was a very special um, individual, and he seemed to understand that Knuckles uh, maybe didn't get the rules right <laughs> um he didn't understand them and and it wasn't his fault so it was a very safe space um for, for knuckles to be in to interact and so so this is the the kind of effort that do they but do they help do they do they but i remember three weeks ago we showed i believe a gorilla oh, right. with a an injured bird right showing compassion do we see compassion towards knuckles do they try to help him yeah, so, so, and we see that with the other special needs too. Pongo, which is one of the orangutans, he's with Mari and she's a special needs orangutan and, and he's very gentle. He helps her, you know, get up, uh, provide some support um, because she's missing her arms. And so. Born um, that way or? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know quite how it ended up that way, but um, she came to the sanctuary uh, that way. And so, so you do see that. And, you know, I think that that's where understanding the individuals, understanding their personalities and choosing who to put together and how to create a family, how to create a community of, of individuals, because it's not just one large enclosure that has 50 um, chimpanzees. They, they're in groups. They, they bond. And they can't be put back. You can't take them to the Congo. No. Zaire, no. you can't. No. And in fact, there are well, sanctuaries in, in um, various places in Africa for either chimpanzees, bonobos, um, gorillas uh, that that are sort of orphanages or they have been um, you know the the pet trade is still alive and well and then you end up with orphans uh, for chips on average you have to kill like 10 adults to get a baby <laughs> um, they fight for their babies and uh, same thing for gorillas uh, often many individuals are killed to snatch a baby and so then so let's get with- angry. Let's get angry. <laughs> Let okay. us look at Bubbles. Oh, yeah. Bubbles. Tell us who Bubbles is. And, and, and it's important to point out that Dr. Jen is very serious about not being photographed, holding a baby ape, baby chimp, baby orangutan, these maybe uh, any wild animal that they any, are any wild animal that these are not pets you don't put a diaper on them and and make them your life partner they're not you know they're to be observed in the wild the only reason the the center for great apes was established is because of people like michael jackson who has screwed up the lives of these great apes like Bubbles. Who is Bubbles? So Bubbles was Michael Jackson's chimp, um, right? And so um, he was given to a, a Hollywood trainer, um, and then he became the pet of Michael Jackson. And uh, he was in a video. Um, some people might remember some of the, one of those videos. Um, 
but of course, as, as happens with most wild animals, including chimpanzees, uh, they get too big, they get too strong. Uh, they don't play by human rules that that's not, you know, chimp rules are really different than people rules and they don't belong as pets. And so, uh, he was given back, uh, basically to the trainer's, uh, compound. He, um, then came with his companion, uh, Sam that he'd been housed with at the trainer's compound to the center for great apes. And I will say this, you know, many, um, what's wonderful is that, that sometimes in some cases, when the animals come to the sanctuary, they, they have, you know, uh, funding through whoever owned them and so as you can uh, see if you go to the center for great apes and read their stories the estate still supports the cost of care for bubbles and i believe he is 36 or 37 right now and he's got um uh he is a dominant male in the group so uh he uh, has a group that he belongs with and several females and a youngster and his best friend. And he is, um, oh, we're showing some of the arts. Yeah, I'm yes. showing a picture of Bubbles painting. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to. Um, Bert Ross, you know, is, Bert Bert Ross is about to join time. us and he's laughing. <laughs> we're going to have some surprises Saturday night, including uh, I have a, a bit of a hidden talent. There's a reason why. We're calling it pant hoot and long calls. And and that refers to the, the vocalizations and the communication that um, are signatures of chimpanzees, the pant hoots, and uh, orangutans, the long calls. Um, so I'm not going to give away the talent, but um, there will be a surprise on Saturday night, uh, a, a, a rare, rare public exhibit. <laughs> Let me remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, this Saturday night, we are doing a benefit for the Center for Great Apes. And all the money, every penny goes towards the Center for Great Apes. We will be doing it through my Zoom room. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view. Tickets are pay what you want. Whatever you want to pay you will be admitted into the Zoom room. We're only selling 100 tickets. Anybody who buys a ticket will get a postcard. We're only making 100 of these postcards of, describe the paint, it's a limited edition. We're throwing the plates out. These are gonna be That's collector's right. items. It's, it's a painting of an ape by an ape, is that? That is that is it. Yeah. So so there's going to be a, a postcard that has a, a contour painting of an ape painted by an ape. And, and we're, that's all we're going to say. That that's yeah. all we're going to say. It's we, a, won't, it's we won't a, give it away, but it's it, going to be great. It's a, anybody who buys a ticket to our benefit this Saturday night will get sent to them in the mail a painting by an ape of an ape suitable That's for right. framing in the mail and we're only printing a hundred of them they'll be numbered and it'll also have the the print like a, a thumbprint or something yes yeah, so um so all of the the apes that that um you know paint 
uh, the, the way that they sign their paintings is with their thumbprints. So we thought for, for those of you that are going to get this special limited edition postcard of painted by an ape, uh, and it's a painting of an ape, uh, will be signed with a thumbprint. This is exciting. And for those of you who are watching us in the Zoom room or on YouTube, we're looking at Bubbles painting. Last night at the production meeting, you told me that apes have a genuine artistic sense. And you do have paintings that they've drawn. I do. So um, and and I believe uh, through the the Center for Great Apes website, they have a store. You can uh, purchase uh, prints uh, from the apes uh, there. And, um, and so I, I do, I have a collection of originals, which I will put on display on Saturday night. And, um, and I will say that a, some are more talented than others. Some are very serious artists and they take their work, uh, very, uh, very, uh, you know, seriously. And, and they have a sense of completion, you know, with a picture or a painting. You don't have to take like with kids. The trick to kids painting is knowing when to take it away from them. Do they stop? Do they know when to stop? Um, they, I have I have seen and heard through our, our conversations many, many years ago when we first started this, uh, that, you know, especially Grub, you know, when he was done, he was done like you couldn't, if you felt it needed more, um, then, then, uh, you know, uh, uh, he, he wouldn't necessarily be game for that. Right? He was right. done. <laughs> uh, and what is the difference between an ape and an orangutan? Well, a chimpanzee and an orangutan. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So orangutans are a completely different species. Um, you have the Bornean and the Sumatran. Um, I think that's how we pronounce it, uh, orangutans. And they are um, basically, uh, they're native to uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, so Borneo um, and Sumatra. And uh, they're called, their name means basically person of the forest or man of the forest. And um, they, they are known to walk upright quite a bit on the forest floor, uh, but they also are, are high up in the canopies. And so, um, so they're geographically very different and they have a deeper common ancestor. So they split off uh, before, uh, well before. And then you have chimpanzees, which are another great ape. Um, and they are found on the continent in various countries on the continent of Africa and also forest. And you have many, many different populations. They have different cultures. Uh, you, you have the common chimpanzee. Um, and, and so there's different subspecies. And, and so there's a lot more sort of uh, diversity. Um, and now, at least for orangutans, we consider Bornean and Sumatran to be different, different um, lineages, different subspecies. Let They're me let me things. bring in let me let me bring in Bert Ross. Okay, because we requested him. We we timed this perfectly. Bert Ross is a <laughs> columnist for the Malibu Times. You have to unmute yourself, Bert Ross. You have to. They, I'm another species of the great ape. You are. <laughs> 
Are you, a hairy, are you a hairy ape or a hairless ape? <laughs> uh, in between, but as I get older, there seems to be hair coming out of areas that I was hoping they would not come out of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that seems to be the... I, uh, I, but you can't let Dr. Jen go because I have questions to ask her. Well, believe me, she's not going anywhere. We're, 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 we're going to be plugging this benefit with Dr. Jen uh, for another hour with you. And then Emil Guillermo is going to come by. Everybody yeah. go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit pay-per-view. It's this Saturday night at 930. We're raising money for the Center for Great Apes and Center of Great Apes. Uh, and uh, all the money goes towards this organization. We're looking at Bailey right now, who's an orangutan. And it's pay what you want. If you don't want to pay anything, you're welcome to join us in our Zoom room. And you'll get to we're only selling 100 tickets for that. And you get to talk to Dr. Jen about the great apes. And we're also going to be doing kind of like a telethon on YouTube. We're going to try to zero out the the Amazon wish list. Dr. Jen, what is an Amazon wish list and what what do these apes wish for? Oh, goodness. Well, so um, it takes a lot and they have so they need to play. We, we call that enrichment formally. And so uh, and, and because they're so strong, uh, they they as as tough as little tykes toys are. So there's ape approved items on the wish list. And this is how you can determine what's safe. Um, so there's things for the apes, so toys, sandboxes, uh, little tykes, um, you know, other things that are enrichment. And you can also find that list on the website if you want to just purchase it and ship it to them separately. But the Amazon wish list contains sort of a, a, a running tab of the things they need. So they love peanut butter and Gatorade. And so there's food items for the apes. There's toys for the apes and other, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, play things for them. And then there's all the maintenance that goes into it. It's almost 100 acres. Um, and so um, they, uh, they need things like rakes and uh, high quality hoses for, for water um, and, I, and wheelbarrows. And, you know, so there's a lot of um, a lot of things on that list. And, you know, um, it would be great uh, to be able to watch that list go down. If it says six Gatorades, you know, okay, we've got the Gatorade covered. What's next? Um, and right. so, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot. Um, yeah, they need art supplies. Um, now, it, it is, has to be ape approved. So, so one thing we don't want you to do is, is, Oh, I've got a set of oil paints. Let me just ship it to the sanctuary, right? right? So it's got to be ape, ape safe, ape friendly. And that's why they've created that list because people do want to give. And there are many ways to give. You can give by coming to the event on Saturday, which would be wonderful. The more the merrier, I guess up to 100. And then uh, for everybody else, these other ways to give would be through the wish list. Um, and, and so really, um, really excited to, um, to do this. And, 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 and anybody who comes to our Zoom room gets a, 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 a 
painting of an ape drawn by an ape, limited edition. Bert, what are your questions? I'm screwing around technological. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm going to test you, Dr. Jen. Oh, dear. I might fail. Yes. That's a, that's a, that's a possibility. <laughs> it's a possibility, not a problem. Have you ever known, hang on for one second. Have you ever known anybody who knows more about their subject matter than <laughs> Dr. Jen? Than that subject matter. Anybody, has there ever been a, go ahead. So the question is, do I know anybody who's as much of an expert in their field as Dr. Jen is in her field? What you just said. Yes, of course I do. But if you're talking about people whom I've met who know as much about her field as Dr. Jen does, no, I don't. Right. Okay. So I'm driving on the street where my rented house is in Malibu, Mm -hmm. and it's nighttime. And I see an animal, it's a very narrow street, and it darts across the street quicker than I've ever seen anything. And it's a little bit longer perhaps than a squirrel. But again, it's night, There's not, it's not like a full moon. It happened fast, it seemed to be somewhat dark colored. And I knew by process of elimination what it wasn't. Okay. It wasn't a skunk. It wasn't a raccoon. It wasn't a cat. It wasn't a dog. It wasn't a mountain lion. It wasn't a bobcat because it kind of went streaky, kind of more linear when it went across. It wasn't uh, a fox. Okay. And if it was a fox, it was an awfully young fox. Okay. But I don't think it was a fox. Uh, not, and certainly not a, a coyote. Okay. Dr. Jen. Mm. Now, I can tell you that I that about a month or two later, almost in the identical spot, it was dusk. And there I saw the face of the critter. Okay. And I went to Google, my friends at Google, and I said, what are the animals that live in Malibu? Gary Sinise. I knew you were gonna go. Gary <laughs> Busey, excuse me, Gary Busey. I don't wanna go, that's too easy. I was thinking yes. weasel uh, or, you know, ah, a, weasel. Ah, a genius, a genius. The first, David, the first, yes. I, are you not impressed? Because of how you described it, you know, I, it's either somebody's pet ferret or it's a long tail or short tail weasel. I'm not sure which one is in Malibu. It, unbelievable. That's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Now, Question number two. What was the name of that weasel? I need the surname. I bet Dr. Jen knows the surname of that. She knows. Why are people derogatorily called a weasel? That's a good question. Uh, Well, I don't know. You know, weasel, so they... uh, they they basically sneak attack things. So they're related to the black footed ferret. Yes. Um, and they yes. use burrows and they are voracious. I, I accidentally trapped a weasel during the day. So they're supposed to be nocturnal, but it, it hadn't read the weasel book. And yeah. I was studying my prey dogs and about a third of the entire population was gone. When I came what, back, what population from, of what? Of prairie dogs, prairie and dogs. Yeah, um, and this weasel basically uses the burrows 
They attack at night when other things are sleeping. So I think they get you've a. Answered, you've answered it. And, and by the way, they're notorious for sneaking into chicken coops. Are they? Okay. Yeah. Well. And so that's why they're called a week. Now, you are so far. Can I just point something out? This is interesting because I don't know if you remember, Bert, but I had an Uncle Morris who everybody called Ooh. a weasel. Ooh. And I. I asked my mother, why did everybody call Uncle Morris a weasel? And about a month ago, she said, you want to know why they called Uncle Morris a weasel? And she showed me a picture. Turns out he was a weasel. I had, he was an actual, I'm not making this up. Uncle Morris was an actual weasel. He owned a... a strip mall in Ridgewood, New Jersey, Uncle Morris. I feel like inadequate because when I'm on your show, everybody is plugging something. Yes. So I'd like to have a benefit, let's say, for weasels. It won't be Saturday night to compete with the great apes, but maybe next week. I have to have something to plug. Here's how we'll do it. Here's how we'll do our benefit for the weasels. Yeah. Now, it's $10 to get in. It's $10 to get in, but you can sneak in for five. It's a benefit for weasels. Go ahead, Bert. I forgot the question. Good. I, no. <laughs> I, we, such a, it was such a great question. It was on, oh, okay, here it is. Okay. Dr. Jen. There's a song that has in its title, it's a nursery rhyme to music that has this animal in its title, what is the name of the song and what does it mean? Oh, then it has the name of the weasel? Yeah, 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 right. So pop goes the weasel. I I don't know what it means, but I think what it means is somebody shoots the weasel. No. Oh, okay, well that's good. By the way, (laughs) have you ever looked something up uh, and when it gives you the definition, you knew more than when you read the definition. I think the song, by the way, your listeners should take notes on this. I cannot believe that they haven't dropped everything and and are concentrating on this. Oh, they're Googling it. Fast. Well, I'm thinking all around the mulberry bush. It has to do, it was a song, I think, in Queen Victoria's time, and the rhyme had to do pop meant pawn, like a pawn shop, and weasel was your coat. So it was like pawn your coat, for a for a glass of beer, huh? Interesting. So for you people who are very far to the left, this is according to the Google friend. This is a song about minimum wage, uh, the poverty, the need that somebody to have basic liquid refreshment needs to pawn his coat. Uh huh. Okay, I'm not making this up. But I don't know. Yeah, I assumed it meant shooting it because people shoot, um, you know, weasels, ferrets, minks, all of that. Mm. So that's Boy, are that's they really devastating cool. the minks in uh, Denmark? Well, I mean, but but that's because of coronavirus. So I what's know. interesting in the mustelids, right? So I, ferrets are susceptible to coronavirus, and presumably weasels could be too, which would be terrible for the black-footed ferret recovery program. Well, there's 6,000 people, I think, in Denmark who work in the mink business. Yeah. Who are now, the the prime minister saw them killing all these millions of minks and, and just started to cry. I mean, it's a 
pretty. Well, then we got to sort of have the conversation about why are we farming mink in the first place? But I, uh, I don't know. I've never worn a mink coat. So I, I, um, yeah. So I mean, the, my the wife worry... not on a fur coat. I'm like Richard Nixon <laughs> when he said, "My wife doesn't have a fur coat." What was her Pat Nixon? Yeah, yeah I was thinking of Sherman Adams who got into trouble. Who was the who got into trouble for the coat? Was it Bobby Baker or Sher- Sherman Adams? Was Eisenhower's assistant who took a coat and got into trouble? Was, I think you might be right. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody fell asleep for a second. (laughs) Benefit, where we will not be mentioning Bobby Baker or Sherman Adams or Pat Nixon's cloth coat, we will be talking about the Center for Great Apes, a benefit this Saturday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And Dr. Jen will be there, and we're going to talk about chimpanzees and orangutans and why they're not pets, why they don't belong in show business, why they don't belong in circuses, why they shouldn't be traded. They should be left alone. And the way we treat chimpanzees, I've been reading about this since we had our meeting. It is a, it is a disgrace the way humans treat other animals for their own enjoyment. If you want to start with saving the planet let's repair the damage we've done to the great apes and they are endangered there are fewer and fewer of them because of human beings because of development because of poaching so the center for great apes take in these these victims of of hollywood of show business and stupid human beings and craven poachers and there's a home for them where they get to live their life out in dignity they can't be brought back into the wild they don't have the skills to survive and this saturday night we're doing a benefit go to davidfeldmanshow.com hit the pay-per-view button it'll take you to eventbrite it's pay what you want everybody's asking you for money right now pay what you want you want to pay a dollar or you want to pay a billion dollars, that's fine. All the proceeds, all the proceeds go towards the center for great apes. And then if you don't want to go to our Zoom room, everybody who shows up to the Zoom room gets a, a painting of an ape by an ape, limited edition. We're only making 100 We're also going to be doing this as a telethon on YouTube. We're going to try to zero out their Amazon wish list. Again, Dr. Jen, what do the apes need? What is on their Amazon wish list? How will we do this? So many things. There's there's food items like Gatorade and peanut butter and pretzels and all kinds of things. There's there's. toys there's uh you can also um they need things like little tykes toys they have to be safe for for the apes um buckets they love to play in buckets and they get little pools um to play when it's hot because they're in florida uh painting supplies and those are listed they have to be kid friendly kid safe right um paints for the for the apes uh, brushes canvases then maintenance things, rakes, shovels, 
hoses, um, you know, all kinds of things. There, there's literally any number of ways that you can get something that will benefit them. And uh, they, uh, they have a wish list. And I want to see us try to get as many as we can. It'll be a wonderful Christmas for the apes if they get um, a lot of these things. And they do actually get wrapped presents. So I think gift wrap might be on the list. I'm not sure. Really? They get wrapped presents? They, so they, have, they, they know what a, a gift means. Well, they get a wrap present and they open it. And this is very common in many, um, you know, captive situations. They they give um, some are more interested in the paper and <laughs> and some are more interested in what's in there. And so, um, you know, there's there are ways we we try to make things special for them. And um, and so. So this is one of the ways we can help, even if it's in a small way. And I know that a lot of people are struggling and um, and, you know, these guys are susceptible to COVID, too. So they have been, um, you know, they have to be extremely careful. So when it's purchased through Amazon Wishlist, it goes to a, a, a separate location where they can then ensure that that it can be safe um, to be given to them. And, you know, and that goes for wild apes, too. They, they can get COVID. So I think it would be great to talk all things ape um, of any of the apes, including gibbons. Those are lesser apes. And, and you know, so I, I think there's so much great stuff to talk about, including how important it is that uh, we stop um, using apes in the entertainment industry and that we, we work to make sure that nobody buys them as pets. Um, and and there's so talking, much to talk about. You're not talking about my favorite ape, the ones that have sex when they feel stress. We can they, talk about the bonobos. Bonobos well, are totally on the table. Do you think, do you think if... With their legs concept, spread. If what? <laughs> she said, I got it. Go ahead. I apologize. Do you think that if leaders of countries were to do what they do. And when there were tension, they would have sex. For instance, the leader of North Korea would have sex with Chancellor Merkel of Germany if there was tension between those two countries. Do you think that would resolve world conflict? I think that's a great idea. Before we go to war, I think the UN should say, okay, you can have your war. Here's some champagne, a red rose, and some caviar. The two of you could be two men, man and a woman, two women. You go into that room, you come out an hour later, and if you still want to take your countries to war. Well, well so so here's, the, here's what I would say to that, Bert, you know, and we could talk more about it on Saturday to really delve into the uh, interesting lives of bonobos. Um, but they they do that with members of their own group. So so when you have separate countries, that's almost like separate groups. And so and, the Germans then could only like have sex with the Germans, right? Unless we make it all one unified world, maybe mm. where we uh, we we all work together. That would be the ideal. And then everybody can have sex with everybody, especially if they if they you know need something. You just. You know, I, have to, I have to get off. I have to get off the apes for a minute. I know there's a benefit coming up. Did you see that 
YouTube about two, three weeks ago of the young man walking in the mountains of Utah on a path. Yeah. And he passed a cougar, a mountain lion, which had at least a couple of cubs. He right. didn't know it. And as he passed, the lion came out on the path and did a couple of fake charges. And I thought that guy did almost everything right. He not according made, to Dr. Jen. We 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 showed made, it. He yes, but you know, when you do that, you ruin my punchline. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were being serious. <laughs> I'm, I'm not on your show to be serious. Have you, <laughs> the worst thing in the world is for somebody to explain that what they're doing is supposed to be funny. Okay. Can I, can I, can I, can I have a, can I have a sidebar here? Because my mother, who's in love with you, Bert, by the way, she'll, she'll tune in when you're on. Possible sidebar here. I apologize. My mother doesn't like the way I'm treating you on the show. I, I've said many times, I first, when you told me your father thought I was a hero, that he was a great man with great taste, and your mother is equally, they were meant for each other. She's a great woman. No question about it. And Let me get back to the, to the hills. I was going to say, you should have picked better heroes for me, Mommy. This is what I got, Bert Ross. You should have done better. This is Feldman. He's he's got a good heart. He just is afraid to show it. Now, this is why, why, why did she do? Why am I stuck with you? Why am I stuck with you as my hero, Doctor Jed? Yes. So there, this guy is. He's walking on the path, and the mountain lion, pretty vicious, couple of fake charges. Guy does everything right. He blows himself up to be bigger. He goes, no, in a firm voice. He walks back slowly, does not do the worst thing you can do, which is run away. He did everything right but one thing. What would I have done different from what this guy did? What would you have done or what should you have done? No, what would I have done? I can tell you I would never have gone hiking in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have had that issue. No problem. Jews, if you go m mountain climbing in Utah, you won't find one out of a hundred Jews. <laughs> not, not happening. David, have you, have you ever climbed the hills, the mountains of Utah? When you, when you describe that, the first thing I think is I'm so glad I'm a shut in. <laughs> who, who needs this? I bet your mother would agree. Yeah, I, that's She's not... so proud that she raised a son who wasn't such a big schmuck. He'd go walking in the hills and the mountains of Utah. Maybe a hill, but a mountain? <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? I have a friend. It's, I know that's hard to believe. I can mention his name, Steve Schwartz, who, by the way, produces movies. Everybody in Malibu, with the exception of me, produces movies. When I came here and when I would ask people, well, I, I came here eight, nine years ago, what do you do? Everybody said a producer. So I'm having dinner with some guy. I'm meeting new people. I said, well, what do you do? And don't tell me you produce movies. He said, I'm a producer. I, I said, you're, you're kidding me. He produced uh, something about fraternities years ago. Um, I can't remember. It was, this guy lives on the beach. Can I let you in on a little show business secret about producers? Yeah. Okay. There are a lot of people 
some of whom from our tribe, who made some money, but they don't like to talk about how they made their money because they don't think it's, you know, they made it in the clothing industry or they owned a strip mall in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And when they go to a party- You're on Ridgewood, New Jersey today. Yeah, and they go to a party and they say- Your Uncle Weasel lived in Ridgewood. My Uncle Weasel. So they, they, they go to a party and they go, do you know Uncle Weasel? He owns a strip mall in Ridgewood. And people go, fat, eh, eh. But if yeah. he's a producer, and he this is how Hollywood was built. Yeah. Hollywood was built because the schmucks on. would put up, mu- they, they had the extra money to invest in a movie. Yeah. And they get their name as a producer. And now mm-hmm. they don't own a strip mall in Ridgewood, New Jersey. They're the producer of fraternity movies. I have absolutely no idea what story I was telling. Doesn't matter. I just explained to you why everybody's a producer. They, okay. they sell that credit. Well, you, they the sell the producer this, credit. My, okay. my, my, my friend, Steve Schwartz, who, did, who produced movies like Tree of Life, real movie, anyway. Yeah. He um, obviously Jewish. I mean, Schwartz is Jewish, and he tells me, you know, what does he do for you know for, for, on his time off? He is a mountain climber. So this doesn't make social sense. social climber. There's a difference. No, he's the opposite of a social climber. So I see a picture of him. He's not a mountain climber. He's one of these Meshuggah rock climbers with the with your fingernails. I get acrophobic. I look. I can't even get close to the photo of him doing this. And so he would have no problem. He, when I told you one in a hundred people climbing mountains in Utah are Jewish, my friend Steve is one of them. That, that's the one. Okay. That was not a great story. No, but it was okay. You know, Dr. This Jen, is what I'm stuck with. Hundreds, hey, hang on. There are hundreds of parrots. Would you stay out of this, Dave? I'm talking to Dr. Jen. There are hundreds of parrots in Malibu. Yeah. Real parrots. Probably uh, yellow-naped Amazons. They tend to be, I, I don't know which ones, but those are common. Also in Florida, there's lots of uh, wild parrots. There's iguanas that are probably currently falling off trees um, from the cold. And uh, and so, yeah, I'm not surprised. And, and they all say the same thing. I'm a producer. I'm a producer. I'm a producer. That's very good. <laughs> This morning, I'm at my desk, I'm looking out my window, and literally 12 yards away from me is a retaining wall. And I see just the head of a very large deer, huge eyes, and and getting the top of the rose bushes, (laughs) eating away. And uh, I thought it was, to see the animal that close was, was fun. Yeah. yeah, no, they're great. I'm glad uh, it, it got mean, not, nice. not not like an orangutan. By the way, I flew over an island. I flew over Indonesia's a bunch of islands, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I, they are just burning. Oh yeah, those islands. I mean, it is. And you know, they're doing the same in Brazil this year. I think they they have a record uh, amount of acreage being burned. And I don't know what the solution is because. You can't just tell these countries that are not as wealthy as ours, you know, stop doing this. And if you buy the land, there is a solution. Let me introduce well, Emil Guillermo. He has the solution. Well, Emil have- Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast. P- 
people for the ethical treatment of animals. Yeah, I, I guess I have some kind of. Well, I, I you know, I'm still stuck on the uh, Utah thing. No, no, hang on. Tell them what the solution. Why are they burning? Let him talk. Hang on. Why are they burning? Why are they burning the forests, Mister? Because they're clearing it. They are clearing it to grow crops, to feed cows. Well, that's in the no, Amazon. In, in Indonesia, no, in it's Indonesia, palm oil. In Indonesia, it's mostly for palm oil. Mm-hmm. Has nothing to do with cows. But I, I didn't know that. I they, didn't know that. There are all kinds of things you don't know. No. Hey, David, though, this is a question for Bert. Why wouldn't he climb the hills in Utah when most of it is in Zion National Park? <laughs> Why would he? Would, he would. And Zion is one of the most. If if your listeners have not been there, it's beautiful. That I remember going, we drove from here and we stopped in Las Vegas, which was on the way to Zion. And we stayed at a hotel, I don't know if it's the MGM, and there is man puffing up our chest saying, look how big a building we can build. And you then drive the next night, two hours away from, from Las Vegas. And I think it's called the Temple Wall or something. It's this, it, it, you could put the MGM next to that wall and you'd need a magnifying glass to see it. And God just says, you're impressed with the MGM, the size of that? Take a look at what I did here. It is one of my favorite. I, I think that's actually as good as it gets. I, I like the Grand Canyon. I like Bryce. But Zion is... is Extraordinary, really extraordinary. Worth worth it if you ever get a chance to go there, folks. It's it's you won't be disappointed. I saw a number of Jews there too. Inside. It's just my jokes. It's not you know, <laughs> one of the things I keep telling my wife when I write humor, she says, That's not true. And I go, So humor trumps truth every time. That's- well, let me plug our gig and, and email. Let's talk about the center for grading i think at this point people would have it memorized so unless you're having new new listeners every 10 minutes you 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 never you never know bert let me plug our big gig this saturday night at 9 30 and you can go by the way there you can give whatever you want if you want to give a dollar you can give a dollar if you want to give a million dollars you can give a million dollars but this is to help apes who should never have been uh, put in captivity, should never have been the, the uh, pets of these wealthy movie producers and the lights of Michael Jackson. And it costs $30,000 a year to maintain some of these animals because like uh, Knuckles, with, like a knucklehead, he had cerebral palsy oh. and he needs all kinds of occupational therapy i've been there he is and so it's this saturday and if you love to to help these animals this is your opportunity to participate how did i do that you did great you did great Uh, thank you i keep thinking had you taken that bribe five hundred thousand dollars i could have helped a lot of animals you could have helped a lot of it but you had to think about your defense. Had I gotten caught, I wasn't going to use the money myself. I was going to help Mr. Knuckles. 
Right. Not knucklehead. Forgive me. I know. That's the only part I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you moved to North Carolina permanently? I have. I am. I am physically present in North Carolina for the time being, and uh, that's as much as I can really say at any point in my life. So let me bring in Emil Gilly. I saw your cat. The cat looks like it's doing well. He is. He's doing well. He he uh, he's, he had he had to get the vets come and cut his nails because he was getting stuck in the carpet. <laughs> you don't do that. Wait a minute. You who were raised, you were nursed by a female wolf like Romulus. You were raised. You you were a child. That's what your book says. You grew oh. up with with wild animals, and, right. and you can't clip. The nails of your cat? I can clip his back nails, but not his front. You need two people for that, or I have to scruff him with my mouth, mm. uh, which I'm not really willing to do because I'm not going to be great at that, and then I'm going to have a mouthful of hair, and nobody's nails will be cut, but I will somehow end up scratched. The only two things I did not do with my children, because I was a, a stay-at-home father. We had two parents staying at home. I could not nurse my kids and I would not cut their nails. Had I cut their nails, they would not have 20 digits. I can assure you they'd have six or se- six or seven fingers, a few, yeah. a few toes. So, yeah, he lets me take care of the back ones. No problem, but mm. never, never the front, you know, and, uh, and he really, he glares, uh, you know, uh, he, he doesn't fuss when they do it, you know, because they hold him and he doesn't struggle or he's a good boy. He, you know, he's in your buttons. He's like, ah, but he's like, oh, what have you done? You have, you have, you have, you have cut my nails. I hate you. And then he, you know, goes and scratches like he was doing that all along. You would love, you would love Malibu because uh, it, there is a tremendous number of people. There are a tremendous number of people who are, are quite concerned about animals. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when the paper for which I write, the Malibu Times, about a month or six weeks ago, had a front page picture of a guy who had caught a tuna fish. And this tuna fish was uh, head to the ground, towering over this person. And uh, it was actually a foreigner. That's how big it was. What? A forna. Instead of a tuna, it was so big it was called a forna. Uh, you know, there are times where I'm envious of David. He'll say something and I'll say, God, I wish I was creative enough to have said that. That was not one of those times. I said that to hurt you. To hurt me? <laughs> I said that to hurt you. <laughs> People were so angry at what happened. And when we had the fire and you went down to the beach, people risked their lives to get their horses. And there were a lot of horses in Malibu. There were horses and llamas. Um, oh, my. Well, and wild animals, too. I mean, in fact, um, you know, bears, uh, mountain, a lot of wild animals get burned. Uh, and in, and what's been sure. really interesting from last year, they used um, tilapia skin as a has been used as a skin graft for people. Mm. And it's not like go out and catch a tilapia and skin it and slap it on. It's, you know, it's, it's different. But they used that for the bears and the mountain lions that got burned uh, mm. because you can, it heals uh, the skin so fast. And, and that was a way you can imagine a wild bear. It's pretty hard to change a dressing 
um, over yeah. and over. You got one shot. And so, um, you know, the wild animals are get, they, they especially reptiles, uh, they, they can't get out fast enough. And in fact, you know who uh, got out? the rats, people said the rats were, were streaming down the mountains toward the, toward the uh, waterfront. But what I wanted to say was that, uh, you know, my image of Malibu, because I really knew nothing about Malibu before I moved here, was that um, you had these rich people with, and everybody had a poodle. And what's remarkable is that I think the overwhelming majority of people who live here have rescue dogs. Mm-hmm. And when I was back east uh, it, 10 years ago, almost nobody had rescue dogs. I almost, I don't even think I had heard the term. And here it's it's major league, right? Uh, let me let me bring in Emil Guillermo, who is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and you also are a columnist for ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We uh, are doing this big benefit at nine thirty Saturday night for the Center for Great Apes, and Dr. Jen didn't ask for Bert and Emil to be on the show, but we, she sort of did. We wanted to uh, back up uh, the importance of this cause. Tell, tell me about the Center for Great Apes and, and the treatment of apes and, and how lacking Hollywood is when it comes to, forget how they treat human beings. Uh, what, where does PETA stand on using animals for entertainment? You can use them, David. First of all, thank you for, for being on the show. And I, I heard that Bert and Jen were going to be here. I said, I have got to be here for the end of the David Feldman show because it's just the beginning. Uh, believe me, okay. we're, we're just starting. <laughs> well, you know, the Center for Great Apes, it is one of the, um, the great sanctuaries. It's one of the good sanctuaries. There are some not so good. You know, the, I'm sure there are places that are kind of like, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Tiger King kind of place for, for, for primates around there. But the, the Center for Great Apes, that's one of the good places. You know, PETA's uh, view, and I'm not really a spokesperson for PETA. I do the, I do the podcast. But, you know, animals are not for our enter- entertainment. And that means animals who are like running around the racetrack and animals who are doing everything else. And then when they're done, what happens? They, they need sanctuaries. Uh, the animals at SeaWorld, they need to be put in some kind of sanctuary after, you know, they're rescued and saved from, you know, their, uh, you know, their, you know, their, you know, their, their, their show business uh, stuff, their shtick. And the idea of sanctuary is so important. So I'm, I'm, I'm only happy to um, support your efforts to to help uh, benefit the the Center for Great Apes. It's a, it's an important thing. Uh, How do you feel about people riding horses? Well, people people should ride horses. Uh, they shouldn't race them. Should, they shouldn't bet on them. They shouldn't uh, use them for uh, you know thoroughbred racing. You know, my opinion. I I'd been a racetrack better for a long time. Uh, back when I first met David, I I, I just didn't understand what. Uh, horse racing was all about but you know i'm, I'm married to PETA. I, I found out what what happens to horse you know race horses and the idea of sanctuary is so important where do they go after they retire um that's a big issue some of them some champions go to korea to be killed for dog food 
Um, mm. you know, there are instances of Kentucky Derby, um, um, you know, races uh, or, or, you know, veterans who are sold for dog food in Korea. That's still going on today. So uh, the, when, you, when, you, when you talk about primates, you're talking about animals who've been put in the, uh, the experiment mill, right? And after they're done, after they're, or entertainment, but after they're done for, what happens to them? You know, where do they go? Uh, in, in so many instances, their life ends at a primate center. And there are about eight of them around the country. And they know no life like a natural life. Um, they need sanctuaries for them. For let, those- me, let me ask Dr. Jen and Emil about this and Bert, of course. The temptation when I heard the, about the Center for Great Apes is I want to go down there. I just would love to, you know, get a shovel and just watch and observe, and then I start feeling guilty because I'm thinking, well, they should not, there should not have to be a sanctuary for these animals. You describe, Dr. Jen, you say you're a homing pigeon, that you're, I hope I'm not violating a trust, but you said to me that everything in your life is, how do I get to the center for great apes? Everything is an obstacle to getting back to the center for great apes. Frankie C., who's a graphic designer, who's helping us with this show, visited the the center for great apes and said it was a a monumental uh, experience. So- yeah, so she she was uh, she came when it was located at Parrot Jungle. The Center for Great Apes is not open to the public. So That's I what I was going to ask you. About that. Yeah, it is not open to the public. Um, there are member events, so you can become a member. And outside of COVID times, there are member events where it is we it, it welcomes members to the center. Um, but, but it is not a place where you can pay, pay a ticket and go walk around. That is not, um, what it, it is. It, everything is for the apes, right? So everything is about what is there. And, and it can be very disruptive to have people, um, you know, it is not a zoo. It is a place for them and everything is about how to create a safe space for them. And for me, uh, because I was part of this when it started and it was such a profound um, experience in my life and not just because of the individual animals, but the people, we were a core group. We would call ourselves like the, the Miami gang. We were the core group of volunteers that, that were part of building this so that it could get to the place where it is now and be this incredible safe haven. Um, and, and many of us are involved. We, we either, uh, donate money. We do things like what I'm doing. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we promote it all the time because I mean this, I grew up with this and, and the, 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 the mission of it is so important to me and how ingrained it is and embedded in my, just my whole personhood. So whether I ever am able to go back there, I mean, I visited, I, I visit, you know, right, so uh, let, let a couple me, of years. Here's but. what, here's, here's what I'm not conflicted on, but you know, you fall in love with bubbles. You fall in love with knuckles. You see the picture of knuckles. Mm-hmm. 
Is there any way to observe him? Is there video of him or is that a violation? They give out videos all the time, right? So right. they give out videos of their birthday celebration to share what's happening. And so you can follow them on Instagram. You can follow them on Facebook. Um, you can go to the website, right? And and so uh, so I would say that that love is not always about being in the space of the thing that you love. Like Zoom, you have a Zoom meeting with the. I, I think that the idea that that um, you can you can feel love and appreciation and want the safety and care of, of these uh, individuals without needing to be in front of them or interacting with them or observing them, just for the honoring of them as individuals who have a right to have a safe space and how can we support that? How much interaction? Do these uh, animals have with humans? I'm haunted by something I saw on the PBS about a year ago where a gentleman explorer, I I think it was in the Congo, Zaire, I I don't know. He had come into contact with a, a, a troop of, is it a troop of apes or a troop of monkeys? Uh, well, it, it could be a, a troop of, of uh, chimpanzees. Or a troop a of chimpanzees. And then he was away for like 15 years. And then he went back and one of them recognized him and came. Have you seen? Oh, I, th- I think that was gorillas. So that gorilla. was the gorilla orphanage. So John Aspinall Foundation. Um, and this is part of the story I wanted to tell of how I even got to the center. But. But I will say that was the Aspinall Foundation. They had an orphanage in Brazzaville, Congo for orphaned gorillas. And NetGeo did a whole um, thing on them. And, and then uh, this was the video of where he went. He took the little boat uh, to the where they released them onto this island. And, and he was recognized by that individual. But I, like, I wasn't at the center for many years. And when I went back, you know, they re- remember me. Yeah, you're uh, skimming past something. I, I apologize, but it, it the the video of one of them, one of the gorillas coming down from the mountain and waving at him and hugging him. Yeah. Hugging so, him. And the sa- I'm sorry. And I saw it too. It was very yeah, moving. Very moving. Yeah. And it was sad because you knew that he was never going to see that gorilla again. This would be the last time. And right. I and I and so, I just wonder it's 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 selfish of me to think wouldn't it be nice if that gorilla and that guy could, you know, hang out. Hang out. <laughs> but it's it's not the local bar. No. but it's not good for the gorilla to be around a human being. And it's selfish of me to want to see that. Yeah, well, so so look, I mean, I'm not. I, I, ultimately, yes, it is selfish, but but the spirit and in the real feeling and the real bonds that happen and the capacity for emotion. This should be seeing that video should really highlight how much damage we do to them. But I want to get I want to get back to the issue that I was raising uh, before flying over Indonesia and seeing thousands and thousands of acres burned, which are the natural habitat for orangutans. Uh, or in my lifetime, if I live another 15 years, the, the, the population of the planet will have tripled in my lifetime, uh, which means that there is a much greater demand for everything, 
for all kinds of resources. And so the wealthy countries, which are by far the biggest consumers of everything and wasteful, want more and more. And as the world population increases exponentially, practically, there is more and more demand. And so these poorer countries, Brazil, Indonesia, wherever, are burning their forests, which are not producing revenue for them. And they are converting it to some form of crops. And the question is, if we can't stop that, if we can't slow that down dramatically, then all of these animals are going to end up in either zoos or sanctuaries, but there will be, they are losing their habitat. So the question is, it, it's very expensive. It's not simply that you, you say to Brazil, if you have a world fund, and I think there's some of this already, there are organizations that do this, will buy a million acres or whatever, but they're losing the opportunity to utilize that land. They can, the money is one thing, but it's not a perpetual source. If they have land that has a product on it, they can generate money forever. And this also affects climate change because of the amount of carbon dioxide that's released when you don't have uh, the forest. So unless we can come up with some solutions, we might as well enjoy these animals while we have them because they're not going to be around for much longer. And either will we. Another hundred years or so, but in terms of history, a very short time. Yeah. Well said. Well, hey, look, that's a good point about habitat. It's uh, the same, you know, it's not just the orangutans or, or the, you know, the, the parts of the world that you uh, you talk about it's also you know the the free the, the land here in in the United States you know when we go into open space and you know wreck the habitat for for animals here you hear about mountain lions and in Malibu and and whatnot it's it's another version of the story you just uh, mentioned you know Joe and, our- uh, and one of the major changes in my lifetime is the density I came from New Jersey as David did, which is by far the most densely populated state in the country. And we lived in the northern part of it, which is even more. When I was mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, Fort Lee, New Jersey had 35,000 people in two and a half square miles. My guess is now it probably is closer to 42,000 people in two, in the same, same two and a half square miles. Uh, it creates more traffic, more, uh, more congestion, more stress. But Citing the problem doesn't require a genius. I'm very good at showing the problems that exist, but I don't know how to solve the problem. Well, so, and, uh, so Bert, if I, if I can give you a little what? bit of hope, I want to give you a little bit of hope, and maybe Emil can talk about some of this too. You know, there are places where community-centered conservation is trying to work with people to give them ways to be to thrive and have a, a, a relationship with the environment, and and that but that takes a huge shift because a lot of times the Western rich countries have been the ones to go in and essentially rape the resources yeah. of other countries. So so the choices we make, the products we we buy, the the willingness we have to not pay attention to all the different levels of decisions that we can make that can send a message that we don't support this and instead 
we support uh, traditional farming techniques or bringing indigenous voices back to the conversation and letting them drive what is happening on the land because it is not sustainable you said and it's a it's a, a fallacy to say that well if you can grow a crop you can grow on it forever that's actually not true the reason they have to keep burning is because you use up all of the nutrients amazon is very nutrient poor the topsoil is super thin it, it, it doesn't, um, it's not productive in the sense of productivity that we think of. It's a very diverse and productive forest. But, you know, I think that supporting uh, organizations and, and programs that are empowering people to interact with the landscape and get the needs, you can't go in and say, Here's two goats, so now you stop bushmeat hunting because you can just raise goats, right? That, that, so don't buy goats for people. <laughs> but, but when you go in and you talk to communities and you actually listen to what they need, they tell you what they need. And then it requires a collective commitment to problem-solving so that people can get the things that they need and and make them, um, they, they become stewards of that land when they can get what they need from it in a, in a functional way. Okay, we, we, have, to, we have to wrap it up. Well, Go ahead. There is a kind of a political answer, right? And it has to do with community values. And then, and then the, the, the policymakers say, okay, let, let's, let's give tax credits for preservation of these lands for, uh, to create a space for these, for these animals that lose their habitat. Let's put limits on growth. Let's put limits on housing. Let's make sure that we have these open spaces, spaces where the animals can go. And then when when you, one of the problems, this is a mixed bag. Every every point has two sides. We're in California. We have immense, an immense population of homeless people. Right. Immense. And it's growing. And when you restrict growth and when you restrict the density to make an area more livable, what happens is that the rents go up because there's more supply, less demand. And so it, it continues to create. I don't know the answer. I'm just saying. Well, the, this is where the balance comes in, where the community activists come up and they, they work it out with the policymakers just to say, where where is that balance? I, I understand what you mean. It's not, it's I, not the, the, okay. Uh, to be continued, I hope. To be continued. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and he is a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuk. And Bert Ross is a columnist for the Malibu Times and my hero. Thank you. Let me wrap this up by thanking Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Go to jenniferverdolin.com. Follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. And more importantly, this Saturday night, we are doing a benefit for the Center for Great Apes. All the money goes towards the Center for Great Apes. If you love Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, then you will love the Center for Great Apes. And we are only selling 100 tickets. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. 
hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right to the Eventbrite page. Pay what you wish. I know it's December. Everybody is hitting you up for money. Every charity, every landlord, every friend of yours, every car payment and health care payment. So it's December. Pay what you want. All the money goes to the Center for Great Apes. And anybody who comes to buys a ticket will get a, a postcard, a print of a painting of an ape painted by an ape. It's a limited edition and it will be a collector's item. I promise you pay what you want. You want to pay a penny? We'll let you in. We're also going to do a telethon on YouTube. We'll simulcast on YouTube And what we're going to try to do is zero out the Center for Great Apes Amazon wish list. So we'll show you how you can, well, we'll say they need six jars of peanut butter. Let's, and we're going to try to zero out their Amazon wish list. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, your thoughts before we say goodbye. Um, gosh, I just want to say thank you for, for the opportunity to uh, support this this cause. It's, uh, like I said, near and dear to my heart. And I, I am grateful uh, for the support of Emil and, and his acknowledgement of, of this is one of the good ones. And, and maybe he can come on Saturday. We could talk about some of those issues. Um, you know, and, and, and Bert, I love your uh, thoughtfulness and your ability to... Uh, test me on whether or not I can spot a weasel. And, that was incredible. Um, <laughs> and, Impressive. And your, you know, your. I, I think that you know, you you think deeply about these things, and I always appreciate you. So I appreciate your listeners, and I hope that we can have a full house on Saturday night. And again, there what might be a special, special pantoot. Pantoot. I am a. As you can attest, I believe I am I'm a skilled pant tutor. And uh, <laughs> you gave and Frankie so, C the chills. She, you gave her goosebumps. I gave Senor Buttons the chills, too. Right. <laughs> um, so so I will, um, you know, uh, look forward to seeing everyone. Hey, Jen, can I ask you a personal question? Because I've Always. talked to some, I've talked to some primatologists recently and I talked to one female and she said, her monkey was a rhesus macaque. That was her monkey. Right. She said, if you haven't been groomed by a monkey, right. you're missing out. But and we don't I approve just, of that. Well, so, you know, it's funny. Groom. We, groom we don't approve of humans and monkeys. Monkey. We don't. <laughs> we don't appro- never so fortunate. I did most of the grooming. My, 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 if I were a gorilla, you guys know, if I were just a gorilla, I'd, pro- I'd have to be the female. And that means I'd probably be grooming the male and not getting groomed. So that just stinks. Okay. I like getting groomed. I, I, I she just the way she described it. She said, "Oh yeah, being groomed by a monkey." Yeah, is, and being groomed is, by a chip comes with some lip smacking, which maybe I'll I'll do a bunch of vocalizations on Saturday. I am I'm well versed in chimp communication. Great. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you, Doctor Jen. We'll talk tomorrow. You were very generous with your time. I appreciate it. And Thank Emil, you. we'll talk to you. Maybe you'll help us out with this if you have time. If I try, yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch. Thanks. Okay. okay. Thank awesome. you. Thanks, Bye. Thank you. Bye. 
remember, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view button. It'll take you straight to Eventbrite. Pay what you want. We're only selling 100 tickets, and everybody gets a picture, postcard, of a portrait of an ape painted by an ape, limited edition. Let's go to Aurora, Illinois, where the commish is standing by. She is the parks, a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, as well as a professor of physics. Please welcome Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Hello, doctor. Hello, David. Hey, that uh, previous segment went way too short. I mean, Emil was on for only about five minutes. I know, I know, I know. We're, we're, today was not... Uh, Today is the day I apologize to everybody. We, we had technical problems at the beginning. But let's talk about Biden and mm. it being December. And, you know, I can't do an echo chamber here. I, okay. I have to I won't have Trumpists on the show. I do have centrists on the show. And when I have a centrist on the show, I take the leftist stance when I have extreme leftists on the show, I have to talk like a centrist. Otherwise, we don't arrive at any truths. So earlier I was talking to Professor Ben Burgess, who called Biden's nominees a a gallery of rogues. And (laughs) uh, and then before that, we had a gentleman who writes for the American Prospect uh, describing what was going on in the Middle East. And I was I wasn't defending Pompeo, but I was explaining why it was working for uh, Trumpists, why why the Middle East. Trump does have a Middle East policy and he's succeeding in. in well, I mean, he's bestest buddies with Netanyahu. And in fact, uh, on some things, you know, I since I have a memory that goes back past last Tuesday, I remember three years ago when Chuck Schumer was bragging about he how he Chuck Schumer was the one to convince Trump to a ditch the Iran deal and B because Schumer never was on board with that you recall and B move the uh, move move the capital of Jerusalem from Tehran to move the capital of Israel from Tehran to Jerusalem. He bragged about that. And everybody forgets that Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump are friends that go back way back. Now, of course, Schumer's people would just deny this right now. But, you know, you've got Al Gore's Internet. You, you can look up a lot of things. Right. Al Gore's <laughs> people Internet. kind of like uh, people kind of behave as if YouTube hasn't been a thing for the last 12 years. And, you know, so it so. looks like we're going to see bookends on the on the, the Trump administration. It's kind of interesting. The four years are up. It looks like it, right? Oh, yeah. As okay. we told you, they would be, um, you know. Uh, I was listening uh, on Monday, and I love Harriet Fraud, and I love a lot of your other your guests, but I found myself, you know, taking issue with them that I didn't want to express at the time because I want to hear what, what she has to say. But I had to think about why it is I am taking issue with people that I really respect and who I think are really... Um, Uh, are are very learned and very thoughtful, but I have noticed, particularly in this round, you know, with the, with the Bernie campaign and then Biden and the whole political thing that 
it's almost right on the uh, on the class line. If the leftists who are okay with Biden and the leftists who think that Biden is part of the problem and at least wanted to have the conversation that long term Biden may be worse than a second term of Trump for the things that progressives want. For a lot of my Democratic friends, they just want to go back to brunch. That's become a phrase. In other words, they want to not to have to worry about anything. That's why I I was thinking about this when I was getting into an argument with uh, a good lefty friend, but he didn't like um, defund the police. And I found myself getting into an argument rather than a discussion. I was trying to keep it as a discussion. And I finally said, look, everything you have said that you'd rather do, retrain the police, reform the police, restructure the police. We've been discussing this for almost 30 years since Rodney King. And, and, And nothing has changed. Things didn't change with Mr. Hope and change Barack Obama, the person we thought we'd have all this change with. Nothing happened. So I think a lot of my lefty, my Democratic friends uh, don't like to fund the police. It makes them uncomfortable. The way Black Lives Matter as a slogan made a lot of Democrats a little uncomfortable. Remember Martin O'Malley? All lives matter. All lives matter. But, you know, the, the, they just don't get the point. The point is, is that... Yes, all lives should matter. Black lives do not matter and have not mattered in our power structure, in our political structure and everything else. So that's why, hence the, you know, the slogan. And it's more than that. It's like defund the police. It's more than a slogan. It's actually a policy perspective because we freaking defunded everything else. I mean, we've defunded schools. I, I came in for a real shock because I had to every year since the park district, if, if you live in my at the Fox Valley Park District and Aurora is completely within the Fox Valley Park District, you look at your um, uh, real estate uh, tax bill and you see the park district there and it's a little under 5%. I was shocked, though, to see that the police department and the school district received about the same amount of funding. I, I mean, it used to be, I remember years and years ago, even when uh, I was back in Redford Township in Michigan, the school always got about 60, 65% of your property taxes. And so you have to ask, where is this money going? Well, the, uh, the Monday after all those Black Lives Matter protests in, in Aurora, which were very peaceful, although afterwards, well after the protesters were gone, looters came in and the police were largely absent. They were there kind of harassing the peaceful protesters they were nowhere to be seen when there were genuine looters looting the businesses. So the next day, there's like 10 armored Humvees rolling down Route 25 Broadway in downtown Aurora. And I took a look at those pictures going, what the hell are we using those for? As I, I, I wrote an angry letter to our mayor, like, what in the world are you going to do with those things, Richard? You know, no-knock warrant on Marianne's house. Come on, this is really ridiculous. How much money does it cost to be keeping these military-grade vehicles under repair and, main, and maintained? So that's my, my point. And I, I think that um, when I'm thinking of our good friends here, a lot of them are academics. And so that means a lot of them are comfortable. In other words... Job security. They have job security. Job security. They have career security. They have security on many levels, which people in my neighborhood do not have. 
And so people who have security on many levels, their, their career, their jobs, their circle of friends, they have energy to worry about what I think of almost paranoid fantasizing. And I know that's like fun to do because I've done it. But the idea that, um, you know, we're going to have Nazi Germany because of Trump, that's kind of the paranoid fantasizing that people who are pretty much comfortable in life have energy to do. The people in my neighborhood don't have that energy. They're worried about keeping their houses. They're worried about their health care. They're worried about how am I going to handle these insulin costs? So, again, it's it's right around the class line. And, you know, for some of us, like our good friend Jim Earl and Martha Previtt, they may be middle class comfortable, but they are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine who is still recovering from a brain injury, she's very middle class comfortable, but she's very vulnerable. She sees, especially with COVID, how, you know, you don't want society to break the house. Society may not be there for her if this pandemic got, got worse. She's fortunately recovering. So I've always thought that, no, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, I wanted to interject with uh, Dr. Uh, Hershenfeld, too, a few weeks ago when he was talking about Nazi Germany. And, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I was invited into the home of, uh, I was friends with a, a professor, a Marxologist in the political science department. He and, and his wife were friends of mine. And it turned out they had escaped Nazi Germany, but in the 30s, when they were teenagers, they had actually met at Harvard, and he was a professor at University of Michigan. And they were going on and on to me about Jerry Falwell and the moral majority, and you don't understand, these are the most dangerous people, you know, this is going to be, this is what, we used to laugh at the brown shirts, and I'm going, guys, I get why you're afraid, I really do. But it ain't going to happen here, because A, Americans are too lazy <laughs> to be freaking Nazis, B, we're too culturally diverse. So it is, even if we all want a goose step, it's not going to be to the same beat in the same direction following the same guy. However, I always thought even back in the 80s that we were always in danger of slipping into a South American mode. Multicultural countries that have professional middle classes, however small, and ours is shrinking, and uh, dictators, of, but of various cues. You know? So it's like it's not dictators down there are not restricted to the Anglo to the Anglo-Saxon race. So, uh, and I think that um, the fantasy of Trump turning into Nazi Germany is uh, kind of far fetched. Never say never, but that's far fetched. However, slipping into Argentina mode or Brazil mode. That's imminently possible under Biden, and he will have the competency to do it. Another thing that triggered me a little bit when one of our friends mentioned, at least there'll be competent people. I think I said that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think Harriet said that and a couple others. Well, I said there are competent people running the departments at all times because Fermilab's been funded Brookhaven National Laboratory, they're building an ion uh, electron collider. I mean, two layers down from the buffoonery or the political class are the competent bureaucrats, the people who are always there, the lifetime, you know, the people who can't really be fired even by a president because they are federal employees and they are not um, at will employees. And so, uh, so I was thinking about my friend 
who in his lifetime was also had been a comedian who is now fairly poor. But we just got him moved into a uh, Section 8 house, uh, housing complex. Well, it's a housing complex that's low income and does have a lot of Section 8 units. And it's beautiful. He has a one-bedroom apartment that's lovely that he pays 150 bucks for. And I'm thinking, hmm, what happens if a near-attendant or some competent, you know, neoliberal takes a look at these programs and thinks, you know, we really can't afford this. People like my friend Buddy need to be living in homeless shelters, not, you know, a decent apartment. And so I, I that's kind of... Why I think I, I think there is a stress between my friends who are relieved and somewhat happy that Biden won and my friends who are not. It's almost exactly along class lines or vulnerability lines, because let's face it, um, if if Biden isn't the answer, then, oh, my God, it's up to us. Then suddenly people who want to fancy themselves you know, uh, activists or leftists suddenly have responsibility to do something. And I think people would much rather think that, hey, it's, the system is correcting itself. We elected Biden. The adults are back. And uh, that's not going to work out. I mean, and, I, and I'm and i saying this because I was guilty of the same thing when Obama came in. And uh, back in my mind, I knew better because I'd already been massively disappointed with Obama a year after he had been uh, uh senator how he didn't do the things he was saying how he went along with some hideous votes and i thought well holding out hope here maybe he just needed to get into some position of power and then he can do something and then even as late as 2012 well he just this is the one last time he's running for office now he's gonna do it nope (laughs) you know so um that's that's kind of where the fight is. And I don't even think it's the fight in all cases. It's a fight in some cases. I think a lot of people, um, I see, I notice a lot of people resent people who are to the left of them. Now, I don't think I'm really much to the left, really, of most people. You know, Medicare for all, <laughs> free public higher education, decent housing, guaranteed. I mean, these are things that the rest of the civilized, industrialized world take for granted. And this is supposed to be pie in the sky, we're far left, you know, this stuff that the majority of the American people want, stuff that Biden could actually do. I mean, there is, I was posting a couple of articles, one by Dave Sirota, where, you know, if Biden wanted to, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of economic meltdown for a lot of people, he could just expand Medicare. Doesn't need Mitch McConnell. Right. He could he could zero out the student uh, student loan debt. Doesn't need Mitch McConnell. And you know everybody's going on and on about Mitch McConnell. What makes you think Chuck Schumer is going to be a hero? No, I get it. A lot of people, and this is I think a very viable uh, argument that well, if the Democrats are in charge, White House, Senate, and House. Uh, there won't be Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump to blame. It'll be on them. And I said, we tried this before. <laughs> but maybe people will have less patience with uh, Biden. Plus, well, there was really a, a scare. I mean, people were terrified as the stock market was plummeting and people were losing their jobs. And 
but um, I'm thinking that maybe people might not be as as patient with Biden. I agree with you. I, I think that he wouldn't dare put Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security on the table. I don't think he's planning to do that. The, the first 100 days he claims. I don't think they're planning to say that. But, you know, there's another thing. And again, now some people are going to get upset. I don't believe Biden thinks much about anything. It was kind of like in 1986 trying to ask Reagan what was going on with Iran Contra Contra. I don't think he knew at all. It turned out it was all being run out of the uh, vice president's office, Happy Bush, mm-hmm. who did effectively pardon himself. <laughs> right. right. But anyway, go ahead. Anybody you like in this administration? Not uh, really. Do- Dr. Harriet Fraud liked some of the economic advisors, Bushy, I think she liked. Yeah, I looked at it. She seemed reasonable, but, you know, um, I I remember, and people forget that Joseph Stiglitz was head of Bill Clinton's economic advisory now That's team. progressive. That's very progressive. Right. Well, what good did that do? Right. I mean, the best thing, it, you know, the, the most... Um, I would say lefty guy ended up who was actually a cabinet member was Robert Reich. No, Robert Reich did, was a voice, and he did have an influence. At least people read about him. But, um, you know, he he basically lost the battle within the Clinton administration. So Clinton ended, ended up, I mean, I think Larry Summers was there as an advisor, and Larry Summers um, sort of prevailed, and Robert Rubin. And uh, so it's not a, I mean, there's always good people on the advisory uh, board, but who is actually in a position to affect policy directly? And, and that would be the people who head up your cabinet. How miserable is our side going to make Pelosi, Biden and Schumer? What, what can we do? You had talked, I think it was on Tuesday's show, you talked about mm-hmm. the, the squad plus about seven more congressional, uh, there are about 12 people in Congress because the, uh, because it's so tight in the, in the house. Now Pelosi Mm -hmm. does not have the stranglehold that she had in 2018. Go ahead. Yeah, but she's the leader. I think she actually, they actually vote for speaker of the house when the new Congress is sworn in. Right. So I checked today. Holy crap. So it's it's uh, so far the Democrats have 222 and the Republicans have 212 seats. That's the difference of 12. However, the last two remaining. And this is insane. Six votes separate the the uh, the Republican and the Democrat in the Iowa second. Right. Right. And 12 votes separate the um the the republican from the democrat in new york 22nd and i I won't shed a tear this brindisi guy uh this is just a horrible blue dog democrat and if he gets seen it'll be it'll be bitten by a horrible like trumpian republican but my point is is that whatever it is they've got at least 11 you know they they could possibly have only a nine vote advantage, which means you get the squad, which has now been expanded to about eight, 
as our friend Alan Minsky points out, and uh, and maybe Rokana and maybe Pramila Jayapal, and you have ten. And if they could act, if they could vote, we well, just need block. if there's a twelve seat difference. Well, you just need six then, right? They won't vote, but presumably they won't vote for the Republican. No, yeah, they really wanted to get hardball. They, you know, would vote for they would vote for the Republican. But if they just abstained from voting, then if it's ten, if it ended up being. 222 213 then uh you know the republicans can prevail with their pick for speaker of the house the number is really small because what, what did you say it's two what so far the republicans have 211 seats that's a pickup of 14 seats right the democrats have 222 seats so there's a 10, about a, roughly like an 11 seat. Yeah, there's an 11-point difference now, and there's two outstanding. So the But you the, only need, don't you only need six then you, to flip yeah, it? Yeah, if they flip, if they flip and actually vote for the Republicans, yes. But I'm thinking that maybe... All it just, takes is six yeah, Democrats to, to stop not Pelosi. just Pelosi's march to but, the Speaker... But also any bills that she wants to pass, it takes. Correct. Because even if a Republican got was Speaker of the House in a democratically controlled House, I mean, or majority House, ain't nothing really going to get passed in in that scenario. So, right. but I'm I would think that they wouldn't have to even vote actively vote. It would take less if they wanted to actively vote. Well, that would be a real active uh, partisan sedition right there. But I think they'd be willing to not to abstain from voting for her. But they would sit down and say, okay, say, uh, say, you know, they split the last two races. So it's 223 Democrats and 212 Republicans. So the squad, which is doubled to about eight, and I'm sure they can find a couple more. Uh, I mean, Chewy Garcia is becoming more radical. He was a Bernie bro. He's a congressman from Chicago. And just you all sit down as a block, and you sit down with Nancy Pelosi and says, look, you're going to put Medicare for all on the schedule. That's going to be one of the first things we vote for, or we will abstain in the voting for Speaker of the House. I mean, it's doable. And that would be using your power. Unfortunately, um, Democrats and, and activists in particular are just so reluctant to use the power they have. You know, and that we need to get over that. And they're afraid you know, of fights. And I always maintain fights. Fights and are good for the party. They're fight. absolutely good for the party. You know, they're good for anybody, really. It creates loyalty. We were talking earlier about this lawyer named Lynn and these crazy QAnon people telling the voters in Georgia not to vote for Loeffler or Purdue. Don't show up. You can't you can't trust Kemp to run a fair election. He's a Republican. Yeah. And we always hear about this Republican crack up and they're splitting and there's a civil war and they hate each other and the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus. They're driving mm-hmm. Boehner and Ryan crazy, but they continue to win because they because the fighting, they get it out of their system. And then when it comes, you know, when Election Day comes around, they remember who their family is. And the Democrats oh, are yeah. so afraid of ruffling some feathers. 
the party has shown them some respect too. I mean, the party has acknowledged that because they're fighting with them, the party, our party leadership, our party, the democratic party leadership, um, is has holds its most active base in contempt, in utter contempt, and they show it, and they're not afraid to show it. And you know, this battered wife syndrome has got to stop. You know, it's it just has to because uh, nothing will change. I mean, you know, uh, one of your guests on uh, on Tuesday's show was saying something about, well, we have to go to the streets. We have to take this to the streets. They're not going to go out on the streets. They're not. I mean, I will. Maybe I'll go confront uh, Chicago cops again, uh, maybe. But, you know, that didn't work when we were out in the streets by the millions protesting the Iraq war. There's got to be, I think, something that is safer and far more effective is that a serious block of the Democratic Party refuses to vote for the leadership. There's a serious problem with the Democratic Party. Let, let me just change the subject here and bring oh, okay. up some wonderful Democrats. You are a Democratic politician. The mayor of Austin, his name is Steve Adler. He told the people of Austin, a very liberal, progressive, leftist haven yeah. in Texas. He told everybody to stay home because of COVID. Meanwhile, he hosted his daughter's wedding, I believe it was in Cabo San Lucas, with 20 guests. This is, it gets worse, because you know about the governor, right, of California. California. Yeah, 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 I heard he, that story. He had a nice yeah. little meal at French Laundry with his lobbyist friends, and he didn't think there was anything wrong with the the uh, the image of going to French Laundry, paying, what, $1,000 a plate for this this meal while the rest of the state is in lockdown or can't afford a meal, let alone anything at uh, at the French Laundry. And then there, there was one other story. I think it was Andrew Cuomo. Well, yeah, I, I was going to get to him in a second, but there was also... Some Los Angeles uh, Democrats, I can't find the story, who were defying their uh, the orders and going out to uh, going out to dinner. I lost the story. All right. What, what did what did Cuomo do? Oh, no, he was uh, telling people to stay home. And then he was on a radio show and somebody asked him what his plans were. He says, oh, I'm getting together with my mother and my sister, and you know, there's a couple other family members, and this was after he was telling people to stay home for Thanksgiving. So, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, Democrats love, Democratic leadership loves to do symbolic gestures because, you know, those are easy, and they screw up on that because they're not gonna do real gestures like demand like a UBI, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Medicare for all in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, the, the presidents have a lot of power. They have power to declare national emergency. As a matter of fact, all these people, like, you know, again, indulging in comfortable Democrat fantasies about Trump taking over, if Trump was a real dictator, <laughs> he would have used the pandemic to just, you know, impose practical martial law, you know, like, the National Guard in every state. 
Right. He just, he's too much of a dumbass. He doesn't, or he just doesn't care. He just says, ah, you know, the, 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 the governors, you handle this. Well, before and, you go, let's look at the COVID rate. Deaths are about to, I think, increase exponentially after Thanksgiving. We're, oh, yeah. We're, we're almost approaching April levels in terms of COVID deaths in this country. Yes. The, the, the one saving grace, you know, I, I think I'm looking at a chart now. Back in April, it was topping 2,000 a day. And they're saying the way things are going in December, we're going to be topping 2,000 a day. We're going to get. I pe- think that um, both Michael Osterholm and our own Henry Hamamaki had predicted that we'd be topping 3,000. I mean, you know, we, we're getting very close. We're well over 2,000 a day. In fact, today, um, Illinois topped the charts today in deaths, uh, 228. Yesterday, it was 266. And I, there's all kinds of uh, fluctuations in reporting, but. Um, yeah, it's it's problematic. Um, even now, the governor in, uh, of Illinois has said, let the school districts decide whether they open or not. And um, listening to uh, Michael Osterholm's podcast, um, which he does every other week, it's like it turns out that these super spreaders, you know, individuals that have been infecting lots and lots of people tend to be very young people. And they tend to be very young people with no symptoms, which is exactly the people that are on university campuses and in high schools. So, you know, they get together. They don't care. Nobody in their circle of friends are are getting sick or or seriously sick. But uh, they go go home and, you know, it's just the disease gets spread. Um, I I think we're, I think Michael Ulsterholm is right. We're in in for a very, very hard winter coming up, not only after Thanksgiving, but especially after Christmas. And are you kidding? New Year's? I people, mean, there are people I really care about, people mm-hmm. I, I trust who say to me, I have to weigh the risks. I cannot stand this isolation. I have to be around people. And they show me pictures of going to Thanksgiving with their grandparents. Nobody's wearing a mask. Everybody's on top of one another. And the uh, all this is going on, and we're losing Lamar Alexander. He's uh, retiring. And Mitch McConnell hmm. delivered a tribute to his friend and fellow senator, Lamar Alexander, who was retiring on the in the well of the Senate, and McConnell broke down and cried about five times talking about Lamar Alexander. 300,000 dead Americans, no COVID relief, no no eviction relief. What makes him cry is Lamar Alexander leaving. These people are are absolutely craven. Is there any way to work with them? I know that we want the best of all possible worlds. But if you're the president of the United States, you wrote about David Dian's piece with the stroke of a pen. Biden doesn't have to deal with McConnell on a lot of things, but it still is a democracy. There's still checks and balances. It's still. And what I'm saying is that force McConnell 
okay, go ahead and do it. Give Medicare for all. Do an emergency UBI. And Mitch McConnell is free to get up in the well of the Senate and be all night on C-SPAN with the cameras rolling, telling us how we have to take away, you know, like uh, aid that people desperately need. Let him do it and let him hear from his constituents. I mean, the Democrats just seem to preemptorily just give up. Well, the Democrats, the Republicans are never going to go for that. Well, so let's give them something they'll go for. We're not going to go for anything we want. So you just instead go for the maximum you want. Let them just howl and gnash their teeth and then, you know, maybe give a little. You know, you only do this compromising whenever I get, you know, the stern lecture from people about how politics is compromising. I'm saying politics is the art of the possible. It's totally possible to give everybody health care, UBI and assistance and have everybody halt in the richest country that the world has ever seen to solve problems far poorer countries have solved decades, decades ago. It's possible. You just don't want to fight. Right. And all this compromising, which, yeah, you have to end up compromising, but you do that at the very, very end, maybe beyond the end. You don't do it right out the gate. Right. And again, don't expect that you're going to have polite conversations with your colleagues. It is war. I mean, are you kidding? And the problem is, um, when you get to the well of the Senate or even the House, you know, everybody's genteel and life is good. And you don't understand uh, how people live. About five blocks from where I'm very comfortably sitting in my old kitchen here is Tent City on Park District property. And we're trying to get these people into there. There are some abandoned hotels, you know, a few miles from here. We're trying to get these people settled because it's going to be in the 20s tonight. And there's still people sleeping in tents. Where's the outrage? Uh, I would like to know where the outrage is. Not among my Democratic friends who think that everything's right in the world because Biden got elected. You know, and they won't because it doesn't look it. I, I'm going to be unkind, but I say a lot of my Republican, my all my Democratic friends are behaving like Republicans. If it right. doesn't affect them personally, they don't see it. They don't really care about it. And you know the fact that you can be outraged at you know a, a maniac's three a.m. tweeting, and not outraged by you know this going on in a wealthy you know in a wealthy area in a Democratic state. In a Democratic congressional district, uh, you know, what are we supporting Democrats for? Right. By the way, uh, you're right. I misread. It's 2,800 COVID deaths in a single day. 100,000 people are hospitalized right now. And uh, somebody said it's 9-11 every day. That's what we're dealing with. Well, that's right. And it's probably more than that. As you pointed out, or or somebody pointed out earlier, I mean, if hospital beds and ICUs are being filled to capacity, where are the people with just the normal, like, you know, broken legs and heart attacks and strokes and poisoning and, you know, just the whole gamut of just normal, uh, where are they going? Right. They're probably not being looked into. And yeah, the loneliness itself is probably killing some people. Bad time. And you it know, is a bad time. It would be nice if we were genuinely all in this together, which we are not. 
some of us, you know, middle class people are very comfortable on our Zoom meetings and others are sleeping in tents. Yeah. Yeah. So. It would it would be nice if people stopped. To, well, yeah, I don't want to be judgmental here. It would be helpful if Americans stop talking about their pain and isolation and how lonely they are and start thinking of others because yeah. hell is being <laughs> trapped inside your own head. And when you <laughs> think about the people who are about to be evicted, the people who are sleeping on the streets and the people who are going to end up in an ICU because you're 20 years old and you don't want to wear a mask. When mm -hmm. you start thinking of others, yes, or as I'm reading about the theory of mind, the idea that other people have emotions and you should have empathy, you yourself will be happy. You will suffer. Look, even this little kitty is reminding me the fact that sometimes I've come home and I look, no food. Oh, God, I can't just relax. I have to go home. I have to go out and get some food. The fact that you're being forced to think of somebody other than yourself. Right. Help for you. Exactly. It gets you out of a funk. It I'm sorry. It what? It gets you out of a funk. Right. If you have to, if you adopt somebody else's problem, even it's like, oh, crap, I have to go out and get this thing or I have to go up and pick up this person. It interrupts your stuff and rumination. And then you go out and you help somebody and you've actually accomplished something. Right. Even if it's uncomfortable to do, it's ultimately healthier mentally and often physically for you to have done something. And, and the, the pathology of the United States is we're trained to help ourselves. Right. And the term to help ourselves means to help ourselves if we're in trouble and also to help ourselves to our natural resources help ourselves to what other people have and we have right now a president who is a walking metaphor oh. of helping only yourself and he's the embodiment of what the neolibs want to champion as the you know as the way to live. Right. Like we're going to grow our way, just grow businesses. We're going to grow our way out of these problems. It's, you know, um, it's hey, interesting. Look. If you breathe, if you take deep breaths, you will, you will feel exponentially better. But we think, well, that's no, 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 no. It, you you got to get a pill. You got to go to a spa. You need a massage. Really something if you just breathe. By the way, I read something. And I'm surprised about two years ago, I'm surprised it never occurred to me before this because I've been taking yoga. Your breathing is the only system in your body that's directly under control of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. In other words, it is under your voluntary control. And it also is under your involuntary control. Your heartbeat is involuntary. If you slow down your heartbeat like yogis can do, you're doing it indirectly. Whereas if you stop thinking about your breath, actual breathing, you will breathe. Then your nervous, your parasympathetic nervous system will take over. And so it's interesting that ancients thought to be thought of the breath as the connection between the body and the spiritual and the mental. Hmm. And they were and they have been shown to be physically right. You do this specifically nasal breathing. I haven't done a lot in the last 20 minutes because I've been talking. 
but just keeping your mouth closed, breathing in, holding in for four beats, uh, breathing in for four beats, holding for about six, and then slowly breathing out. And doing that like three times, sometimes I'm almost get a panic response. Like I'm not getting enough air and then I just relax. And it's what's happening is that you're properly building up CO2, which actually helps regulate a lot of the uh, oxygen uptake of your system. And there's a whole, oh, you know, there's whole papers on this, but the bottom line is, is that you're breathing the simplest thing in the world to do and sort of the key to like changing your mood to focusing and it's available to us. We don't have even need a doctor's appointment and doing that simple, um, very simple yoga breathing. You don't, you don't even have to call it yoga breathing. I mean, because many, many different cultures have done the same and discovered the same thing. But, and, and I think part of the other little, little panic is that it forces you to sit with yourself. Right. But the breathing, mm-hmm. you can't make money telling people nope. to breathe. Can't nope. make money telling people to drink more water. And nope. you can't make money telling people that if you really want to be happy, yep. help somebody. Help somebody else. Help somebody else. And then you'll be happy that uh, we're social animals. And it's just a little thing. It's a little thing. And I'm guilty of this. I get locked in my apartment my apartment, and I'm only thinking about what I want, what I need. I'm in a bubble. Why don't I have this? Why does this person have that? And I don't have this. If only I had that. And then you you go outside and you have one interaction with somebody uh, and you feel better. And then if you help somebody, uh, you feel even better and you go, to yourself, wow, that I should do that more often. But then you get back to the apartment and you turn on the TV and you're told to do everything but that. You're told to do everything other than helping somebody else. Of course, it's getting cold now and you really want to stay masked and at least six feet away, but still going door to door and standing at a safe distance and interacting with your fellow citizens is the best antidote to people who are getting so worked up over this past election that they ended uh, like literally a friend of mine ended up in the hospital because her blood pressure went through the roof over Trump over Trump. And I said, Hey, you know, why don't you get out and help me get signatures for my, uh, for my race and for our friend, John race who's running for mayor of, of Aurora. I mean, it's nice. You talk to people, you get fresh air, you know, and it's, and it's actually, it's the talking with people and listening. You know, there's a little spiel I give, but I want to listen to people. And it just, I don't know, it resets you. It's like, oh, there's, you know, the, the community is still here. The country's still here. You know, it's just, it, they're going to be here regardless of who's elected president. Have you seen the uh, Reagan documentary that's on Showtime? No, I'm still finishing up The Crown Holy crap. You would, you know, I often have said that these people are the world's most boring people. You know, the, the British Royals. Now I'm beginning to think there's might be a reason why I think that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think I'm the, finding that to be a great show. Oh, I love the crown and yeah. I love the Royal family. I think they are brilliant. I have a neighbor who's a psychiatrist and he said to oh. me, the crown is fascinating because 
every, everything is your family dynamic. Your, your behavior is dictated by how your mother and father and your sisters and brothers treated you when you were a child. The royal family is the story of psychological dysfunction. It has to be dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. There's no way out for these people. It is a gilded prison that they are stuck in. You, and all of psychoanalysis, all of therapy is helping you distance yourself from all the people in your life who are abusive towards you. And you you get your own agency and you learn to limit your exposure to the toxic people in your life. What's so fascinating about the crown and what's so fascinating about the royal family is they're the only people in England who don't have the freedom other than people who are handicapped or have a or, or are poor and stuck in a in a uh, in a one bedroom apartment. But they are all stuck together and there's no way out. There's no way out for Prince Charles. No it's way out. Diana discovered. Yeah. Yeah. That they are. And there's there is a nobility to their lives because they didn't ask for it. They didn't fight for it. And every day of their life, they have to put on the, the costume, go somewhere and cut a ribbon and smile and shake hands and then get trashed in the press. They really do give up their lives mm-hmm. for others. I think Harry is trying to escape. Harry and Meghan are trying to escape. Yes, I think it. Prince Andrew came to Sandringham or Balmoral for Christmas last year, right after the Jeffrey Epstein story broke, and he gave that interview that was a disaster. And I think Meghan saw Prince Andrew as this deranged nut, and she said she doesn't want this for her Archie. We're getting out of here. I don't hate the royals as much. I don't think they're as much a symbol of wealth as they are a symbol of Uh, service to others and being forced to deal with your nightmarish family. They are, to me, I'm interested in them. People say I'm crazy for... No, they they are interesting. They're they're such a relic. And um, there's a a companion series going on, which is like a documentary about the royals. And it is really like uh, Prince Philip is coming out. I mean, I'm really much more impressed with Prince Philip, uh, Queen Elizabeth's husband, consort, I guess is the um, proper word, than I used to be. I mean, and his story of, because, you know, the reality was at the beginning of the last century, there was just a cohort of modern monarchs. There were about 14 of them, and they were living in the 20th century, and a lot of them drove cars, and they had telephones, and they would meet together, and among others was the, the czar of Russia, who looked just like like she could have been Elizabeth the second's uh, grandfather George twin. they they were identical same beard they were all oh, Victorias and of course they were all de- they were all descendants of Queen Victoria yeah. through one riblet or the other yeah but um, you know all of those people were gone after World War One and some of them gone violently I mean like the the Romanovs were murdered apparently Philip 
had to escape Greece because his family, with some long name, was was uh, was was Greek, and he escaped in an orange crate out of the country. His grandfather was assassinated. I mean, the Kaiser Wilhelm had escaped. Um, it was the uh, Prince Philip when he was. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying they they've all had. Yeah. Yeah, and and the other thing was they didn't get the the last name of the. Uh, of the royal family of England, they had to change it quick because they were Kobe Saxon. It was some long German name, and of course, after World War One, I, I mean, German you know, was was kind of a uh, poisonous. It was poisonous title right. for them. But they they made the decision to change their name to Windsor, right? <laughs> Which I thought was fascinating. Little tidbits of history, but it's it's weird to think that. Um, you know, there was a modern age in all these monarchies, and for some reason, this family had the wherewithal or the perspicacity or the good fortune to be able to escape the the fates of all of their fellow monarchs. So you've got the you've got the monarchy in Britain, and I think you've got the symbolic king of Sweden. And is there? A I think I think the Netherlands have they have a queen. I think Denmark they they still yeah. It was sort of a symbolic. And, and the oh, the you. Nobel Prize, there's a king. Queen Sweden, yeah. yeah. Queen of King yeah. Sweden. Well, wasn't after Franco, didn't they restore the monarchy or the Juan Carlos? And then his son yeah. took over because Juan Carlos is a elephant hunting pig, so yeah. he stepped down. Yeah. I think he left Spain. Uh, yeah. Well, a lot of those royals were like killers of animals. <laughs> it's yes. like they're always going hunting or something. Yeah, um, not not politically correct, but no, it was just it's just fascinating. I have not gotten to the point where uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher is the prime minister. I'm looking forward to that. So, yeah. all right. I thought Jeff Ross was Jeff Ross was here earlier, and I guess he didn't. We had him earlier in the show. I try to stick to the schedule today, and. But- uh, yeah. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Always uh, a privilege for us. And we'll talk about your reelection campaign, which is when is mm-hmm. that? Well, the uh, the election is April 6th. So I haven't been going door to door in the last week. I think I'm going to start that. And I guess I have to get my website all up to date pretty soon. So, you know, when I do that, I'll uh, I'll, I'll give it to Dan. Okay. So you can Great. read all, all of my proposals and where I stand. Perfect. Let's go. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Let us now go to the newsroom if Dan is there. Dan Frankenberger, are you there? We'll do community billboard and I'll, there you are. I, I don't think you should use your Zoom background because we can't see. The, the plug that you're trying to do for our pay-per-view event this Saturday night. I'll plug it, Dan, and you can uh, you can just show us your face. This Saturday night, we are doing a special event. It's called Pant Hoots and Long Calls. Join Dr. Jennifer Verlin for evening of ape stories and ape education, all to benefit the center for Great Apes. It's Saturday, December 5th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Pay what you want. Grab your tickets on Eventbrite today. 
Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right to the Eventbrite page. It's pay what you want. We're only selling 100 tickets to get up close and personal with Dr. Jennifer Verlin to talk about the, the Center for Great Apes. Everybody who buys a ticket, and it's pay what you want, will get a, a signed, a thumb-printed print of a painting of an ape painted by an ape. Everybody gets that. It's suitable for framing. It's ephemera. It'll have the provenance of the U.S. Postal Department, and you'll get it in the mail if you show up. We're also going to be doing this as a live telethon on YouTube simultaneously, and our goal is to zero out the Center for Great Apes wish list on Amazon. They need things like peanut butter. They need cleaning supplies and gloves and blankets. And it's all very specific. You'll, you'll go to their wish list and we'll try to zero it out and talk to Dr. Jennifer Vertel, an animal behaviorist whose life was changed when she did some work over at the Center for Great Apes. And she'll go through the list of what, what they need and why. And then all your money will go to the Center for Great Apes. Again, I know everybody's hitting you up right now. That's why it's pay what you want. Hello, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. You're muted. Can you hear oh, me? No. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, now I can hear you. What a day. We Jeff had Ross. Jeff Ross earlier. He was here. Yeah. I try to stick to the schedule. He got so excited that uh, the adrenaline dump, he yeah. went to sleep. Uh, well, we had him earlier. So what's in the community billboard? By the way, tell people how to contribute to community billboard. Well, if you go to dentfeldman at gmail.com, you can send me an email and I will put up anything you want. Good. Good. Anything. Just. Send it to me and I'll, I will say it. And we're doing office hours Friday nights at 9 p.m. And we're going to go around the world. I don't think we're going to be able to do it tomorrow, but we're planning to do it where it's 24 hours and we go around the world with one person hosting each hour in a different time zone to be discussed. We had uh, we had some technical problems last office hours. Right. There's a few things to learn still. And uh, it's an additional problem when there is a pay-per-view the following Saturday. Right. So we're, we're about to figure it out. There's just logistics problems. We'll we're, get fig figured. we're figuring everything out as we go along. I take full responsibility. It's a problem because of me. Yes, I blame you for everything. All my unhappiness. You know who I do not blame? Tom Weber. Tell Tom me about Weber. Tom Weber. Tom Weber is selling his uh, hand-drawn art on TomWeberArt.com. His last name is W-E-B-B-E-R. So go to TomWeberArt.com and check out his homemade art. He does pen and he does ink. I have does, some that yeah. I can't show right now. So Monday I will show his art on, uh, for the Zoom audience and for the people watching us on YouTube. 
It's really, really good. You right. should friend him on Facebook. If you're a Facebook user, friend him on Facebook because they're up there all the time. I, I don't do Twitter too much, but Facebook, he's throwing them up all the time and they're great. Another listener, uh, Joe Brinton. Yes. We, we've been talking about him the last uh, month or so. Joseph Brinton Jewelry.com. He makes, uh, he makes his own earrings. They're beautiful. If you're looking for a gift, go there and, and buy something. He's brilliant. Yep. There's a few uh, There's a, a few really cool uh, Halloween items that sold out. He had some bats and some, some cool stuff there that sold out because they were so awesome. So keep an eye on josephbrintonjewelry.com because uh, he does some good work. And he's a friend and of the show. He's a friend of the show. He's been listening since the very beginning. And he'll be hosting an hour of jazz during office hours, I believe, right? I don't remember if he was a, a jazz guy. Yeah, I, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's coming back to me. But yeah, he's a he's a big fan. The uh, the next one I have on my list is Professor Adnan Hussein. It's interesting over the last few months when I'm trying to keep track of the listeners and what they're trying to promote. Professor Hussein pretty much had a Twitter that he barely used and now he's got two podcasts. It's so it's catching this podcast thing. Yeah. Well, I think they, uh, I think some of the listeners are realizing that what they're saying is important and it's true. And, uh, professor had, and it's better to do a podcast than have to listen to this. (laughs) So he's been working with war Ricky First of all, uh, doing weekly marks and morning marks mm-hmm. on Twitter. So they've been doing that and uh, they have uh, some more in-depth discussions on Discord. But his two podcasts are the Mudgeless podcast, which the spelling is M-A-J-L-I-S. So the Mudgeless podcast. And you can also check him out with the podcast he's doing with Henry Huckamacki which is the Gorilla History Podcast. So Henry and Adnan and Brett O'Shea do that podcast. And you can check them out on Twitter at Gorilla underscore pod. And their Patreon is Gorilla History. And the link for the Libsyn podcast feed is Gorilla History. Okay. That's great. I just found there's some stories that we didn't get to. There's Jeff Ross. We were just wrapping up the show, buddy. I love this man. He's got to unmute himself. He just unmute. woke up. Hey. I tri- hey, hey, thank you. I, we were going to reschedule it. This is great. Thank you. I oh, I lost track of the time. Um, that's that's the nature of this show. I showed up first at 2 o'clock, you know, six hours ago. Now right. you come back. You've got a fucking beard. It's been so long. <laughs> Jesus, how was the show? We go. Uh, we got. No, we have no life. We. I have no life. What am I going to do? What I say. This is. Let me ask you a question. What? What was I doing all this time? I was hanging out, listening to some Clapton. What were you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> His early stuff, nineteen seventy six, I think. Yeah, the N word stuff. <laughs> So people say to me, why do you do this podcast? Why does it go so long? 
I worked on some of your television shows. There's a writing room, right? Right. We sit for, what, 12 hours? Right. And kick around ideas. Right. And you eat and you go home. And you steal the New York Times. And I, you, yes, I was guilty of stealing your New York Times. But that's what that's what we do. Dan, uh, let, let's run the community billboard past Jeff so he can learn about our community. Jeff, you'll be fascinated that we've built a community of chinwaggers who do great things. And uh, this is Dan Frankenberger. He's a, an artiste. A pretend, he dresses like a pretentious asshole for community <laughs> billboard. We were just coming up to Henry Huckamaki. Uh-huh. Do you know? <laughs> do you know? This is Jeff Ross, Dan. This is Jeff, Jeff, Dan. I, th- I know who he is. I doubt he knows who I am. <laughs> but if you're ever looking for a pretentious douchebag, Dan is the man. He's he's got the Mersham, the beret, and the scarf. He look, I think he looks pretty good. He looks like a hipster. He looks like a hipster. Yeah. Or needs a new hipster. Let me pull up. Let me pull up his uh, his uh, his image here. It's unfortunate that I owned all these things to do. This. Oh, look at this! <laughs> wow. So Henry Huckamaki, his Twitter like is. To, looks like a, it looks like he's about to paint his own suicide note. <laughs> Oh, wait a second. I can. Yeah. I Hang on. Oh, keep going. I, I, let me get my uh, let me get hooked up here. Hang on. My hopefully my machine will work. Go ahead. Let me get hooked up here. Jeff, Jim Earl told me the other day that uh, I look like I was about to solve the crime I just committed. <laughs> was it a fashion crime? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Jesus! All right, so Jim, what's what's going on behind you? Is this why the vaccine's taking so long? <laughs> you stopped to do a seven-hour podcast. <laughs> what's going on behind him there? He's got vials, and is my my garage sale decanter set? Jeez, all right. Well, uh, I'm glad you had a good show, David. Let's get it's just starting. You're here. Mm. <laughs> I'm waiting for my computer to start so I can do my sound effects. I got uh, two or three more. Henry Huckamaki. Yeah. Go to his Twitter at Huck1995. Right. And his Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Huck1995 and hit him on his Cash App. And that is dollar sign Henry Huckamaki, H-A-K-A-M-A-K-I. And this Saturday, we have the fundraiser with uh, Dr. Jen Verlin, and that's called Pant Hoots and Long Calls. And we're doing that to raise funds for the Center for Great Apes. And that's going to be a great show. You can go to David's website, davidfeldenshow.com, and hit the pay-per-view button. And that'll bring you to Eventbrite to grab a ticket. And lastly, I have uh, Jim Earl and Martha Previtt. We had their uh, fundraiser event for diabetes awareness last week, Diabetic Fury. We raised a lot have, of money. Yeah. Their Twitter Twitter accounts are uh, at Diabetic Fury, at Jim Earl 666, at Martha Previtt. And uh, Martha has her own Patreon account, 
which is patreon.com forward slash Martha Previtt, P-R-E-V-I-T-E. And we're doing a a special showing. Jeff would be interested in this. There's a guy named Ed Larson. Do you know Ed Larson, Jeff? My cousin Ed. He said said you might bring him up. Yeah, we're doing a special showing of how America killed my mother. We're doing that in January. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Always a pleasure. We can't do this show without you. Thank you. So long. So long. Uh, it's good to see. You. I'm just firing up my sound effect. That was the newsroom. We have a newsroom. Yes, we do. We oh. we do a lot of great work here. More like the snooze room. <laughs> so uh, let me get my machine going, and then I can. Uh, hey, the, the cellar is closed. I was on David Juskow's show yesterday. Live from the cellar. When they when they told me the cellar is closed, does that mean permanently or they're no, just? What do you mean? There's a lockdown. Everything's closed. But I. But they're not. But they're going to reopen, right? I mean, of course. Have you ever seen anything like this? This is going to be like the, the pandemic. I just talked my buddy into not going to his sister's wedding in New Jersey. That's how bad. I mean, it's really heartbreaking. Oh, because. Uh, that way you don't have to buy a gift. <laughs> it's just, it's, the numbers are crazy. They are, it's, it's, it's terrible. But all things considered, I, I thought it was a pretty good year. Yeah, yeah. What do you miss most about stand-up? The people? The I miss the comics, hanging out with comics. I, I, I miss being on stage, but not as much as I miss after the show, hanging out with my pals. I yeah. like I love the camaraderie and I like seeing the fans making people laugh and the meet and greets, you know, seeing what what con- after 10 months or whatever of quarantine and the depression so high around the world and suicide rates and divorce rates. I would imagine that comedy should be considered a central business by now, but it's just not. Yeah. You know what? Uh, there's some other tragedies that are going on right now that are underreported. Mm. That, that I want to tell you about. For example, did you know that Ryan Seacrest just listed his Beverly Hills estate for $85 million? Really? That's how bad the economy million. is, that Ryan Seacrest needed to sell his $85 million home. Wow. Central you- calling compound for Ellen. Wow. Have you ever been in an $85 million home? Um, good question. You've been in some pretty nice people's homes, but that's because you're a cat burglar. <laughs> I did visit Michael Jackson's old estate the other day. Not the Neverland one, but the one that he actually passed away in is in Beverly Hills. And a friend of mine had an uh, outdoor dinner there. It was interesting. And that had to be, that's probably a, close to a $50 million house or something. I mean, maybe it's 85 million. Who the fuck knows? At that point, I can't even imagine what that is. I've been in Buckingham Palace on a tour. That's got to be up there. And I've been to the White House, so that's got to be it. You were at the White House? I've been there a few times. Under what president? Uh, Under, uh, I took a tour under Obama, but never met him there. I met him elsewhere. And I've been to the White House under Trump, I think, twice. You know Trump, right? 
I went once uh, at the invitation of uh, of Van Jones um, and the president for a criminal justice reform signing ceremony. Oh, with Kanye and no, no, no. This was with uh, Cut Fifty and Van Jones's group, Jessica Jackson's group. It was beautiful. My friend Steve Ross at Artists and Athletes Alliance turned me on to this organization called Cut Fifty that basically helps people that shouldn't be in prison anymore get out. Right. You know, you know imagine going to jail for something that's now legal, like weed. It's ridiculous. Right. Do you know who this is? Let's see if you can guess who this is with the shaved head. Oh, I know who that is. That's Mosimo. That's Mosimo. He shaved his head for prison. I did that too. When I performed at Brazos County Jail, I shaved my head. Yeah, too. but you also shaved your legs and your ass. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> I can do bumping mics with you, can I? If it, if one of the uh, what, if one of the uh, Nazis that I roasted reaches out to me on Instagram, <laughs> would you answer or not answer? I would. I, I would answer. I would reach across the aisle. <laughs> There's good people on both sides. They're good people on both sides. And you flew on a helicopter with Trump, didn't you? Uh, no, I flew on his plane. You flew on his plane? Long time ago, about 15 years ago, I bet. Was yeah. he, he might, this is what I maintain, that if you want to, if you want a friend, George W. Bush would make a great friend. Trump would make a great friend. Just don't give them, don't give them the keys to this country, right? Of course. I mean, you know, of course. But luckily, you know, this too sh shall pass. Yeah, yeah. What did, did he, did he make you? Inauguration, I think he's not, I think Trump's going to go to Florida for New Year's and he'll be either playing golf when Joe Biden gets sworn in or he'll be having a rally in Florida. Right. Yeah. Where it's warm. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's not going to go there. He's not going to run again. Let me ask you. Finally, now that he's, Trump has finally fulfilled his childhood boyhood dream of, <laughs> suing, of suing Wisconsin. <laughs> here's, where, here's where it all went wrong. When you said yes to coming on my show, is it? I love coming on this show. Thank you. Tell me what you think about this. And okay. You know, I, you know I, I roast both sides of the aisle. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And this isn't even a roast. This is a comedic observation. You know, comics sell merch on the road, right? I go on my bumping mics tour. I sell bumping mic shirts. We sell them afterwards. Like comedians, entertainers, we understand merch. Trump understands merch. He made a lot of money, financed you know, a lot of parts of his campaign by selling those red hats in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Make America great again, red hats, $45 a hat. And now all things are rerun. It's the same red hat, it's four years later. Nobody, everyone has it already. All he had to do was let Fauci take care of COVID. If he did a good job, he could take, Trump could say, I, you know, I, I take credit. If he did a bad job, he could blame Fauci. All he had to do was say, or he could do it the same exact way that he did it. All he had to do was say, 
Instead of the hats, now we all got to wear red MAGA masks. $30 on my website, he would have financed his whole campaign. Uh -huh. And we'd all be cured of COVID by now, and Trump would have won re-election. <laughs> he needed you advising him. He should have called me. You know, as a comedian, I bet I sell a lot more merch than you do, because I work at The Gap. <laughs> Did you see I leaned in on I leaned I can't find my God, I'm trying to look for my sound covered, effect baby. machine. I, got you covered. I, got you covered. I know, but I got some good sound effects that I put away and now I can't find a, a fucking yeah, we thing. don't need them. We don't need them. Okay, need all right. You're right. I'll just focus. I'll stay in the moment. Uh what do you think of Kamala? Kamala. Kamala. Um she's wonderful. I think she'll be great. You, She'll be a great president in six months. <laughs> and her and her husband is the first Jew. We're going to have a not only our first male in the vice presidency's home, but our our first Jewish. Does that does that make you proud? I think it's wonderful that nobody cares. That's the best <laughs> part about it is that we're all we're so assimilated Jews since I was a kid even, that no one cares. It's not even a big deal. It's like, yeah, of course we have a woman. Of course we have a Jew. It's like, yeah. I mean, I think it's amazing, actually. And what are you doing for the holidays? Are you going to have a Christmas party, a super spreader party? I know you like, I, I know you like to spread COVID this time of year. <laughs> I know. Uh, the, 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 I'm, in, I'm in Los Angeles where we are in a major lockdown again and everyone is saying the the mayor is saying you know don't even go on a walk so you got to stay home there's nothing there's nothing uh i don't know what to do except hang with my my very old and sick german shepherd oh uh, how old is he nana <laughs> uh oh oh shit nana how old is nana I might have to take her pulse. <laughs> Shit, if she dies on your fucking show, David. <laughs> Why not? Everybody else does. <laughs> Where'd you I, get the dogs? I, I got her. Uh, she's rescued. I got her during quarantine. quarantine and um, she's a German shepherd. Her name, her name is uh, Nana um, because she's old. But she also, you know... She's a movie dog that retired. She she tortured. I don't know if you saw uh, Zero Dark Thirty, but she tortured the detainees. She, she, really? She she was in, she's a show business dog. Yeah, and she also got hit by a bus in Airbud Three. Are, are you putting me on? Yes, you are putting me on. Well, you know, it's just movie jokes. What would an old German Shepherd have played other than? torturing people at Guantanamo Bay. Or I, I was thinking, I, I had a great joke planned, if this was true, because there's the only German shepherd who loves the mailman because the residuals are coming. <laughs> <laughs> one, of your, one of your listeners says, Nana was so old, she's, she was in triumph of the will. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's see if any of my listeners have any questions for you. Let me they see. I have, if you have a question for Jeff Ross, raise your hand and he'll be very nice to you let's see nobody has their hand raised let me see what's in the q a uh 
did the assassination have something to do with Mohammed bin Salman meeting Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, that's from six hours ago. <laughs> it was for a different guest. Why don't you answer questions for uh, other guests? Here, Dr. I don't want to talk to your fucking guests. Here, this is a question. This is an animal question. I am getting a kitten, but I've been advised to get two to keep each other company. Does this sound like a good idea to you? Yes, I got a second German Shepherd. I got a, a puppy to keep Nana company. And when Nana passes away someday, I'll have... At least I'll have my other dog will have known Nana and she'll know that our bond is tight. Do they get along? I think dogs need to get along. One's very old, one's very young. So, you know, they kind of teach each other and spend time with each other and keep each other active. And but for the most part, Nana just sleeps a lot. I'm, I'm 30% sure she passed away. <laughs> <laughs> Cause of death, listening to the David Feldman show. <laughs> Lane in CM England, you have a question Hi, for Jeff. Hi Jeff, I'd like to say I'm a massive fan and I'm really grateful to see um, a representative of the ugly fat community uh, making it and uh, becoming famous. And uh, what is the well. ugly fast? What is this? I know, ugly and fat community. <laughs> <laughs> You're, rep you're representing like um like nobody's business. It's like uh, there's you, um that dead guy who was friends with um No MacDonald. Follows <laughs> it. He's not as well. Chris Farley. Yeah, so keep it up for the uh, fat people. Cheers, man. Uh, uh, I have nice fun. listeners, don't I? I like getting roasted. People, uh, I, I get roasted all the time. I let people roast me on my podcast. Did you ever roast somebody during the way, Go to Stereo. David and I should do this sometime. Download this app, Stereo, and you can have conversations recorded really well with your head with your headset. You and I could talk and record it through this app, and people can ask us questions live through the app, and that's how I do my podcast now. It's called Stereo. Yeah. And this is if you want to have a good podcast, right? No, I, I mean, I, 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 what you don't, what you lose in quality, you make up in quantity. Because <laughs> everybody, everybody listens to podcasts and they go, I wish it was longer and less thought out. <laughs> you know what this, you know what my show is? Here's, here's the business model for my show. Cause it's you a, have a background. It's a I'm, camera on you for 10 hours. This is my business model. You grew up in catering, right? Yeah. This is the business model for my podcast. Remember when you were younger, you'd walk into McDonald's. Yeah. And the manager would say, I just made a batch of fries that fell on the floor and the cat shat on them. We're giving them away for free. Would you like it? And you go, yes, all I can eat. That's that's what my podcast is. It's it's bountiful. I think it's great, man. I think if you, no one loves being on Zoom. Maybe Jeffrey Tubin. <laughs> Other than that, I don't know anybody who loves being on Zoom as much as you. I, you know, I'm lonely. It's it's you know a scary time. So it's you know you reach out, you do a show, you see your what is old. The show called. What is the show called? 
Yeah. I know it's the David Feldman show, but what's the theme of the thing? The long. Oh, we call it the mop up because. Mop up. Yeah. Kind of like your old job at Show World. (laughs) Remember that? Every time I went to Show World, hey, there's Jeff Ross with the mop cleaning up after after me. What was the worst job you've ever had? You've had some bad jobs. Or were you a comedian from the minute you were born? Oh, no. I, I had lots of bad jobs. Uh, I worked as a short order cook at Charlie's Cafeteria Deli in Kenmore Square in Boston, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And that was a hard job, having cab drivers throw fucking BLTs back at me if they weren't right. And, but you were and, cooking. Oh, yeah. I was a cook. I would I would make hamburgers, cheeseburgers, BLTs, omelets, you know, all that kind of stuff all night long during college. I'd sleep an hour or two and then go to class. And get some more sleep there. <laughs> Didn't you go to Russia? I went to Russia my senior year in college, yeah. I want to go back. What, why, why did you go? See, a lot of people don't realize who you really are. What do you mean? You're a mole for the KGB. No, you, you studied, you wanted to go into foreign affairs, right? Weren't you going to? I studied political science in college, Um I don't think about that so much, but I guess in in some ways I really was fascinated by world affairs, but I did go to college. My, my, I was a political science minor, my sophomore or junior year and my dad passed away and my mom was already gone. So I was like, what am I going to do for Christmas? And I heard about my political science teacher taking his classmates from the major to Russia for two weeks. So I asked if I could go as the film, as the one film major and they let me go. And it was a very, very cool, maybe eye opening, life changing experience. It was really cool. This was when the Soviet Union was still around. Correct. It was what, right. It was the same New Year's that, um, that, uh, that Reagan called Gorbachev and kind of broke the ice. So that would be like 85. Yeah, that's yeah. when I went. You went in 85. Cool. I highly recommend a trip to see how the other, this apparent, you know, red scare country, like Russian people are so soft and nice and good sense of humor and wonderful, wonderful people is my recollection. And what was the, uh, what were the accommodations like? Um, we stayed in decent hotels. It was like 20 college, 15 college students and a professor. It was it was awesome. And uh, I didn't have some meals with some what they called back then refuseniks. I remember bringing some art back with me for some people. Didn't you invite two refuseniks back to your hotel room and they peed on? They refused. Oh, they refused to pee on. <laughs> That's why they're called refuseniks. <laughs> Were they unhappy back then? Were they? I've heard that they, some of them are nostalgic for. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know. You know, they they didn't know America the way they know it now. So they were content. And you know, it's when it's a freezing cold and you have to wait online for everything, as they did in the Soviet Union in the eighties. Then everything's kind of fun, you know. You have a very low bar of what's fun, so you know it was fun. I think people were generally happy. Yeah. Yeah. Did you smoke dope in Russia? Uh, Where's drank. the? Huh? We drank, but I didn't smoke pot there. Where's the scariest place you and your wife 
smoked pot. Me and my wife? I'm doing a newlywed question. Oh. In the um, butt, Bob. <laughs> what? <laughs> where's, the, where's the funkiest place? Where's the scariest place you've ever smoked dope? Did you ever smoke dope in the White House? No. Uh, I had to think about it, but no. <laughs> where, where is it the one place? I was stoned once. I got stoned and went to the White House. So I was stoned at the White House once. Right. I'm not going to say anymore. Weren't you stoned in Saudi Arabia? I've never been to Saudi Arabia. I thought you were stoned in Saudi Arabia for, for, being, letting, a Jew? for, for being a Jew. Uh, when did you first smoke dope? Um, high school. No, I mean today. When did you start smoke? Right here when I called your podcast. <laughs> what You started in high school? Yeah. Now, I a lot of people. Joints, I sold joints at my prom. <laughs> How old were you when you smoked your first joint? Can I turn these comments off and just talk to you? Sure. Why are they? What are they? Asking? No, I just have it on my screen, and I can't help but want to write jokes. I know, I know. Jokes, well, if you put, if you go into the Q and A, we'll answer them. So you smoked I don't your. I want to answer questions. I want to just talk to you. Okay, you smoked your first. I just did a two-hour podcast of answering questions. It's fun talking to you because I haven't seen you in so long. And um, did you eat or use the bathroom during this six-hour podcast? They 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 literally bet on whether or not I have to pee. I had a pee today. I've been drinking smoothies in the morning with and uh, and I find now that I'm drinking smoothies, I have to pee during the show. But I, I, you, I you have a blender and you make your own smoothies. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. That's why you look good. That's why you have the energy to do a marathon because you're, 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 uh, you're juicing. It's the, I don't know why people think this is hard to sit and talk to your friends. What, 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 why is this hard? I mean, to be good at it, I guess, would make it difficult. But I just I, I did a, I did a, I do these, these chats on my podcast and I find them exhausting. Because I want to be good. You want to be on. You want to be prepared. Exhausting know? or for you, impossible. <laughs> they are. It is cathartic. I do find podcasting cathartic. Yeah, I love it. And I like that you use your audience and chat with your audience. I think that's, you know, it's a good feeling when you're done that you had a communal experience. It's awesome. Yeah, there, there's definitely a community here of very bad people in the chat room who are trying to undermine my career. And I try to explain to them, I can do that all by myself. So how old were you when you smoked your first joint? It's probably 16. 16. Yeah. And David, Gold, David Gold's backyard. David Gold's backyard. It didn't, at first. it didn't even hit me at first. I didn't even feel stoned. Did you feel you were doing something wrong? I knew I was doing something wrong. We had to sneak into the woods. It was planned out for weeks. But my friend David Gold, I think we smoked at his porch. His dad was kind of old and didn't care. So we got away with it for some reason. What, did I ever tell you my the first time I smoked pot, Howie Greenberg, it was my it was the summer after I graduated from high school. And Howie says to me, well, you got to get high. You're 18 years old. This is what it, 
what a what a yeshiva booker I was. I go upstairs and I say to my mother and father, I'm I swear to God, Jeff, I say, I will be experimenting with marijuana in the basement. I just want you to know that. <laughs> this eighteen virgin never smoked dope. I just want you to know Howie and I will be experimenting with marijuana. That's beautiful. Hang on. And they go, okay, good. Thank you for telling us, you know, uh, we can't stop you. You're 18. Uh, just don't drive or anything. I went down into the basement with Howie Greenberg and I experimented with marijuana from my senior year in high school till I was 30. <laughs> it was the longest. It was like I it was it was equivalent to watching. I remember watching the Dean Martin show and the gold diggers yeah. came on and I got an erection. And I went, what is this? And it was the pot just went, oh, my God, what have I been? Where have you been my whole life? And I Led to alcohol and pills, and uh, I I stopped everything. When so I I was a good boy. Did you stop it all at the same time, or yes. did you stop one thing at a time? I had to stop at the yeah. So what do you? What's your indulgence now? How do you? Where do you put that energy? Uh, coffee. Uh, I don't think I have an addictive personality. Doing a nine-hour podcast. That's does. Uh, I put it into. Uh, work that doesn't seem to be successful, but I put it into, uh, I, I worked for you. I put it into uh, work. We work together. Let's say we work together. I, I thought you were going to say, why didn't I get any of that <laughs> obsessive behavior? From yeah, Jesus Christ, folks. David Feldman comes in an hour late, leaves an hour early, and gets the most jokes on the show. <laughs> that was just... <laughs> I, uh, the I, hardest call to make, I would rather call Sylvester Stallone and tell him to be in a ballet than have to call David Feldman to offer him a great gig. <laughs> no matter what it is, he's like, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's tough to rev you up, but once you're revved up, you're the greatest. Ah, thank you're you. picky is what I'm saying. It's a, I'm trying to say that you're uh, top shelf only. You only do stuff you're passionate about. I'm lazy. Uh, I'm uh, so. Let's go back to you. You're a black belt. You were the youngest black belt in New Jersey. Is that correct? I was the second youngest in the country. You were the second. There are things about you that nobody knows. You were the second youngest, second youngest black belt in the country. In karate in Taekwondo karate in a, in America. You can look it up. It was in the Star Ledger. Our New Jersey newspaper. And how old were you? Ten and a half. Ten and a half. Black belt at ten and a half. I started at six, right, 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 right as I turned seven, and went like practiced every day for three or four years, and moved up really quickly, and competed in tournaments, and I was teaching other kids when I was a kid, and running classes, and I was obsessed with it. it I went to the House of Empty Hands Karate School in Newark, New Jersey, in the Vauxhall section of Newark, and I was taught by police detectives, the Roselli brothers. The Roselli brothers. 
It was a great experience. And how you were how old? A little kid. Ten? I was I was already competing by ten and teaching by ten. When I was eight, my boogers were a registered weapon. They had to register my boogers at uh, you were teaching at ten, but your body were you how tall were you? I was little, but I was fast and I was dedicated and I learned respect and I learned discipline and I learned that if you work really, really hard at something, you can be not just great, but you can be the best. And that was a great lesson to learn. And karate taught me, my parents died when I was young, but they got me to karate. And my mom just died a few years after that, but she kind of got me to a place where I could survive on my own. And I, we were in Newark, there was no physical education in my school. So I was becoming like kind of soft. So my mom dragged me kicking and screaming to karate school when I was six or maybe just seven. And that was it. And then you I, started kicking and screaming. Hi -ya! Hi, hi, hi. She loved it so much that she, that she was making a difference and toughening me up. Like I really misbehaved one time and uh, she went to smack me because that's what you did back then. And I instinctively blocked it with a karate block and I broke her, I, I fractured her finger and it hurt so much. She was crying and laughing at the same time. Really? She, wow. She knew she had created like a karate guy that like she knew, like I didn't, it's my mom swinging at me and all day I've been practicing. So like, you know, I'm a little seven year old. Someone hits you, 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 I knew the moves. Wow. And she was proud of herself for taking me to karate, but also like pissed that I was, that I broke her finger. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's, I, as people don't realize at 10 years old, you had a black belt. I don't think I've ever told that story. Yeah. When I was 12, I had a black belt around my neck to heighten the orgasms. <laughs> <laughs> and well, you, were you angry? I always think like if you're going to study martial arts, you have to have it's like some there has it's controlled anger, right? You're never angry. You're. you're Right? Were you an angry kid? No, I'm not an angry person. You're not an angry person. No. I see the silver lining in everything. At least I try to. Sometimes it's hard. Yeah. But you're, I've never seen you angry. I've never seen uh, you mad. Is that from the martial uh, arts or the horse track? I very or? rarely get mad because life sucks. Like my early life, parts of my early life were really hard and painful. You know, my mom was sick for a long time, and then my dad died suddenly, and I learned. Or I was and you had to take care of your grandfather and your sister. Yeah, and you know, you can't you can't get angry. It doesn't move you forward. You know, it's it's not productive. And I was always wanting to feel better or wanting to have a good life. I didn't want to be a victim of bad luck. So I tried to turn everything into happy accidents. You, you kind of raised your sister. You had to take care of your grandfather because he wasn't feeling well, right? Yeah, he had cancer. I lived with him in New Jersey. We didn't have a lot of family around, so we lived together. You lived in My pop jack, that's his ring I'm wearing. Have I showed you this before? No, what is that? It's a bolt from a uh, submarine, a Nazi submarine. Oh, that's right. He was a Nazi. He was a he was oh, he was a Das Boot. He was he was in the U.S. Coast Guard. 
And he took that off a bolt off a. Yeah, he took a boat. They captured a someone. Ca- you know, the Navy captured a submarine and dragged it back to Baltimore Harbor, where he was stationed. And he was part of the crew that took it apart. And somehow he got a ring and hollowed it out. It's a little big on me. He had big catcher mitt hands. But this is a this is the ring. Did he ever see you do stand up? Um, he saw one videotape um, of an open mic. I showed him one time. He was really getting sick when I started stand up, and he was starting to. We were all getting really sick when you started stand up. Nineteen eighty nine, like March, April, May, June, that whole summer. I think he died that year. Um, right after I started and it saved my sanity just being able to do those open mics while I was living with my grandfather and taking him to the doctor and I think he was in the hospital for seven months out of the last two years of his life in and out, in and out, in and out and you know I finally took him to uh, well I showed him a videotape of an open mic and I think he kind of got it and was sort of you know somehow delighted by it wasn't really sure what to make of it but i think he got a kick out of it um now where did you see stand-up back then, but back then you know it didn't even make sense when you said hey yeah i'm doing stand-up comedy you know i said that to one guy in the building that i used to work and he said oh no, don't worry you'll figure it out you'll fi- something will happen you know like in other words that was like saying i was going on vacation like it was not going to be a life it was like a you know, that, that, that could only be a hobby. Mm-hmm. It is your life. I, I cannot, you know, people say to me, how do you do these 40 hour podcasts? When I hang out with you, you live stand up. You, you live near the cellar. You have dinner at the cellar. You perform at the cellar. You stand on the street talking to the audience. I can't keep up with you. You live and breathe stand-up. You've turned your entire life over to stand-up comedy. You have. It's also taken me in, so it's a two-way arrangement. I mean, it is, you, you go to the comedy store, and you're not just thinking about your set. You're thinking about who you're going to run into. You watch stand-up. You love stand-up comedy. I do. When did that start? Was it, was that before you did stand up comedy? I loved stand up, but didn't recognize what it was. For me, stand up, the stand ups that I liked were not recognized. I didn't see them as comics. They were rock stars. It was Steve Martin playing banjo and making these huge arena jokes, and Eddie Murphy in a leather suit, and the Blues Brothers doing a rock concert and and Cheech and Chong. These were rock stars. So I had all those albums. I would play them right after my Kiss album or Queen album. So it didn't even, it didn't register to me that I was a comedy fan until I actually was told I should be a comedian, you know, many, many years later. As a little kid, comedy, I loved comedy, but I didn't know that it was called comedy. It was just like, oh, here, this song's great. And then it was no different than the rocks. It, it was all, it was all rock and roll to me. What about your, your father ran a catering hall? Yeah. Were there comedians who passed through? 
Um, no, Ray Charles rehearsed there once, but it was all weddings and bar mitzvahs. And every now and then there was a corporate convention type thing we'd get to look at. But um, the, I, I, I realized later, you know, I never got to talk to my dad about comedy because he died before I started. So I had a friend of his who I've never met in person, but he reached out to me. This guy, David Bernstein, still lives in New Jersey. And through Dave Juskow, he met Dave Juskow socially over the summer. Um, somehow my name came up and and th this guy brought my name up to Juskow and and he was like a, an usher or a best man or something at my parents' wedding. And, and he knew my dad. He was telling me all these funny stories about my dad. Um, so I see that my dad was funny and I remember my dad being funny, but you know, it's all kind of a right. happy miracle. Tell I me about Dave, Dave Juskow. He was on this. But I do remember my parents coming home one night, laughing, laughing, laughing. They were probably stoned, a little drunk, telling us about seeing, telling my sister Robin and I about seeing Cheech and Chong. Your parents were into Cheech and Chong? I saw them at, uh, in Vegas or at Catch a Rising Star or both. Yeah, they saw Cheech and Chong live, and that's when I started to hear about, like, this cool comedy. So they were intellectuals. I don't know. <laughs> it was hip back then. <laughs> they had a sense of humor. Juskow. He was just on the show playing I Dominic Dominic. I saw that. Okay. This is Explain to me what the story is with him. Every time I see him... I, I go, you got to do my show. And he makes me laugh. Why isn't he like a household name? Uh, he is just not in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Uh, no, well, just gal, you have to recognize is brilliant and hilarious. And one of my favorite funny people, but he's only been a professional for maybe two or three years. What do you mean? He, he was working day jobs right up until recently he never fully committed so he was always funny and hilarious but now i think people are recognizing him because he's taken the time to recognize himself become go pro and dedicate his time to his craft so i think now he's getting big breaks like coming on the day <laughs> so when you did stand up for the first time did a light go on with me a light went on, like smoking dope or seeing the gold diggers on the Dean Martin show. My First life changed. Huh? Yeah, I loved it. You knew right away this is it. Um, I knew that I was addicted right away. I didn't know it was a life. It took at least a year for me to go. I'm a comedian. I need to change Jeff Lifshultz to something more manageable. And this is probably going to be a road to something. And I promised myself that um, if I did stand up on TV even once, that would be enough. And I'd be able to quit if I had to or wanted to. I wouldn't be an addict to it. It's in my imagination, because we yeah. just celebrated Thanksgiving. Did you do Letterman Thanksgiving weekend? No, no, no. Or was it a tell? I remember it was thanks. Either you or a tell did Letterman. I don't know we did it on Thanksgiving. I don't remember anything like that. You or a tell did it on Thanksgiving. But 
Maybe it was a tell. I think it might have been a tell. That must have been Dave. You did it in the middle of the Hajj. That's right. I remember. The, just, <laughs> I did it. It was one I of those it. holidays. It was so exciting. That was one of the highlights of my life. You did, you did a karate everything, kick. Everything you think, it's on YouTube. I looked at it the other day. I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. Somebody posted it on YouTube. But uh, uh, Jeff Ross Letterman, 1995, I think it is. You did a karate kick at the end. I, got, I didn't know what to do with my hands. I was so used to holding a microphone. And then you go out on Letterman and there's no mic. You have a mic on that your That was jacket. Jeffrey Tubin's excuse. <laughs> That reminds me, I'm, I have a Zoom with him in 20 minutes. <laughs> Were you nervous the first time you did it? I was excited. I was. It was too last minute. They called me the night before, and I was in L.A. I had to catch a red-eye fly all night, take a nap, and do it. So It's the best um, way to do it. If it's on the books, it's like you know yeah. when your execution is. And it, it was a Thursday night. It was a big deal, and... And yeah, I don't know if I was nervous. I think I was really present in the moment. I remember being backstage and I was thinking, oh man, how do I just walk out there? Can I can I run? So I say to Biff, you know, Dave started to introduce me and all this. And, and uh, I say to Biff, who's like the stage manager, even though he be, he's famous, he's really the stage manager. And he's holding the curtain. He's ready to pull it back as soon as Dave says my name. And I don't really hear what Dave's saying. It's backstage. I don't, I've never been around a set like that. The Ed Sullivan theater. And uh, I go, Biff, um, can I run out there? Or do I have to walk? Can I run? And he goes, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Is part, is part of the nervousness when you do something like a high pressure gig like that is that it it's going to end like like psychologically you're standing on on the stage the Letterman stage the Ed Sullivan Theater and you only get five and a half six minutes and psychologically four minutes it was quick. four minutes. I think so. But it, with your set, it felt like seven minutes. <laughs> I, the, the, uh, that it's going to come to an end. Like you're only going to get to do this. If you're lucky, you only get to do Letterman. You've done it. But, you know, but the idea that this is it, this is, I'm only going to do this once. I'm always, you know, to that point, like, I love when you get a gig and it's far in advance. I love looking forward to a gig. You know, things are exciting. You do it two days later. But when you when they say, you know, you got a big gig and you get to talk about it and plug it and, and advance it. I love all that, you know, kind of eat off it. It's like dine off it, I should say. Like, I love that. Like, hey, I'm doing a shooting a special with next month, you know, and it's the best time when you really get dreaming about something. It's not even real yet. It's, it's a good feeling. Or just having a gig in the books, just saying like somebody calls you and says they want you to play this room and it, it feels like you're landing. I, I don't fish, but it, it still feels like, oh, I got, and it can be like an absolute hell gig but it's on the yeah. books and it feels right. right. It just feels yeah. good to put something. It feels good to have something on the books. You right. know, my friend Bertie Shine likes to say, uh, 
You got to sell tickets when the circus is in town. <laughs> hey, what's the story? Is the Friars Club open? What is going on there? I'm not sure. I'm not even sure. I think it's open. Everything. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think anything's open right now in New York, but I think it's open for the most part. Everything. This really is a like before the pandemic and after the pandemic. The, even like nine eleven. This is nine eleven was big, but this is the thing where we will separate. Oh, that was before the pandemic. We, you will. We will find ourselves saying. 50 years from now when this is over. Oh, that's right. That was before the pandemic. You just remind me what 9-11 was again? Uh, I think it came near the end of... Technically, summer was still going on. But it was around... It was that time when right... I don't know. It was around like September, I think. I think it was around September. I never remember. And where, did it, where was it? New York. It was in New York. Staten Island. New York, parts of start when <laughs> kind of spread, spread. Where were you before you go? Where were you on nine eleven? Um, I was in um, my apartment at three hundred Mercer Street. How far away was that? Less than a mile. Tough day. Tough day. Scared, you know, for, really, for me, it's horrible. Scared. You know my story, right? No. My third wife and I were living in... Should I do the bit? Yeah. <laughs> I think this is the second time I've done it this month. Uh, oh, no, my, my, you know, my third wife and I lived in Manhattan, and uh, she worked in the World Trade Center, and uh, I kissed her goodbye, and uh, she borrowed my Palm Pilot, and... Uh, Two hours later, the towers came down, and I thought, what kind of vengeful, vindictive God would take my wife and my Palm Pilot with all the names of my ex-girlfriends in it? Who would, what kind of God would do that? And I remember I went down to Ground Zero, I had a picture of the Palm Pilot. Have you seen this Palm Pilot? And nobody, all right. I like the bit. I, I like the bit. I think you need, uh, anyway. Uh, I think cell phone might be, I think it's okay to say cell phone and the bit would work better. No, there'd be I'm, some I'm asshole. Not I'm not condoning this bit. <laughs> but the word pilot, when it steps on 9-11, you're waiting for a twist on pilot. And it feels like a even worse joke than the one. Oh, you're right. Know. You know what? You're right. No one remembers Palm Pilot. You're right. You're absolutely right. She borrowed my iPhone. Laptop. No, my phone. My, my phone. Beeper. My beeper, if you want to be cute. Or I yeah. think you have to set it up by saying making it about your phone in the first place. Or I think you're I right. Have, you can say I used to have a flip phone, or I used to have a yeah. But what is. But now, let me ask you a question. A lot of reference. Don't we as comedians have what a... Do I know? I've only been doing comedy 31 years. Successfully. Don't you have a moral responsibility for your jokes to be historically accurate? You did historical roasts. Yeah. On Netflix. Check it out, folks. Yeah. 
people should check that out. I love you, buddy. It's great to see you. I hope we'll do this more often until the pandemic is over and then you'll actually have something to do. <laughs> One day we're going to miss this pandemic. I like being home. I like it. I like having nothing to do. I like being home. I've never stayed home in 30 years. I've been on the road every week. This is great, man. I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that because you, they're dead. He's dead. She's dead. Nana's dead. You can see she's having a little dream there. Her paws are moving. Oh, she's Nana. running in her sleep. Nana. How's Nana? Oh, Nana. Show's over, Nana. You can wake up now. <laughs> Come here, Nana. Isn't she cute? Yeah. I don't think she you've, you've taught your dog to play dead by killing her. <laughs> it's the only dog who begs for statins. Uh, she's well, old. She's beautiful. She's old. She has cancer in her back leg over here. So really? How old is she? You know, I don't know. The, the, the vet says double digits, so whatever that means. When he's expressing her anal glands, or <laughs> she's never been fixed. Interestingly enough, she was found on the street. She's beautiful. She's holding my hand. I don't know if you can see that. She's beautiful. Is she in pain? No, she's pretty. She gets she gets good drugs. She's a happy dog. We went on a walk today, and she she's she's my sweet nana. She's a good. She's yeah. more fun than she seems tonight. No, she's they're delicious. I mean, emotionally delicious. <laughs> Why do you have a slight Hitler mustache for the... You're the second that? person who noticed that. Laura House mentioned that. It's not even a Hitler mustache. It's like an homage. It's like you're trying to impress Hitler. Like not copy him. Not copy him. Because that would be just, you know, that would be disrespectful. Like, did anyone ever try to, like, like, butter up to Hitler by getting a Hitler mustache? That would be a funny thing. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. I uh, somebody else. I think what's happened is the rest of my beard has gone gray, but my uh, there's something uh, Hitler. I, I don't know. My I seem to uh, be growing a Hitler beard. I, yeah. I will have the first Hitler beard. All right. Well, my German Shepherd says, "Great job." <laughs> <laughs> I love you, buddy. Thank you so I, much. I, Kyle Feldman. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for doing this. That was fun. Bye, Bye yeah. everybody. I'll, I'll give you a call tomorrow. Day. Thank you, Jeff. That's okay. Jeff Ross, everybody. See you, pal. See you. Thank you. We're going to wrap it up. He showed up at the beginning and he showed up at the end. And everybody should know who David Juskow is. He's a, a brilliant comedian. He played uh, Pete Dominic's grandfather, Dominic Dominic. On today's show, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Thank you for helping out. I want to remind everybody that we're doing our big benefit for the great apes. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit the pay-per-view button, and it'll take you right to Eventbrite. It's Saturday night at 930. It's a benefit for the center for great apes. Pay what you want. 
anybody who we're only selling 100 tickets, anybody who purchases a ticket will get a signed painting of an ape of an ape and will be sent to you. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view. It'll take you to the Eventbrite page to see Pant Hoots. Join Dr. Jennifer Vertolin for an evening of ape stories and ape education and long calls, all to benefit the Center for Great Apes. It's this Saturday. Pay what you want. Grab your tickets on Eventbrite today, Saturday, December 5th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. I want to thank all our guests. Let's see if I can do it without looking at the uh, rundown. First, we had David Juskow. Then we had Pete Dominic. Then we had Grace Jackson and Henry Huckamaki. And I can't remember the name of his guest who will be back real soon. Then we had Professor Ben Burgess. Then we had, uh, I believe... Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, his son Ethan Hershenfeld, Barry W. Lynn. Then we had Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, Emil Guillermo, Bert Ross. Then we had Professor Marianne Cummings and Jeff Ross. Did I get it right? I think I got it right. Anyway, office hours Friday night at 9 p.m. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com to hit. Uh, and hit the attend a live taping menu and you will get an invitation to uh, come to office hours and sit in our audience. All right. I'm going to say goodbye to our podcast listeners. And I'm going to say goodbye to those of you who are listening to us on Zoom. Remember to uh, stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now. For the David Feldman Show He's talking politics And comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke If you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad And he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Right now, for the David Fair.
Feldman show So get your ears on right And buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way Thank you.